Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. This is being recorded live and broadcasted live from Las Vegas at the World Series of Poker on June 26th, 2022, the time right now, 1.57 a.m. Not 1.57 p.m., 1.57 a.m. We're really starting a show at about 2 in the morning. We have done this occasionally before during the World Series of Poker. And why are we starting it at this time? Well, because my sleep schedule is kind of all crazy, and this is when I can fit the show in. And the the show was scheduled for June 24th, but I was actually playing at that time, day two of the seniors event. And then June 25th just kind of got away from me. So here we are on June 26th. I mean, it's almost June 25th. It just rolled over past midnight two hours ago. So for those of you that stay up very late, or maybe those of you that get up early on the East Coast, or maybe those who are in Europe, then this is a good time for you to listen to the show. So we have a lot of stuff to cover tonight. And then uh, we're not going to have a free roll because, well, it's two in the morning. So who's going to play? Let's be honest. So we're not going to have a free roll this week. We will have one next week. But if you want to call the show... The phone number, as always, is 775-FRAUD-55. 775-372-8355 is the number. There's also the Mount Charleston line. The Mount Charleston line is an old 70s rotary phone sitting on top of Mount Charleston. And I have gone to visit the phone. I have made sure it's okay, it's functional, it's working, it's looking good. You can call that at 702-430-1808. The call to listen line... I have an important piece of news for people who want to call the call to listen line because that number has changed. And it was not my idea to change it. I did not want to change it. But the call to listen line number has changed and we have lost our alternate call to listen line as well. And that has to do with the service provider we were using. So these things will happen. The number has changed before. These were not the original numbers. And it may change again in the future, but that's okay, you know, as long as it works, as long as we have a call to listen line, that's fine. So the new call to listen line number is 716-805-6890. That's 716-805-6890. That is our only call to listen line. The other numbers are gone. For a limited time, if you call the old call to listen line phone numbers, you will get a message that will direct you to the new number. But don't count on that. So remember, the new call to listen line is 716-805-6890. I haven't updated the radio page yet, but I have updated the thread. And I will update the radio page shortly. Maybe by the time you hear this, you will see the proper number up on the radio tab. I just forgot to do that. But, you know, what can I do? And... This is actually close to where Calwatt lives. Calwatt lives pretty close to where this new call to listen line is operating from. Not that that really matters much, but worth noting. It works the exact same way. It will seem like the same thing. It's just a different phone number. 716-805-6890. You can use it to call the show from any phone in the world. And it does not require a smartphone. It does not require a data plan. It does not require the internet. And you don't need a good signal on your cell phone. You don't need an app. You don't need... Just none of that stuff is necessary. All you need is a phone that can dial. 
and just call up the number, 716-805-6890, and you just listen. And it just works, and it never buffers and never freezes. I promise you, it will never buffer or freeze. That's my guarantee to you. And if you can call the U.S. for free, then it is free to call, unless you have T-Mobile, in which it will cost you one cent per minute that I don't get. You can text me during the show at the main number of the show, which is 775-372-8355. Remember, if you text me during the live show, I may read your text on the air unless you ask me not to at the beginning of the text. But you can also text me during or after the show, before the show, whatever, and I will try to respond to you. We have a chat room. Now, I have to imagine in the chat room, which is only used during live radio, there's not a lot of people right now because the show was not supposed to be at 2 a.m., and it's 2 a.m. So we only have long here 5150 in there. And he just left. <laughs> he just left like a moment ago. So that's, that's all we have right now is just me. But you're welcome to go in there and talk to whoever wanders in. Because people are going to notice the show's on and they're going to join. And so we'll pick up some people. I don't know who's going to chat, but you can go in there. But usually you have people in there when we're broadcasting at a more normal time. So I will do our agenda and then get going nothing to say about the free roll because we don't have one this week we're skipping it and we will do it next week but here's the agenda for today of course as always during world series time that is what dominates our topics and this week is no different we will be doing world series of poker week four and five topics so of course the first topic is very self-centered it's gonna be about me my return to the world series remember i had covid and i had to cut short my early schedule for that reason i am recovered from covid i had someone text me something nice that they were uh worried about me and praying for me and i said no no that's not necessary i'm better i'm fine you know i had to stop playing some events that I had scheduled because of covid i didn't want to spread it but i am recovered i'm better it's been quite some time and uh, I returned to the World Series to play my very first seniors event, because now I am old enough to play the seniors, since I am 50 years old. So I will tell you how that went. It was a roller coaster experience. I will tell you that much right now. On the same day, or actually on day two of the seniors, another story happened that I got to witness personally, and that was massive scheduling fail that wreaked havoc upon the Colossus event at the World Series, which is the lowest buy-in World Series event this year. Massive havoc at the Colossus event due to Caesar's scheduling fail. It was very preventable, and someone messed up big time. So I'm going to tell you what happened. And this has not gotten very much press. In fact, I couldn't even find any press about it when I Googled it. But we're going to talk about it on this show. And I know it happened because I watched it. I didn't play that event. I didn't want to play that event. But I was there. I was there when it actually happened. So I got to watch it. And now I can tell you what I saw. And I can tell you what people were saying. Daniel Negreanu has not had a World Series that he was hoping he would have. He's been doing very poorly in the World Series. If you've been watching his World Series vlogs, he will admit that. He's down a lot of money. But some of that money came from two bullets he fired at the 250k high roller both of which ended in no cash. That event ended up being won by Alex Foxen. And when Negreanu took a bad beat at that event to go out, he actually threw his camera equipment against the wall. So we're going to talk about Negreanu's meltdown and his World Series, and is the money he's down hurting him? 
We won't know that for sure, but I will give you my theories on the matter. We had some drama this week. We always have drama. I mean, it's poker. We always get to have drama. But we had some drama this week at the World Series once again. This week, it involved one person who I never thought would be part of drama, and that would be quadriplegic K.L. Cleeton. He's the same guy that uh, money was raised to buy a van for him a little while back. And, you know, it's nice to see someone like that being able to play poker professionally. It's a very nice story. He has a good reputation. So how could he be in drama? Well, it involves spoiled Asian woman Kitty Kuo, who isn't quite as well-liked as K.L. Cleeton. But they had some drama with one another. And I don't think the analysis is as straightforward as many believe. So I'm going to tell you what I think of the drama, and I'll explain what's going on. And then you can decide for yourself who you think is right. The WSOP Cafe, which is really the only quick food option at the World Series of Poker, even though there's many more food options now in Paris and Bally's, that has closed. It has failed. And we will discuss that a bit. Then we will do some non-World Series of Poker topics. CoinFlex, which was heavily promoted by Doug Polk. Now, keep in mind, he does not run CoinFlex. He's not in CoinFlex management he was a promoter. He was a paid promoter. Anyway, it is having some major issues. You cannot withdraw from it. It seems to be circling the drain. It's not looking very positive right now. It's not dead, but it's getting close to it. So I'll tell you what's going on at CoinFlex. I will read you the statements that Doug Polk has made on Twitter about the matter. And then I will give you my analysis, because there's uh, some people on both sides of the matter. Some are blaming Polk, some are not blaming Polk, some are kind of in the middle. I'll tell you what I think of that. And I will tell you what I think of CoinFlex's future, and what I think Doug Polk is going to say in his next statement, which he has promised for July 1st. Some people have asked for the return of Druffy Time Theater. Druffy Time Theater is actually a popular segment. I wasn't sure if people would enjoy it, because it's not usually about poker or gambling, just about me talking about stories from my personal life, sometimes in the past, sometimes very far in the past, and sometimes uh, in the present or the recent past. But this time is going to be something in the very recent past, from June 2022. And it will have to do with a major Caesars fail. I know you're shocked. Caesars never fails, and I never talk about Caesars failing, right? But yes, it's a major Caesar fail that caused my old hotel room to continue to rack up charges and cause other unpleasant side effects for me. And when I say old hotel room, I mean a room that I had long checked out from. It came back to haunt me. So I'll tell you about that fail in Druffy Time Theater. Then we'll talk about the Poker Hall of Fame. Now, I've talked about this just about every year. But I will go on a similar rant about my criticism of it. But there's some new criticism I have for it. But I will also read you the list of nominees and tell you who I think is deserving, who I think is not deserving, and who I think is kind of maybe, maybe not deserving. A shooting at the Fremont Street Experience occurred during a fight that broke out there. And the saddest part was that it injured a bystander. Someone was killed, but at least that was one of the people fighting. But the uh, bystander had nothing to do with this and got injured. A bullet hit him, but he did survive. Anyway, we'll discuss uh, the shooting there and why I'm not all that surprised it happened. Final poker and gambling topic. 
Two players were banned from all Deadwood, South Carolina casinos after being caught using a fraudulent poker tournament ticket. That is, someone had a way into the tournament but didn't actually pay for it. They were able to get a fraudulent ticket. You may wonder how that's possible. I'll explain when we get to that segment. Coronavirus news. Well, aside from the fact that I have recovered, we're going to talk about variants BA4 and BA5 because you're probably hearing a lot about them. And you might be worried. Should you fear the immunity-breaking BA4 and BA5 variants that they are now saying in the news will just bust right through whether you got the vaccine or if you have natural immunity. And some people are saying these are the reasons we need strong COVID protocols again. So I'm going to tell you if you really have anything to fear from these two variants and whether I think I had one of those variants at the World Series of Poker back in early June. Finally, the very big story that happened this week, not a poker story, but a news story, was of course the overturning of Roe v. Wade, which was 50 years ago when that decision was made, and that shaped abortion rights in the U.S. for the past five decades, and now this has been overturned. Now, we saw that coming when, about a month and a half ago, it was leaked that Roe v. Wade was going to be overturned, but now we see it. We see it right there from a Supreme Court decision, and that's been officially released So I'm going to tell you what I think of that, and I'm also going to tell you that both sides are to blame for this happening. And you might wonder how that is possible, since it was definitely the right which pushed for this, and it was definitely right-wing judges which overturned it. So how could you possibly blame the left for this? Well, they don't deserve the complete blame, but they deserve partial blame, and I'll tell you why during that editorial. So that is our agenda for this morning. And, you know, if you want to call me, I'm happy to receive calls. Just try to call in between segments so you don't interrupt my train of thought and to where it fits in with the show much better. So we're going to start here and talk about my World Series of Poker return. Not 2022, but my return during the 22 World Series. Because what I did is I came in, I played uh, four events, of which all were tremendous fails. I didn't even make it through 30% of the field in any of them. Just ran really, really bad. And then I had a second trip planned, which was going to start with the WSOP Seniors event. I was actually supposed to play two more events in the first trip which were the $3,000 limit hold'em and 10K limit hold'em events. But I could not play them because I got COVID. So once I tested positive for COVID, which was the morning of the 3K 6 max event of limit hold'em, that knocked that out. And same with the next day's 10K limit hold'em. So I knew that the next event I would be playing would be the seniors event, which fortunately was a while away. So I knew that COVID wouldn't affect that. I knew I would be long recovered by then and no longer contagious, of course. Anyway, the WSOP seniors event began on June 22nd. And you actually could enter up to four times, which I didn't realize at first. I had thought it was just a one and done thing. Then someone told me there was a re-entry. There was one re-entry. And I said, okay, well, you know, you know what, uh, 
if I don't make the first bullet stand up, I will re-enter this. I'm not a big re-entry guy. I really don't like re-entering tournaments, but I said for this event, I probably will. Then I heard that it's not one re-entry for the event. It's one re-entry per flight, but there were two flights. There was the A flight on June 22nd, and there was the B flight on June 23rd. So you could actually enter twice on each day, meaning you could potentially enter this event four times. Now, I have re-entered events before. I've re-entered, in fact, recently, the PLO8 event. And when I re-entered, I actually cashed. I actually ran fairly deep with that re-entry. So that wasn't a bad idea, obviously. So it's not like I never re-enter, but those only have one re-entry total. One re-entry, yeah, I could do. Once you get more than one re-entry, I don't like to do it. And part of the reason for that is that you have to get fairly deep in the event to just break even. Now, there's another way to look at it. You could say, if the event is positive EV for yourself, in your opinion, then you need to almost treat it like a separate event and not say, oh, well, I don't want to have to look at how far I have to get to break even for all the entries. You may say, well, if I'm willing to play back-to-back $1,000 No Limit Hold'em events then why would I not be willing to enter a $1,000 No Limit Hold'em event twice? And that's a reasonable argument. But I just don't like it. I just don't like the idea of spending a lot of money to enter a single event and then have to get deeper and deeper just to make the buy-in back. So I wasn't sure how many times I would enter. I knew for sure I would enter twice, but I wasn't sure if I would do three or four. I kind of said, I'll feel it out. In fact, I considered that if I busted both bullets on June 22nd, that instead of playing on the 23rd, that instead I would choose to play the $2,000 No Limit event, which is open to everybody. It's not a seniors event. It's not anything special. It's just a $2,000 event with one re-entry. I was only going to enter that one once, but that was what I was considering doing on the 23rd if I didn't make it past the 22nd. I have been looking forward to play the seniors event for a long time, but I could not play until I turned 50 which happened this year. So this was my first opportunity to play the seniors event. I've talked about that on the show before. In fact, I've talked about it years ago saying, I can't wait until I can actually play this in the year 2022. Well, here we are, 2022, and the seniors event was going, and it was time. It was time for me to play. I didn't love where it was on the schedule. There really wasn't anything else I really wanted to play around that time. And the few things that were would interfere with it. So I'm like, do I really want to come all the way back to Vegas to play this? But I said, you know what? I have been saying for a long time that I'm going to play this thing when I finally can. I'm not going to forego that just because it's not scheduled well for me personally. So I committed to do it. Came in on the night of the 21st. The event is at 10 a.m., which is a lousy time, but I guess they make it at 10 a.m. because seniors, they think, don't like staying up late. So they don't want them stuck playing till two or three in the morning, which is stupid because most of the people in this event are under 60. And I'll I'll get to that when I'm describing what I saw there. But this was not like a really old event. It was like more of a 50s event. 50s meaning age group, not the 1950s. In fact, most people in the field were not alive in the 1950s, of course, myself included. So I entered. I entered the first flight. I decided the 10 a.m. thing just wasn't for me. 
And they have a new rule this year that started a little bit into the series, and that is any event that's pot limit or no limit, that is a buy-in of 1500 or less, that if you register early, that if you show up late, you don't get blinded off. Prior to that, if you were already registered, they would put your stack out there and it would blind off if you were late. But they changed this rule, and I agree with this change, because they want to encourage early registration in order to keep down the lines. They don't want people to say, oh, well, I'd love to register at 3 in the morning when no one's around, but I don't want to lose chips if I don't show up on time, so F it, I don't want to register early. So they look at what is most likely to be a big field event, which is anything that's 1,500 or lower buy-in that's pot limit or no limit. I mean, that's true. Though the main event is the very big field, and that doesn't qualify there, so I don't know why they don't make that the rule for that, too. I think they should just make it the rule for everything, to be honest. Why, like, why, pun- why punish someone who is registering early rather than someone who late registers? If you're just not there yet, you're not there yet. You just shouldn't blind off. So anyway, they changed that, and I like that change. So I decided I'm just not going to show up in the first uh, hour, hour and a half, and I'll get a little extra sleep and play at a time I'm more accustomed to playing and also the day will be shorter for me so I showed up probably around like 11.30am or something to my first bullet of day 1A I noted on Twitter, and this is true, you can look it up, that even though I may not feel like a senior sometimes I'm actually four years older than Archie Bunker on the first season of All in the Family Really, go look it up. I mean, they didn't say exactly how old Archie is, but the actor playing him, Carol O'Connor, was only 46. And I'm 50. So I'm four years older than Archie Bunker. And I'm also one year older than Fred Sanford on Sanford and Son in their first season. Now, that's even more amazing. (laughs) He's supposed to be an old man. But Red Fox was only 49 in the first season of Sanford and Son. So older than Fred Sanford and older than Archie Bunker. And here I am, a senior. So I came to the event. I was excited to finally be able to play. Well, right away, I get action. Right away. So I came in, and I got to play a free hand under the gun. You don't have to post or anything. You just, when you show up, you can just start playing. So I get my full stack. First hand, I fold under the gun. Second hand, queen jack in big blind. Someone raises. I call. Someone else calls. Flop. King 10-6. Like, oh my god, this is going to cost me right away. If I don't hit, this is going to cost me right away. So I check and call, and the turn is a jack. And you might think, oh, that's good. You've caught a pair. I thought, no, this is awful. I don't want this jack. Because my draw is no longer something where I'm drawing to the nuts. Because if a nine hits, I could still be, I could actually be losing. I could be losing to ace-queen. So I got a feeling that one of these two people, either the original Razor or one of the Flatters, had ace-queen. Especially the original Razor. I just kind of like got a feeling he had ace-queen. So he bet. Next guy called, and I laid it down. I actually laid down my queen-jack with the middle pair and one card uh, open-ended straight draw. <laughs> it was a fairly big bet. It wasn't huge, but it was fairly big. It would have already taken out a good chunk of my stack. So I said, F it. I let it go, even though it was the last to act. Well, River was another king, so I was happy to see that. It probably was not good. And what do you know? Yep. The original Razor had Ace-Queen. Mm-hmm. So that was a very good lay down on my part. 
but I was still out of chips. Not out of chips, but out chips. Well, I got my first little taste a very short time later about this weird play style that many people have at the seniors event. See, I had an incorrect expectation of the seniors event. I pictured a bunch of weak, passive, older guys. And I don't mean old. I don't mean like 75-year-old, 85-year-old guys. I mean, some of them too, but I figured it'd be a lot of guys in their 50. But I, I figured these guys would be recreational players who were just kind of weak, passive, do a lot of limping, check calling. I kind of figured that I'd be seeing a whole lot of that. Well, there was a little of that, but there wasn't a tremendous amount. But what I saw a lot of was really weird, random, and non-standard play styles. And here's an example. So the same guy who had the ace-queen, he raised, and this is only a short time after winning that hand. So he raised, and I think uh, one or two people called. He was in early position. And then I had king-jack of diamonds on the button. So I don't love king-jack of diamonds and no limit hold'em. It's a much better limit hold'em hand. I don't love it in no limit hold'em. It can be a trap hand. But anyway, I, I flatted it. You know, you're, you're playing fairly... You're not super deep at that point, but you're fairly deep. It's at the beginning of the tournament. So I, I flatted the king, jack of diamonds, and there were already some callers. And uh, flop is king, eight, six, two hearts. No diamonds. So I have no diamond draw, but uh, I do flop top pair. But of course, where am I in this hand? What if I'm against ace, king? What if I'm against pocket eights, or pocket sixes, or, po- or uh, king, queen? There's a lot of things I could be against, pocket aces. So, uh... I wasn't going to play this aggressively. But, original Razor, who's facing all these people behind him. Remember, there's uh, four people behind him. He checks. Maybe it's one of the blinds, but there's four others in the hand, including me. So he checks. So, okay, he missed it, right? King, eight, six, two hearts. He checks. Everybody else checks, comes to me on the button. Well, obviously, i got to bet that, right? Now, maybe there could be someone trapping here or whatever. They could check-raise me, but... At the very least, I thought the original Razor cannot be King Jack at this point. Like, why would you ever check there? Because it's King 8, 6, 2 hearts against a ton of cold callers. There's a lot of ways a cold caller can catch up on you, even if you've got pocket kings. So you got to protect your hand. You don't want to let it check around and let people catch up. This is a very wet board that hits a lot of people who cold call. So you've you got to protect it immediately if you've hit something. So when he checks, that means he doesn't like this flop, right? This isn't like heads up on a dry board. This isn't like it's king seven deuce and it's just me and him. This is king eight six two hearts. So he checks. Everybody checks to me. And I think, well, I'm ahead of him. And I'm guessing I'm probably ahead of the others. But, of course, I'll play cautiously. But I got a bet here. So I bet. I think whatever blind was in folded, he called. And the others folded. I go, okay, sweet. So... I was kind of putting him on like pocket queens, pocket jacks at that point. Something where he had a good hand pre and he hates the king, but he doesn't want to give it up yet. So I'm thinking actually in my head, I don't want to see a queen on the turn. I wasn't even worried about a heart because I figured he's probably betting hearts. But I especially didn't want to see a queen or a jack, especially a queen on the turn because I kind of was getting the feeling he had like queens or jacks. Well, it wasn't. On the turn, it was a seven that was not a heart. So okay happy with that. Yeah, he could have sevens, but I can't fear that, so he checks again. I bet, and I think to myself, if I don't get check-raised here, I'm gold. Well, he calls. All right. Unless I get bad beat, I've got it. Well, guess what hits the river? That queen. 
And I think to myself, ah, oh, boy, my luck is such shit this World Series of Poker. I think there's a decent chance he hit his set of queens now. So he checks, and I go, well, I'm not falling into this trap. So I check. Besides, what's he going to call at this point? Remember, he's check-calling the whole way. Now a queen hits. So, like, what hand that's worse than King Jack is going to call a river bet here? So he checks, I check. He turned over a hand that I was not expecting to see. Though maybe you have an idea from the way I've described this whole thing. He turned over pocket eights, a flopped middle set. I'm just like scratching my head. I'm like, what the fuck? You can't even say he was trapping me because it went just me and him on the turn. He doesn't check raise me. <laughs> Maybe he was going to check raise the river, but what the hell is he doing? Had I checked back on the turn, then think of all the different people in the hand that could have gotten and, and caught him. So that's just one of many weird things I saw during this event. That was the first one, but that was my introduction to this event showing me the weird play styles that exist here. And that is the way I would describe the competition. It's just weird. Now, not everybody's weird. We do have the limp donks who just check call. We do have the guys who just cannot let go of top pair no matter what, and that you can get a lot of value out of them if you can be top pair. You do have ones that overvalue pocket pairs, and when there's a big bet in front of them uh, pre-flop, they're going to call with pocket sixes anyway. So, yeah, you have those type of players. I'm not saying these are great players, but I will say that a lot of them do weird things, and they can sometimes be hard to read. Like this guy here. I would have never read eights in a million years. But hard to read doesn't necessarily mean good. For example, um, you could just make random decisions at the poker table that have nothing to do with what you're holding or what your opponents are doing, and you'd be impossible to read, but you also wouldn't be very good. You would chunk off your chips very fast. So, again, hard to read doesn't necessarily mean good. It does mean it can be tougher for opponents to make decisions against you. So I I had to kind of learn all this. I kind of had to get used to the styles there and think about how I develop a style to counter hard-to-read styles. Because, again, this isn't always smart aggression or smart call-downs or smart hero calls. These are just kind of weird styles. And I've got to think, okay, what, what type of thing am I seeing here? What type of thing am I not seeing? What seems safe to do? What seems not safe to do? What seems to be things I can do to take advantage of the way I see people playing? So I kind of was on the fly developing changes in my strategy that I thought would work. So it took me a little time to figure this out. But I was also running really bad, and I was also, on the first bullet, like, just every time I had a hand, someone would have better and I would lose. So I I didn't last very long there. And uh, so I I was already shaved down to 11,500, which was uh, for my 20K starting stack within three hands. You know, the four hands had been dealt to me. I played three, and I was already down to uh, 11,500. I never really could get it going. I couldn't even get back to starting stack. I was out when I had queens in the big blind and someone had raised under the gun. There were four callers. I had queens in the big blind, as I said. So I'm like, okay, very good for my short stack. So I put it all in. Now, I wasn't like desperately short, but I was on the short side. I think I had maybe 7K or something. 
So I put it in. I'm hoping that uh, they're thinking I'm squeezing because I'm trying to build back my short stack. And uh, the under the gun looks very unhappy. He acts really unhappy. And he makes his loud sigh. Ah, okay. And puts his chip. But then he goes all in. Then everybody else folds. Well, the way he put it in like that, I go, okay, this, this is such a bullshit act. Oh, okay. I'm all in. So, of course, I know he's going to turn over a monster. And he does. He turns over kings. So, board ran out low. And I was out. I usually don't make snide comments or nasty comments to people when I bust. I'm not one of these guys who takes a bad beat and makes a nasty comment or busts because of a bad play and makes a nasty comment. I'll just get up and leave. This was one of the rare exceptions because I didn't like this guy's sigh. I mean, I go all in with the queens. If he calls, whether he goes all in or calls, it's very clear he's got something strong. So he doesn't need to put out a whole act to get people to call him. Now, if he doesn't want to say call right away, fine. If he wants to act like he's thinking about it so he doesn't give away that his hand is so strong he can just immediately snap. But you don't have to go, okay, I guess I'll do it. And he wasn't worried about me having aces because I only had 7K. You're thrilled to see kings at that spot. So once I do that and then he calls, then any person who's not brain dead, who's who's, uh, flatted him, knows that one of us has a very good hand and maybe both and time to get out of the way. And that's what everybody did without any... Second thought. She's like, full, 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 real fast. So as I was walking away, I said something like, oh, you really hated having to call that, huh? And he just sat there. He didn't, he didn't respond. And then someone at the table says, yeah, I bet he did. So I walked off, and I immediately registered for a second bullet. When I was in line to buy my second bullet, I thought, wow, that was some hour of play. I lasted like an hour of play, because it was like 90 minutes, but about 20 minutes of it was the break. So I played like a little more than an hour and I had kings, queens, top pair, a nut flush draw, a set, an open-ended straight draw, and several other hands and I lost most of them. (laughs) That was some welcome back to the series after my uh, few-week hiatus. So I I hope the second bullet goes better. Anyway, second one started better. Second bullet started better. I had pocket fives, a guy limped, I raised to isolate him, and got two other callers. However, the flop came 953, two diamonds, and I bet, yeah, he check, I bet, uh, the others folded, it came back to him, he check raises me. I'm like, oh, sweet, that's what I want to see with the 953 board. So I pretended to think. I didn't sigh like the other guy, but I pretended to think, put them all in, and then he did not snap call. And that was kind of a little bit weird because he already committed himself. I'm thinking, you know, maybe he's got diamonds. That's what I thought when he check raised me, he had diamonds. And maybe he was thinking about, do I want to risk my tournament life? It wasn't going to be his life, but I was going to, I was new to the table with a full 20K, so he was going to lose a lot of what he had. I thought maybe he just doesn't want to put it all in on a flush draw, but he was thinking he kind of committed himself, which he did. I'm thinking, why is there so much thought, though? He put so much in, just put the rest in at this point, even if it was a bad play. But he's thinking, 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 thinking. Finally, he throws out the chip to call, and I saw why he was thinking so much. This guy had queen nine with just a pair of nines. (laughs) So he was almost drawing dead. 
then of course he uh, almost got nowhere. But hold on, look how bad I run. I said he had queen nine on a nine five three board, but it was queen nine with the queen of diamonds. Well, guess what? The ten of diamonds hit the turn, giving him some outs. To diamond the river, a non-pairing diamond would actually win it for him. <laughs> oh no! I go if I lose this, if I lose the queen nine. When I have pocket fives on a 953 board, I think it's just time to quit. I don't even know if I want to do a third bullet. I can't do the third bullet the same day anyway. I'd have to wait the next day. But I go, oh, my God, if I lose this. Well, fortunately, River was safe, and I was already more than double my stack. I was up to 45K, and I was feeling much better. Unfortunately, this uh, table drop, which is better than the first one I got, uh, it didn't last very long. I got uh, moved. And... Then I was uh, suffering the same fate I had in my first four events of the series on the previous trip. That is, midday one, I couldn't win a hand. I just stopped winning hands. So over like a four-hour period, I didn't win one hand, and my stack just started dwindling. I got it up to like 55K from the original 20, and then it just dwindled down. I didn't lose any big hands, but I just kind of slowly drifted down because I could not win a single pot. You know how it goes sometimes in tournaments. I remember I busted against kings on that first bullet when I had queens. You may also remember that back when I played the other No Limit tournament that I've played this series, the 1K No Limit, I also busted against kings. This time I had, well, uh, at the time I had uh, jacks is how I busted. Or ace-jack, actually. It wasn't jacks. It was ace-jack. I was hoping maybe I won't bust against kings this time. Well, <laughs> I was super card dead forever. Dinner was coming up. I think I kind of foreshadowed what I busted with here. But uh, dinner was coming up. Final hand before dinner. Under the gun plus one, I have jacks. But under the gun raised. But hey, I've got a short stack and we're about to go to dinner. I'm, I've got to put it in. So I put it in with my jacks. A guy behind goes all in. I go, oh my God, could this be kings again? The original razor thought about it. So I know I have him beat. I know he does not have queens or better. He was thinking about it, and he finally put it in. And when we all turned over our hands, it's pretty clear what everyone had and why they acted the way they did. Because the original Razor had ace-queen and made a bad call. There's no way he should have called ace-queen against the two of us. And I had jacks, as I told you, and who was... The third one, what did they have? Of course, kings. And, of course, the kings won, as they always do against me. And I was out. So that was the end of my first two bullets at the seniors event for June 22nd. <sighs> so that was not going the way I was hoping. And I thought, what do I do? What do I do? And I tweeted on June 22nd at 7.20, shortly after this happened, 7.20 p.m., going to think about what I want to do tomorrow. Check Twitter, and I'll decide around then. I have now busted against Kings, all-in pre-flop, all three No Limit events I've played this World Series, two being players acting behind, which is especially unlucky. It's one thing that I go all in anyway where someone's showing strength and made the wrong decision. In two of the three of these, the person hadn't even acted yet. I just happened to be running into kings. One of the times I had jacks, one of the times I had ace-jack, and then the other one, I had queens and just happened to run into kings that had open-raised. So, pretty unlucky. Well, I decided that I was going to do a third bullet. But I also decided, especially after having some difficulty sleeping, I decided that I'm not doing another early start. 
I'm not even doing it like an 11.30 start. I'm, I'm going to start later and see if this bullet can stand up, but that uh, I don't feel like showing up in the morning and grinding out against these guys again just to go into the uh, car-dead toilet and lose. I, I just I wanted to cut out the less meaningful levels of the beginning. So I ended up showing up at 2.30, and I didn't even register. I actually registered around 2.30, and there was a break, so I couldn't uh, play right away. So anyway, I sat down, and I thought, okay, if this goes badly, it's going to be really frustrating, but whatever. I justified the third bullet, which is the first time in my life I've ever done three bullets in a World Series event. Never before, in all the World Series events I've played, never done three bullets. It's the first time, because it's a seniors event. I felt like I have a much better chance to run deep or win this compared to other No Limit events where I'm facing all these internet wizards and other guys who just play way, way, way more No Limit Hold'em tournaments than I do. So I said, this is really the event I want to keep playing. So I justified that to be entering a third time, but I started to doubt myself because right away, right away as I sat down, I get five sets of hearts, it, it, everyone limps around, not everybody, but a bunch of people limp. So I have lay position, five, six of hearts. Of course, I limp. Board comes six, three, two, rainbow. So I think, all right, that's a pretty good hand for when everybody's limped around. Well, guess what? I end up getting bet into right away by the small blind. Small blind just fires. Folds to me. I call. Just me and him on the turn. Turns like an eight. He fires again bigger. I call, and then River is like a 10. He fires even bigger, and I lay it down. So, kind of looked good on the flop, but what could I do there? And I, I'm pretty convinced he had me beat. Remember, I just had a pair of sixes with a five kicker with a gut shot straight draw, but didn't get there. So, right away, I had 6K shaved off of my 20K starting stack. Lovely. Then I had pocket eight to myself. I forgot what happened, but I was down to 12K after that. And I'm going, oh my God, why can't I win at this freaking event? <laughs> What's wrong with me here? I thought this is the one where I'm going to come and sit down and dominate. I'm just getting smacked down. Well, finally, I get pocket aces. And guess what? The board was too good. Ace 4-4. Four, four. Now, I will tell you this. I am not a big believer of checking monsters on the flop. Because what ends up happening is you keep the pot small. And if someone does happen to catch something, or if they're drawing for something or whatever, then you don't get much out of them. The pot is small. They don't want to call large bets. And you're also, in some cases, allowing people cheap ways to put incredibly bad beats on you. There was one we covered on this show, which was in a cash game situation, where a woman laid down quads on the river because a royal flush is possible. And there was a lot of debate whether she made the right move. But what I was saying was I thought the fold on the river was correct, but where she made the mistake was by flopping quads and checking it down. Because by checking it down, she allowed someone with a royal flush to get there where they would not have even had that draw had she just bet the flop. Or at least if she charged them the whole way, then she could justify... Yeah, you know, that happening and losing. 
But to just check and wait for someone to get there and then have them raise you huge and you have to be faced with letting down, uh, laying down quads, it's very tough. And you also have no read on anybody if you're not betting the flop. Then you, They could have anything. So then, yeah, they could have a royal flush if it's possible. So I'm not a believer of checking the flop when you've flopped a monster, even if you think it's going to make people fold. But this was an exception because ace-4-4 four, four is not going to lose to anything except for quad fours, and almost nothing's going to catch up to it. So I'm thinking, all right, maybe I can check and either get someone to bluff into me or call down if they have a pocket pair and don't believe me when I start betting or maybe catch something. Maybe they've got king-queen and a king hits the turn and they don't want to let it go. So they're not going to call off huge money against me, but at least I'll get something. So I actually checked. I checked around. Bet the turn, call. Bet the river, call. So, okay, I got something. Never got to see what he had, obviously, but I got something. I was back to starting uh, over starting sacks. Okay, great. So then I started running it up. Then I was kind of stuck at the same thing for a while. I ran it up to, like, almost double starting stack, and I was kind of stuck for a few hours. And then I had some monsters I hit, but I was getting minimal action. I wasn't doing badly. I just wasn't chipping up that much. I did go to dinner with almost 52K, so that's a lot better than busting right before dinner. So this bullet was starting to look better. Anyway, uh, I was starting to like the situation better. I was getting a better feel of the weird play styles and what to do, what not to do. Like, for example, I noticed that what there wasn't a lot of was light three-betting when you're making a late position raise or mid to late position raise. Because a lot of good players will like to light three bet in order to re-steal blind steals. And this isn't anything new. I mean, this has been going on since No Love and Hold'em got popular 20 years ago almost. But you're not seeing that much here. So let's say you have a Jack-9 in mid to late position if you raise with that a normal no-limit tournament, what's often going to happen is someone's going to three-bet you, especially if you do it like in the cutoff, there's a good chance the, uh, the button's going to three-bet you with uh, something light, then you don't know what to do. So sometimes you need to think about, before you do this, before you try these blind steals, you do have to think about, what if I get three-bet? What am I going to do? How often do the players to my left do this type of three-betting, or do they only three-bet when they've got something real? So you, you got to think a lot about the other players' play styles that are going to act behind you before you try to attempt to steal. But what I noticed fairly universally at this event is that there's not a lot of light three-betting. Much less light three-betting at this event than any no-limit event I have played at the World Series of Poker. And I will tell you this, if you are a senior who either has played this event or is thinking of playing it in the future, keep that in mind if you do. The light three-betting does not happen very often. So, that means you can steal more blinds. But hold on. There is a lot of cold calling. And these players don't like to let go of hands very easily. So it's sometimes hard to bet them off. So what I came to discover from my own experience is that mid to late position blind stealing can be pretty lucrative, but early position light raising is bad. That you should not open early with the hope of maybe I'll just take the blinds. So if that's your hope and when you're opening early, don't bother. But you should be less fearful 
about opening late. And you should be less fearful that when you open on the button light that someone's going to three-bet you. So I thought about that, and I, I adjusted that way. I adjusted betting where I think someone has a piece of something, and I know there's no way they're going to let it go, unless I really commit a lot of chips to it, which I don't want to do. So these are the type of adjustments I started to make, and I started to have better results. And I ran better. Here is an example of someone really messing up and making it uh, very clear what they had. So I had a situation where I raised from the cutoff and I had uh, pocket sevens. And then I was called, this is later in the event, but I'm just giving you an example. I was cold called by the button. And then the small blind who was short stacked, instead of folding or shoving or calling, he makes the most minimum raise possible. In fact, it was so minimum, we had to check that it was actually defined as a raise because it wasn't double my bet. But it turned out he did make a valid raise. So I'm thinking, why would a short stack from the small blind against two people make the most minimum raise possible? I bet you know. Pocket aces. It's always pocket aces when they do that shit. So if you are in this event and you see someone who is usually raising 2.5 or three times the blind to open, if they're suddenly opening two times, it's aces. Or sometimes kings, but it's always aces or kings, usually aces. If they're doing a really, really light three bet, as far as how much more it is compared to your original raise, it's aces. So I go, this fucker has aces. So I said, all right. I'm so sure he has aces that if the flop does not come with a seven, I'm gone. Even though he's short stacked. If the flop does not come with a seven, I'm gone. Well, the flop comes king seven three. <laughs> so he, uh, he checks. I bet. Or sorry, that wasn't it. So, uh, so he fired and I went all in. And the guy from the button looked so frustrated and he finally laid it down. It was king seven three two spades. The small blind called, and what do you know? Turned over red aces. I saw the. I turned over my sevens. He was very disappointed. Board ran out. I won, but the board ended up with three spades on it. And the button said to me that he had spades, and that he laid it down because of my all in, because I had him covered, and he would have busted. He wasn't short, but I had him covered, so he didn't want to risk it all on a flush draw, which is correct. But it's it's uh, all because of the aces there that uh, let me in with the sevens. Now, I guess he would have folded also if this aces... Uh, he said he had like a suited ace, so I guess we would have both folded if the aces pressed it. you got to look for things people give away from their play styles in this event. you got to be observant here. Not just with individuals, but just kind of the way the whole event was playing. Like I was saying, there's very little light three betting. That's not to say people don't bluff. People will bluff post-flop. But you're also not seeing a lot of check-raise bluffing. You sometimes see people just firing if you check to them. And you'll see people calling you down light. But you don't see that much check-raise bluffing. And you don't see much light three betting pre-flop. So anyway, I was... uh, adjusting my play style. I did have a very nice hand which helped uh, propel me to a six-figure stack on the first day. This is another set hand 
where I had pocket eights multi-way that, again, much like the sevens I shouldn't have been in because a guy opened from kind of early middle and another guy had jacks on the button and chose to flat them. He chose to flat them with the plan to go all in on a low flop. Which, if that's your plan, just push it then. Because the problem with that plan is that against ace-king, you're not going to get action post-flop. And against a higher pair, you're going to get called anyway. So all you're doing here is giving yourself the ability to get out of it if the board comes with an ace or king. But then you're also not going to get anything out of them if they have ace-king, if, if it misses them. So it really is better if you're just going to call with jacks and put it, in on, put it in a low board just to just to raise there. But he didn't. He flatted. So I got to flat with my eights in the small blind. And the flop came a dream 8-7-3 rainbow. And it became even more of a dream when the original, when I checked, original raiser bet, button goes all in. <laughs> you have the original raiser betting and the button going all in and I've got freaking top set. So that was nice. And uh, I obviously put it all in myself. The original raiser was furious and turned over his aces face up and stormed away from the table in frustration. And uh, board ran out safe. So that knocked me from uh, like around 60 to 134. I lost the next hand, but still I was uh, sitting pretty over 100K. And so, you know, the event was going well. Now you may say, well, yeah, I keep flopping sets. Of course I'm winning. Well, yes, you need things like that to run chips up. So I'm not saying that I had average luck here on the third bullet and that I willed myself into a nice stack. Obviously, I was also running well. But the point is here that uh, I was also just more and more aware of what I was up against. And for example, in that hand against the aces where the guy did that super min raise, I swear I would not have put anything in if I didn't get that seven on the flop. So uh, I made day two and I had 218k average is about 100 at that point or not day two i made day one b not day two so at the end of day one b i had my uh i had 218 which is a little more than double of average there were uh 1446 people left they had a record number of entries now keep in mind this was not the number of people who entered because you can enter multiple times like i was three of these entries so i was like three people but they had 7,188 entries to this event. I don't know how many unique people, but over 7,000 entries. 15% were cashing, so they were paying 1,079 spots. It started at $1,600 what they'd pay. You remember the buy-in was 1,000 per bullet. So I was in for 3,000. So that 1,600 was only going to get me a little more than halfway of what I paid. Obviously, I wasn't shooting for that. So we returned at uh, 10 a.m. the next day. I definitely had to uh, show up on time for that one, and I did. But I, after a, a card dead start, and then running into quads, I was already down to 140. But then after losing a little bit more, I, I finally uh, got going, and I started running it up again. And uh, obviously, we got past the money. But I did. I was raping the bubble, by the way. I should point that out, too. When we got to the bubble, I was not big stacked at all. I wasn't short stacked, but I wasn't big stacked. I was running average stacked. But boy, was I hitting that bubble. Now, I wasn't being blatant about it. I wasn't, like, raising every hand. 
I kind of thought about like what would happen if I raised every hand because nobody wanted to miss that bubble. Like I could, people were talking about the table. Like, how many left? How many left to cash? How many left to cash? And I was kind of playing into it. I was talking about how many left to cash too because I wanted them to not think I was cavalier about the bubble. So I, I didn't want them to think that I was just uh, raising like because I, I wasn't worried about the bubble. So anyway, uh, I was just looking for any spot I thought was good to steal. So I started watching who was just like folding every hand and every time it was their blinds I'd raise. There was a actually pretty good player to my left, a Korean pro, who actually looked pretty young for uh, for his age. I asked him how old he was. He was actually uh, 52, but he even looked under 50. I think he dyed his hair, though, so that probably had something to do with it. But anyway, this, this Korean guy, he was very short-stacked, and he did seem to be wanting to cash. So um, I, I did hit him several times when he was uh, small versus big. Like I did it one time, I shoved with 3-9 offsuit because I knew he was very unlikely to call when we're like three spots away from the money. And many other times, just if I had trash in late position, automatic raise, trash for middle position, if it was someone who I thought wouldn't defend, automatic raise, and I, I picked up a lot of blinds there. So I, I, did a, I, I felt I did good, a good job with it to where I don't think anyone even realized that I was doing this. As I said, I wasn't doing it so much to where it was obvious, but I was doing it... Uh, Definitely with a lot of hands that I would have never raised with or even called with. So that helped me some, too. Then there was a tremendous delay, which I didn't understand. Shortly after the bubble burst, maybe we played like another 20 minutes, then they held everything up for a tremendous delay. And I'll explain in another segment what that was about. It wasn't about this event. They tried to claim it was about this event, but it wasn't about this event. I'll I'll tell you what it was about when I get there. But I started... uh, just kind of small balling pots. I started noticing there were a lot of ways to pick up little pots here and there and to not risk too much in the process, to just keep firing, keep hitting, to kind of maintain a solid image as someone who actually has it when a lot of times I don't, but also not committing too much when I'm trying to bluff. And it was working. I started getting a real good feel for the competition and for the tables, even when I was getting moved. I was getting moved all over the place on this one, but uh, on day two, but I was just really feeling it well. And I wasn't making many mistakes. So I was feeling a lot better about my play. I kept running it up. I got to 300K, 400K, and uh, I got all the way to uh, 665K at dinner. I was feeling good. Now, keep in mind, dinner was eight hours into the 10 hours that we were playing that day. There were actually 11 hours of play on the first day. And I mean real play. I don't mean including breaks. 11 hours plus all the breaks, including a dinner break. So that's a really long day. I think you played like, like 10 a.m. to midnight or something. So that's part of the reason I showed up late. But of course, day two, we can't show up late. So I was there right on time for that one. And you have to play 10 full hours plus dinner plus the break. So you're still there a long time. So dinner, I have 665K. Average was probably like 400. So I had more than one and a half times average. I had uh, what I felt was pretty good control of what was going on at this table I was at. I had been moved there maybe hour and a half before. And the table was pretty talkative. There was one woman there who really looked young for her age. I didn't see many people at the event who didn't look like they could be 50. 
Like most people, I'd look and go, yeah, I could easily believe he's 50. Like I identified who seemed to be the younger ones in the field. I even asked a few of them that seemed to look young, like, are you 50? You know, who's younger, me or you? And, you know, I tell them what, what month I was born and we try to figure it out. But I actually was the youngest one I encountered. Like I didn't encounter anyone younger than me. And I think there's a good chance that I may have been the youngest one who cashed. They actually did a little exercise when the money hit to see who the oldest one who cashed was. And it was actually an 88-year-old. They had everybody stand up and then sit down. If you're like older than this, older than that, they kept going up. And when they got to 88, that was the last person standing. So an 88-year-old cashed. I, I wish they did for the youngest too, so we could figure out who the youngest in the field was, but they, they didn't. I, I really doubt that out of those thousands and thousands of entries that there was nobody younger than me because I didn't just turn 50. But I turned 50 in 2022, and I did not personally encounter anyone who, even who was just 50. And I, I just have a feeling, just kind of from like looking at the field when I walked around after the cash, that there was not anyone younger than me who cashed in this one. I bet next year there will be, but this year there was not. But anyway, I was coming back with 665k from dinner, just two hours left of play from day two, and then I would be going on to day three. And I really had a feel for the individual play styles of everybody at this table, as I was saying. So I just didn't see myself chunking it off. I didn't see myself uh, getting tricked or trapped here. I, I really felt like I knew what was going on, that it's only going to be a cooler or a bad beat that sends me packing here, especially in the final two hours of the day. I was probably the most aggressive one at the table. I wasn't stupid aggressive. I wasn't playing trash, but I was the most aggressive. But I like to see it as smart aggression where I wasn't going to commit a lot to spots which weren't good. I did make one blunder at this table. Let's go back to the woman who I said looked uh, very young for her age. She had a mask covering half her face. And uh, we, we talked a little bit while we were there. So she said she was actually 52. She wasn't even 50, which surprised me. But she looked like she was about 40. And she was attractive. Like she was a very attractive 52-year-old, but I could only see half her face. So maybe when she took this mask off, that wouldn't look as good anymore. But I was still pretty impressed at how she looked at 52. She was pretty tight, and she raised under the gun. She had like a hundred, uh, she had a 200K stack, and she raised under the gun almost a min raise. She, this was when we were playing, I think, 500, 1,000. And she made it, uh, not 500, we were playing 5,000, 10,000. And she made it uh, 21,000. So this is a tiny bit more than the min range. Might as well call it a min raise. Well, I'd watched her other raises, and she hadn't done anything like that. So under the gun makes virtually a min raise. What do you think that is? What do you think that is from a woman who plays pretty tight and for the first time has put a min raise under the gun? <laughs> what does that sound like? Oh, aces, doesn't it? Well, that's what I thought. So I said to myself, okay, well, I think I'm probably mucking my hand here from the small blind, even if it's one I normally call, because I think I'm facing aces, or maybe I'll call and see what I flop, and if I can beat aces, then I'll continue, otherwise I fold. That's a pretty good plan, right? I've done that before when I see someone with aces, much like the guy with the sevens earlier, who I ended when I had the sevens earlier, and I ended up uh, busting him. I look at my hand in the small blind after it folded to me, 
and I see Ace-King. And I had like a mental lapse. The Ace-King mesmerized me. And I thought, oh, Ace-King. Well, she doesn't really have enough in her stack to really have post-flop play with her. So if I three-bet her here with the Ace-King... Well, then what am I going to do post-flop? Because I may still be ahead of her. But then I'll be pot committed. So, well, the only thing that makes sense to do here is go all in. So I go all in. And, like, right when I do this, like, right when I put the chips in, I thought, moron. Like, I've seen this to myself, not her. I've seen it in my head, moron. Because I'm like, wait a minute. I forgot that, that I just put her on something like aces. So why am I doing this? Now, what would be an interesting question is what is the right move? Because if you think she has aces... And you have ace-king. It's one thing if you have sevens, where you, you know if you flop a seven, you're gold. If you have ace-king, what are you looking for? Aside from uh, ten-queen-jack or two kings in the board, what are you looking for with ace-king to where you will feel comfortable putting in anything post-flop if you think you're against aces? So I will say that you do have to really think about what you want to do in that spot. And I should have like sat there and thought for a bit longer and maybe even considered folding it. Or maybe just flatted that small raise and then just played super passively. And if it, she was really giving an indication like she hit, then just check fold. But I went all in. And then she snaps. And that's when I really felt dumb. And I said, oh boy, aces, huh? And she said, no, I turned over kings. Okay, same thing. Same concept. You don't want to raise too much under the gun, you know, because you don't want to make people fold, right? So you got to raise small under the gun because you got to get people in, right? No, because if you're not normally raising for that under the gun, you're going to tip yourself off that you're raising with aces or kings. And if you don't have someone doing something stupid in the small blind like me, then people are going to not give you the action you want. But I stupidly gave her the action she wanted, even though I knew what she had. That was the dumbest move I made in the whole tournament. I just kind of had a mental lapse. I got confused for the moment. I saw my ace-king and all I could think about was her stack size, not what I had just observed and said to myself. So, I didn't get my ace. I mean, at least I was in better shape than I thought I was, because against aces, you're really fucked. Against kings, you have a chance, but I did not get that ace, so that shaved off 200k. But after I chunked off that 200k, I still had three-something left. And I, I was a man on a mission at that point. I said, I am not going to let this get me down. I'm not going to let this piss me off. I'm not going to make this, you know, make stupid moves or tilt anything off here. Nor am I going to go hide in my shell like a hermit crab and just hope I hit something big to get my chips back. No, I'm going to take the matter into my own hands, bear down, and start finding ways to get these chips back. And I did, and I did a great job of it. I did a great job of stealing my way into pot after pot after pot. I won a number of hands there just through smart aggression. And I kept running it back, and all of a sudden, I'm, I'm back to where I was before. Then I kept going further, and as I said, I went to dinner with a 665. So that ace-king hand was before dinner. I kind of got ahead of myself. So I go to dinner. I felt good. That even after that blunder, I got it back plus more. I was 1.6 times average. And I was just feeling so good with how I was handling this field. I was feeling so good with the style I had developed that I didn't have coming into it. 
a style that wasn't working for the first two bullets. I will admit I was kind of confused and uh, uncomfortable with how to deal with a lot of the stuff I was seeing there. And then I just, not only was I hitting well, but I was also seeing everything well. I was understanding how to play and how not to play. And I was picturing myself running very deep. Maybe I would get between 18th and 26th place and have enough of a cash there to break the million-dollar cash mark lifetime, which I would have. I'm very close to it. Maybe I would get to the final table. Maybe I would win first place, which is almost $700,000. These were realistic thoughts because, again, I wasn't against No Limit Tournament Wizards. I wasn't against Alex Foxen types there. I was against mostly recreational players over 50. And I had a stack. So I was at dinner feeling good. I didn't eat. I just relaxed in my room. And for the first half hour after dinner, it was fine. In fact, I ran it up close to 800K. Then I lost a small pot or two, but no big deal. I still had about 700. Then I got pocket queens under the gun. And I raised. I opened to 45K. We were playing, uh, I tweeted we were playing 1530, 15K, 30K. We weren't, it was 10-15. I don't know why I wrote that. But we were playing 10K, 15K. Folded to the big blind who called. The flop, 10 diamonds, 7 diamonds, 5 of hearts. I had the queen of diamonds, by the way. 10-5-7 with 2 diamonds. Instantly, he says, all in. And he's got like 300K or so. A little bit more, like 310. I think he had 270 left. I think he called my 45 pre and then had 270 left. So I think he put in 270 more, 275 more. So I snapped him. The second the flop came out, he said all in. I snapped him. Why did I snap him? Well, first of all, I'm uh, pretty much committed given his stack size and that if he likes anything there, he's going all in. But more importantly, he was so fast with that, it kind of seemed like he wanted me to fold. And he did because all he had was a flush draw. Ace, jack of diamonds. Now, he had an overcard, too. But that's why he went all in so fast, because he wanted it to be intimidating. So I didn't even take a second to think. When he went instant all in, I thought, I'm ahead. Snap call. And I was right. Not that it's hard to call queens in that spot, but I was saying I didn't even have to think about it. So I'm thinking to myself, no diamond, no diamond, no diamond. Well, the good news, no diamond. No diamond on the turn or river. The bad news, an ace of spades on the turn. And my heart sank. River was blank. And I'm back down to 395k. That doesn't sound bad. I've still got a little bit below average. Like, I'm just about average. But for whatever reason, I didn't feel the same way as I did after I lost the ace-king hand. Which is weird, because with the ace-king hand, I made a mistake. Here, I played it extremely standard. I did the right thing. He did too, and nothing wrong with the guy that, you know, the way he played this, but it's just, I was destined to lose there, get nearly half my stack shaved off. But I felt so demoralized, and I kind of felt at that moment that I'm just going to lose. I know it's not good to think that way. I know I shouldn't engage in such negative thinking, but I couldn't help it. And it's funny because after the Ace King, I thought, I'm going to get this back. I'm going to make something of this. I'm not going to let this defeat me. And I didn't. And I came back. This time I just, I was deflated. 
I didn't tilt off or anything. But then, uh, remember, the blinds are pretty big, so I'm just getting trash, and uh, I'm getting blinded down. So now I'm down to 310K, and I've got to put 30 in for the big blind, 15 plus 15, 15 being the ante. So I've got 280K in front of me. And a guy opens in middle position, different person, but guy opens in middle position, has kind of a weird play style, limps. Then we get two more limpers. Then we get, uh, uh, sorry, th- three more limpers. We have three more limpers. Then we have the small blind limping. And I look down at my ace tendon of diamonds in the big blind. And I look at all those limpers around me, starting from middle position. It's not like an early position limp where they can be fairly strong. This is a middle position limp where it's a limp, 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 limp. And I think for a moment, wait a minute. I'm not a big squeeze from the big blind guy, but what's the chances that someone can beat ace 10 of diamonds right now? And if they can, will they really call? Like, what if they got fours? Are they going to call? Probably not. So what am I worried about calling me here? Either someone's going to call with something that's racing me. Maybe, you know, someone's going to call with sevens or sixes or eights, maybe. But I don't see anything calling that's crushing me here. And I think this is a very good chance everyone just lays it down. But look at all these 15Ks, these beautiful 15Ks that are sitting here, plus what's already there from the blinds in my ante. I have 280 sitting in front of me. And rather than trying to hit the flop here and not get outrun by somebody else here, why not just put it in right now? I'm probably ahead. At worst, I'm racing. And the likelihood is everyone's going to fold and I'll pick up another 100K or so, which will be a big deal at this point, given what I have. So I said, yeah, it makes sense. I'm all in. And the original limper snap calls me. The others quickly fold. Uh-oh. Yep. The original limper limped from middle position with jacks. <laughs> jacks. He limped from middle position with jacks. Does that make any sense? It's not even like there were a lot of people who were raising over open limpers. It was happening sometimes, but it wasn't like it was guaranteed that some aggro kid's going to raise over him. This is a, a seniors event. When you start limping, it's a limp fist. Limp, 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 limp. You don't want to do that with jacks. Jacks don't play well against multiple people. Because if you don't flop a set of jacks, there's a way you can totally get fucked by multiple people. And yet it's hard to lay your hand down. It's very hard to read where you are. It's a very big mistake to limp with jacks middle position. But that's what he did. Worked out, though, because he got to run it out with ace-10. Board was 5-6-8. Wasn't good, obviously. Turn was a 7, which actually wasn't bad because it gave me some additional outs. Now, if a 4 ran off, I'd chop, which I'd be very happy to do. A 9 were to run off now, I would win, which I couldn't win with before. And, of course, I still have the ace to win with. But another 5 in the river... And I was set packing. 263rd place for 4112 dollars. So after it was all said and done, I made eleven hundred twelve dollars through all of this. Not particularly exciting. Better than losing. But I kind of felt like I had my chance and I couldn't do it. 
I felt like this was my opportunity. And I wasn't going to have that opportunity for another year. <sighs> you know, I had I had the stack that I was looking for. I kept saying, if I could just get a stack in this event, then I can take care of business here. And I was. But one was a cooler. I wouldn't call it a beat. You know, it's just... You know, I queens against a flush draw with one overcard, which caught me. I was the favorite, but I wasn't a massive favorite. So, so yeah, that one just kind of fell the wrong way. That'll happen in tournament poker, especially later stages. The other one, <laughs> guy freaking limps, limps with jacks and gets rewarded for it because uh, I happened to pick that moment to squeeze. And what was sad about it, had I just checked, I would have missed that flop and check folded. And that would have been that, and that would have been a very unmemorable hand. But that was what busted me. That was the only squeeze move I did the entire tournament, by the way. It's not like I was recklessly doing that and they finally caught me. So I will be back next year for the seniors event. Definitely something that I did enjoy playing despite all my ups and downs. When it was all said and done, I was profitable, though not wildly profitable. And I will know much better what to expect coming in to the 2023 version of the event when I'm older and wiser as a 51-year-old. If you have any questions about this event for the future, feel free to text me and ask me. Because yeah, I'll give you some tips. I'll give you my observations. I already gave you some here. Maybe you'll want to do this closer to when the event goes next year. If you want to ask me about the Super Seniors, you can, but obviously I have no experience there. I, I have a feeling it plays somewhat differently. You guys will be happy. I actually tried to find this out. There was a guy who was over 60 who had played it previously, and I tried to ask him to describe it compared to this event so I could come back and report to you guys what that one's like. Because we have some over 60 listeners. We have a lot, actually. But he, he wasn't very descriptive. Like He wasn't good at describing how it was different, so I gave up. Because I wasn't asking for myself. I'm not going to be there for 10 more years. I have a feeling that people playing with me at the, at the last table I was at before I busted probably thought I was a jerk by the time I left because it was a very talkative and social table and I was talking with them and getting along very well with everybody but once I took that beat with the queens I just went into my shell and didn't want to talk anymore and whenever someone tried to talk to me I would give very uh, guttural quick responses because I just didn't want to talk anymore I was just done I was frustrated. And then when I busted, <laughs> and like that woman, oh, it was nice playing with you, and I just muttered something and walked away. So they probably thought, what a sore loser, what an asshole. But I was just, I was in a bad mood over what happened there. I was having my daydreams about being at that final table. And I had to walk away with 263rd place paying 4K. But I know that's tournament poker. Like, it's a giant field. So the problem with the giant field is you have to get very lucky to make that final table. And you just need a ton of luck to get there. You're not going to be able to will your way there. You really need the cards. And I had the cards for a while, but eventually they turned on me, as they often do in these long, big field events. So I'm not so arrogant going, oh, I could have easily beaten 7,000 entries. No, I, no, that's very hard to do. It was just disappointing that it ended on me. And so abruptly. And yeah, I, I kind of thought about that one for a while. Like, I, some of these I'll bust and I'll be 
frustrated for the moment and then an hour later like i'm not even thinking of it this one was kind of sticking with me still is a little bit while i was at the event by the way and i think he's listening now uh, a listener brought me something that was very nice i really appreciate the poker fraud alert listener base I, I've really met some very nice people and people who are appreciative of this show and, and want to show me. And I, whenever something is done for me, I always appreciate it, whether it's something that I ask if anyone can help with or something that someone just voluntarily does. Because I, I don't feel any of you owe me anything. Just If you're listening, I'm happy with that. Even if you never interact with me, and never do anything for me. That's great. I'm, you know, I'm happy to have you guys listening. And I'm, I'm not just saying that to sound good. I, I really think that. I don't think anyone owes me anything, unless, yeah, you know, we have an agreement where they owe me. But just in general, people in life just don't owe me things. So listeners here do not owe me anything for giving them entertainment. But this guy was saying that he wants to bring me a coffee in the morning because it was a 10 a.m. event. And I said, well, I actually bring my own drinks to the event, which I do. I bring them in a backpack. And I also don't drink coffee. But I said, if you really want to bring me something, I do like kind of like breakfast pastries, like coffee cake, stuff like that. So I expected that he'd go to Starbucks or something and buy a coffee cake and bring it over to me. And when I say expected, I don't mean this was his obligation to do. I meant like he seemed to really want to br- bring me something as a token of his appreciation for being a regular listener. So I yeah, I just gave him some guidance of what I'd uh, prefer to get. Like coffee I would have to throw in the trash because I don't drink coffee. So he brings me not just one coffee cake. He brings me three boxes of these pastries. Three boxes. I still have plenty left over. I've been I've been eating them, but you know, there's only so much I can eat of those, but I've been eating them. Hopefully they stay good for a while. But I appreciate that very much. And uh, during one of the breaks, I brought them up to my room and still have them. In fact, I'm looking at him right now. So I appreciate that. I thank him. I thank uh, Matt the Rat, who brings me stuff from Canada every year. He brings these uh, maple cookies, which Benjamin actually really loves. When Ben saw them, he goes, oh, I love those cookies. I forgot about those. And he's, he, he ate a ton of them when he saw they were here. I actually took them back with me to Vegas so he doesn't just eat up the whole box when I'm gone. Otherwise, he would. Matt brought me two boxes. The first box is gone. And Matt also brought uh, maple syrup, real maple syrup from Canada. So I appreciate that Matt does this uh, every time I see him. And thank you to Matt for that. And, you know, there's just uh, a lot of good and nice people that I've met from the show. Just people who have listened and have enjoyed listening to the show and have uh, just wanted to meet me because they hear me every week. And sometimes they want they want to do something nice because they have spent all these hours listening to me. And that's very good, and I appreciate it. So thank you. And uh, his name is Heath. Very nice guy. So very nice of him. I think he's listening right now. So I wanted to throw that in there. I can't even blame his pastries for me busting because I was running well shortly after he brought me those pastries. I think I had just lost something, but I rarely bought them, brought them over to me. I, I was winning again, so um, I want to thank him for that. But let's move on. Let's stop talking about me. I like to start off these World Series topics with something about myself, because this is my show here, and I want people to uh, 
listen to my experiences at the World Series. Because who else is going to listen? If I tell all these bad beat stories to people in the hallway, they're going to run away screaming. I, ca- I guess I can't say you're stuck, because if you're listening to the archives, which most of you, you can just fast forward it. But let's get to something which affected a lot of people. In fact, thousands of people. In fact, even me. Even though I, I wasn't thinking I would be affected, I was, because it had to do with an event I didn't play. This is about the Colossus event. Now, let me tell you the history of the World Series Colossus event, because it has kind of evolved over the years. So the Colossus started out as the original low buy-in event for the World Series of Poker. It began in 2015. The champion that year was Cord Garcia. We've talked about him since on this show. He's been uh, kind of involved in some scandals, some of which were his fault, some of which were not his fault, where he was a victim, but whatever. We're not going to get into all that. But I played with him once. He was a nice guy when I played with him. But anyway, Cord Garcia won the original Colossus, young guy, especially back in 2015. And it was an incredibly successful event because this was a change at the World Series where they were trying to have low buy-in events that would have a massive field. And it was very successful. They got 22,734 entries in this event. Over 22,000. Now, prior to that, the most entries they ever had in a World Series tournament was the main event of 06, which got 8773, which is still a record, by the way. There's some people predicting it might be broken this year, but we'll see. But 8773 entered in 2006 main event, and they had not had more than that in any World Series event of any buy-in until the Colossus event in 2015, which had over 22,000. Now, keep in mind, a lot of these were rebuys, but still, they had 22,374 entries. That's a lot. So, obviously, they're going to hold that again. So, they held it again in 16, in 17, in 18, and it was always at the beginning of the series. It was like the first major tournament of the series. It wasn't the first tournament. It was the first major tournament that was going to have a large field, and it would take place on a weekend, to start on a weekend. In 2019, they decided that uh, they're going to change the Colossus. So what they ended up doing in 2019 was the Colossus became the Big 50. And the Big 50 was in celebration of the 50th year of the World Series of Poker. And you may say, wait a minute. No, it wasn't. The World Series didn't begin in 1969. Ah, but you're forgetting. If it began in 1970, this is the 50th event. It wasn't 50 years since the first one, but it was the 50th, because in 1970 it was the first, in 1971 it was the second, and so on. So you get to 2019, that was the 50th World Series of Poker, which makes this the 53rd World Series of Poker. So, instead of calling it the Colossus that year, they called it the Big 50, and the gimmick on that one was that you would not pay any rake for your first entry. Now, after your first entry, you'd pay rake, but your entire $500 entry would go into the prize pool. The Colossus was previously a $565 buy-in event, where the 65 was the rake, which was 13%, pretty steep. Here, you would just pay an even 500 in the Big 50, 
and then none of that would go to rake. But if you rebought for 500, then they would take whatever percentage out for the rake. I only bought in once that year. I ran very well, and I finished among the day one ship leaders. Unfortunately, my luck wasn't that great after that. I did cash. I finished a 666th place out of a record field of 28,000-something. So it even beat the 2015 Colossus. So again, that was one of those cases where so many entries, it's just so hard to run well long enough to end up winning. So I ran great the first day, and after that, not so great. Anyway, Colossus still existed. They didn't do away with Colossus. They just moved Colossus down in the schedule to later in the series, and it was not even any longer a $500 buy-in. It was like a 360 buy-in or something weird like that. So it was kind of Colossus in name only at that point. That wasn't even the major tournament that was going to have a massive field. And it's stayed that way ever since. They didn't have a uh, 2020 series, as you guys know. But in uh, 2021, they had the Colossus, and it was not a big deal. And even in 2019, it wasn't a big deal. For example, the 2021 event had uh, fewer than 10,000 entries. So it's still a lot. They had uh, 9,399 entries. So compare that to 2015, when it got 22,000-something. And it's not because people don't want to play anymore. It's because they had new events for the $500 type tournament at the beginning of the series. So it was no longer called the Big 50 either in 2021. They had another name for it, which I'm forgetting right now what that was called. And in 2022, that was called the Housewarming, which I bet will change name again because the Housewarming was in reference to this being the first year at Bally's in Paris. But Colossus still exists, and it still gets a pretty good field. It just doesn't get what it used to. Anyway, why am I telling you all this? Why, why does the Colossus matter? I was talking about stuff in 2015, 2016, 2019. Why are we talking about this in June of 2022? Did I play the Colossus? No. Did I plan to play the Colossus? No. And I'll tell you why. It's too small. And I'm not being arrogant here. When I say it's too small, I mean that the field is so huge that I'd have to spend a lot of time playing a $400 event, which is what it is now. It's a $400 event. I'd have to spend a lot of time playing a $400 event to get anything beyond a three-figure payout. It's just not worth it to me. I'd rather spend my time playing other forms of poker that's for better stakes. Yeah, yeah, I could get super lucky and make the final table and make a lot of money, but that's just so hard to do. So the very likely outcome, whether it goes well or poorly for me, would be either losing or spending a lot of time to make a little bit of money. It just isn't appealing to me. So I didn't enter the Colossus. If you did and you like it, great, but I'm just saying that that's why I don't play the Colossus. And in fact, the only reason I played the Big 50 was because of the no-rake gimmick, and I was there anyway for the 08 event that was going to start right after, so I said, oh, you know, I'll do it, whatever. But I don't plan to enter any of these type of events at the World Series now or in the future. So that's why I didn't play. I could have played. I could have played after I busted day two of the seniors. I could have uh, played today, in fact. But why am I talking about it? I still haven't answered that question. Well... Somebody asked me in a text, can you say anything nice about Caesars? 
this wasn't even like a Caesars fanboy. It was someone saying that I always talk about their fail, but given how hard it is to run something as huge as the World Series, given that it's such a large logistical undertaking, which it is, that can't I find anything nice to say? Well, okay. Yes, I can. In fact, I have before, but I will say it again. They have run this one pretty well, especially given that it's in a new venue and there's going to be bugs with that. So considering that it's in a new place, they've done an incredible job. I think I'm, I'm very impressed with how they have brought the new venue into it without a lot of growing pains. They've done a lot better than I expected with that. I have some criticisms, and we're going to get to some of those shortly. But up until what I witnessed with the Colossus, I hadn't seen any major Caesars fails. The closest I had seen, well, I mean, unless you want to talk about that stupid dealer fail where she collected all the chips on the table, but that was one dealer. I'm not going to blame them for one dealer. I'm talking about organizationally. So the biggest fail I had seen was really the World Series of Poker Cafe and the food options again, which we will talk about later in the show. But as far as the World Series itself was running, I thought they were doing a great job. And I was also thinking in my mind, this is not going to last. Much like when you are sitting at a poker table and just running really hot and you go, this would be great if it was always this way when I play poker, but I know this is not going to last. I know soon enough I'm going to take a bad beat or run into a cooler situation. I know it's coming. That's how I felt about Caesars. I felt that they've run too well this series. I think that at some point a major Caesars fail is going to occur, and I'm just going to slap my forehead with a big face palm at how stupid they were with some kind of boneheaded mistake. Even though it hasn't happened yet, I thought to myself. We're weeks into the series and they haven't made any really boneheaded mistakes, but I know one has to be coming because they're Caesars and it's in their nature. It is in their nature to fail. So I cannot picture they can go an entire seven-week series without a major fail that was avoidable. And I say that was avoidable because that's very important. I'm not talking about things that they couldn't have seen coming that blindside them. I'm talking about things that were obvious that should never have happened. And we see that every year at the World Series, but we hadn't seen it yet. I was very proud of them, but I said, I know it's going to come. Well, it happened right in front of my face. Right in front of my face. Let's go back to my prior segment about the seniors event. And I talked about that weird delay right after we hit the money. We played like 20 more minutes and then bang, we're waiting, waiting, waiting. We waited like more than half an hour without playing a hand. At first, they justified it that there were a lot of people busting right after the bubble burst, so they had to process these people. They had to get to them, and they just didn't have enough floor people to get to people to bring them over to be processed, and that there's a big backlog, and they've got to catch up. Okay, that was believable. It was a big event. There were tons of people, and of course, a lot of short stacks that shipped it in when the bubble burst, and they busted. So, I didn't question it, nor did anybody else. And in fact, I had seen events paused before for a few minutes when this would occur. But when the pause became 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 25 minutes, I go, what the fuck is going on here? This could not be to process these people because they don't have to do full processing of their cash out or anything. They just got to give them a card showing what place they are and walk them over to the place to be processed. And in fact, where they're being processed, it doesn't matter if there's a long line. In fact, at the 
Big 50, which had 28,000 entries, four times what the seniors had. There was a tremendous line to be processed, but they never had to to pause the event because they were still able to get over there and give these people their little cards, showing them what place they were. And then they just sent them over to the line where they had to wait. So I'm thinking, what is the holdup here? Well, it was not about having to process these people. Or if it was, that was not the main reason. The main reason was that some genius at the World Series scheduled the first day of the Colossus event to be at the exact day and the exact time as day two of the massive seniors event. Whoops. They didn't have the space for this. Remember, 1,446 people were coming back for day two of the seniors event. And at the exact same time, they were trying to run day 1A of Colossus. Oops! You don't have the space for that, guys. And you know they're going to say, oh, well, we didn't expect this kind of response for the seniors event. You know, we got 7188 entries this year, and we only got 5200-something back in uh, 2021. Yeah, back in 2021, there was Delta out there, which was just ravaging old people. That's why the seniors didn't show up in huge numbers. It's been a growing event every year, and it took a step back in 2021 because of COVID. But now the seniors aren't as worried because Omicron is much less deadly, and a lot more people have had it. So a lot of people aren't even afraid of getting it because they already had it, like me. This is not the same thing. I could have predicted very easily that they're going to smash the record for the seniors event. In fact, other events have already been smashing records. But you can say, well, when they wrote the schedule up, they didn't know if it's going to smash records. But I think they should have. They definitely should have. But even if you want to say it's going to draw similar to what it did in 2021... That's still going to create a problem because you're still going to have a lot of people coming back. We had about a fifth of the field coming back for day two. So if you take a fifth of the field from 2021, you still have like over a thousand people. So does it really matter if we're getting a thousand something versus 1400 something? It matters somewhat, but it's still a lot of people coming back. And they had to expect they were going to get more this year simply because... People are starting to return to their lives, just living with COVID, just dealing with it being out there. And the fact that Omicron is 10 times less deadly than Delta was, Delta was the variant back in October, Delta is not the variant now. So old people are much more willing to go out and risk it now. Didn't surprise me at all we got a record field. Apparently it surprised the World Series. They didn't have room. People have asked, maybe as we discussed it at the table, in fact, what could they have done? Maybe start the Colossus an hour later or two hours later, or maybe start the seniors restart an hour or two later? And I said, no, that's not the answer. That would have helped some, but not as much as they needed. The answer would have been start the seniors one day earlier than you did. Because instead of coming back on day three, on day two and having Colossus at the same time, you're coming back with day three seniors and Colossus at the same time. Fewer than 200 people returned to day three. I did not return to day three. And I made 263rd place out of 7188. 
So fewer than 200 people are not going to take up a ton of room. Then you can have your Colossus event and not worry. Then you can take up both Paris and Bally's with this. But not with 1,400-something. So what occurred? Well, a few things. First of all, they simply didn't have room to seat everybody. So they made an announcement with people milling around the room. They made announcement after announcement that the Colossus event has simply been delayed. (laughs) Sorry, guys. Thanks for showing up at 10 in the morning, but yeah, you can't play. Go back out and twiddle your thumbs. We're going to try to start in 45 minutes. (laughs) And then they didn't even start in 45 minutes. I think they started at 1130. I think they started 90 minutes late. So the Colossus event was delayed by, I believe, 90 minutes when the whole thing was said and done. But wait, there's more. You may say, well, okay, these people had to wait. kind of sucks, but, you know, it's not the worst thing in the world. No, 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 no. There was something much worse. One thing they have not done well, this World Series, is late registration. I don't know what's wrong this year, but late registration, this is if you buy in after the event has started. You will sometimes get assigned a table. And you will sometimes get assigned what's called a late table, which they don't explain, by the way. It just says, like, late registration blue, and you're supposed to know what that means. And sometimes the table's not where you expect. So what you have to do is you need to go into the appropriate room where it's running and then find this table, which isn't very conspicuous, where they are processing late registrants and then verify your ID and give you chips and then send you to your actual table. But there's very poor signage for it. It's not easy to find. And when you do find it, you see the unfortunate situation of being stuck in a long line of people to get your chips. And it's not super fast because the person has to pull out their ID and they have to show it. And the the dealer has to look at the ticket they have and make sure it's right. And then uh, give them their chips and then draw a seat card and then send it to their table. It doesn't take a tremendous amount of time, but multiply this by a lot of people. You can be standing there for a while. I've already been in some of these lines. And it wasn't like this in previous years. I don't know what's wrong this year, why the late registration thing is so bad and so confusing. That is one thing they did not transition well. They did late registration pretty well at the Rio, and for some reason they're blowing it this year. So that's one criticism I have. But at the Colossus, it was far worse, because I saw this tremendous line. I don't mean a line of 25 people. I don't mean a line of 50 people. I don't mean a line of 100 people. No, 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 no. I don't even mean the line of 200 people or 300 people or 400 people. I saw a line of at least 500 people. These were people who bought in after 10 a.m. Remember, the event didn't even start at 10 a.m. But these people bought in after 10 a.m. And they had to get everything checked and a seat card and everything like that. And even though they started processing them, when 10 a.m. started, I guess, like the, even though the event was delayed, they were processing these as they were waiting for the event to start. Even with that, it was super slow. I mean, can you imagine like waiting with fi- for 500 people ahead of you to have their ID verified and their and to get chips and to get a seat assignment and to have their ticket checked? And there's one person processing it. Can you imagine how long that would take? For example, even if they were to spend 30 seconds on each person, it would take you about four hours to get through that line. That's 30 seconds on each person would be four hours. That's how bad it is when there's a 500-person line. I didn't count people, but I 
estimated it by walking the line. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. I first saw this line when I went on a break on day two of the seniors because they were playing in the same room. They were supposed to play in the same room. I'm like, what the hell is this long line for? And I followed to where it went. But then as we had our tremendous delay, which was because of the Colossus, because they were trying to figure out what they could do with the Colossus, whatever it was, they, they, uh, the, the, the whole delay was a combination of not processing the people who had bust fast enough, plus the whole clusterfuck with Colossus and trying to handle it better. So they just didn't have the staff to deal with this whole thing. That's why we had the delay. They didn't ever admit this, but I figured out what that's what was happening. But and this line stayed for hours and hours and hours like you expect. And these people can't just say, you know what? I'm just not going to play. Well, I guess they can, but you'd have to go unregister. You'd have to go stand in line again at the registration area and unregister. And then you can't play the event. Then you can't just go re-register. You, you do have a right to unregister once. They basically have to do that if they don't want to play. At this point, they've already paid their money. And the only way to get out of this situation is to unregister. Otherwise, you're stuck waiting that really long line. It's not even like a registration line where you go, okay, you know what? I'm not going to stand on a four-hour line. F it. I won't register for this event. You've already registered. You've already spent line. You spent time already in line registering, and then you think you're ready to play, and they say, hey, here's a late registrant line. It's 500 people. Get in the back. Can you imagine? If they started the seniors' event a day earlier, this would not have happened. And this isn't like a hindsight thing where... They go, well, we couldn't have expected these type of crowds. Yes, they could have. Yes, they could have and should have. And all they had to do was space it out properly, and they didn't. So it was just a boneheaded mistake. I I guarantee they won't make this mistake. Well, actually, I won't. I was going to say I I guarantee they won't make this mistake again next year, but they might. They very well might. But usually the Caesars pattern is completely fail in a stupid and obvious way, and then the next year do better. So I think next year they'll do better with this. But boy, was this dumb. It didn't affect me, other than that stupid weight I had sitting there on day two with the seniors. But at least it didn't affect me with the Colossus, because I didn't play it. But boy, what a mess. What a mess, what a fail, and it's really not been covered anywhere. Like, Google it, you won't see talk about this. All right, next we're going to talk about Daniel Negranu. Daniel Negreanu has not been having a good World Series of Poker, to say the least. It's been very, very disappointing for him. You know, you can't always win. doesn't matter how good you are. You're going to have your periods as a tournament pro where you're going to struggle. And, of course, for Daniel, struggling is relative. He'll have some finishes that people would be envious of if they were recreational players or even cash players who just kind of dabble in tournaments like I do. He's had a 33rd, a 16th, a 12th, and a 106th this year at the World Series. I say this year, I mean the series. Now, some of these were small field events, so it's not like some of these deep-sounding finishes were as deep as you might think, but still, let's say I played the World Series and I said, hey, this year I got 33rd, 16th, 12th, and 106th. Well, you wouldn't say I killed it, but you wouldn't say, oh, what a disaster. Like, look at me so far, all I have is a 263rd. So you may say, how could you say Daniel's struggling? Well, he is. First of all, he's down a lot of money. How much money is Daniel down in the 2022 World Series? 
Something like... One million dollars. Yeah, and he's also just bricked a lot of events. He's, remember, he's playing every day. He's not like me. He comes in, plays some days, doesn't play some days, and then goes home, then comes back and plays a few, then goes back. Like on this trip, I'm, I'm playing two events total. I'm counting the seniors as one, even though I entered three times. But I'm playing two events total. That's it. I'm going back. So Daniel's not like that. Daniel's one of these guys who just plays and plays and plays. Some big, some small, but he enters a lot. But all he has to show for it are 33rd, 16th, 12th, and 106th, and he's down over a million. So it's not been a good series. So what does that mean? Well, it's not totally clear what it means in a few ways. First of all, I don't know if he's just been running bad or he's been playing bad or if it's both. Some people have said that Negranu will tilt. I've played with Negranu. I haven't personally seen him tilt. He has a ton of poker talent. And that's how he has been able to be successful all these years. That's how he's been able to adapt over the years when styles have changed. And he really has an excellent ability to read hands. I've seen it in person. So I'm not going to be one of these people going, oh, Negranu's a fish now. He can't handle uh, today's poker. No, no, that's not true. But I have even seen, like, in the not-so-recent past where he would have bad World Series where he really would kind of just tilt off. A good example of this was the 1K with rebuys in 07, which now is 15 years ago, where he entered 48 times and didn't cash. 48 times he entered and did not cash. Now you can say, well, it's 1K each time and he had a lot of money, so 48K isn't huge, but it's still 48K and still, how do you enter 48 times and not cash? So I have heard stories of Daniel kind of tilting. That, that he just sometimes loses his cool. And we've seen examples recently on his streams and his, on his vlogs. And we, we've seen signs of Daniel not always being uh, even-tempered, so to speak. He doesn't have the most uh, calm temperament. So what, what does that mean as far as this World Series? I don't know. Like, I can tell you for the first four events I played... And the first two bullets of the seniors. I just ran awful. I didn't tilt it off. I just ran really bad. So I'm only looking at five events, one of which was entered twice. But in those first six attempts, I just didn't even come close and just got smacked out. And if people said, oh, you were playing awful or tilting, I would say, no, I wasn't. I just was uh, running very poorly. I probably wasn't playing my very best because when you're losing every hand, it kind of messes with your mind, but I was not tilting off. So it's very possible he wasn't tilting off, but I have heard from people that he does sometimes tilt when things aren't going well. But let's put that aside. Let's talk about whether this affects him financially. Because even though Negranu's a rich guy, and there's no question about that, does Negranu have enough money to where he can absorb a million-dollar loss at the World Series and just shrug it off as no big deal? Well, maybe because he may not be paying for the majority of these buy-ins. He is the main face of GG Poker, which is a very successful site, and it's very possible that GG Poker is putting him in some or all of these events. Now, definitely this is affecting him, and we're going to discuss something that just happened recently that proves it's affecting him and he's in a very bad mood. But it is possible that he's not taking the financial beating that some of you might think. So if you're a Negranu hater and you're taking delight in his recent struggles, 
and you're wondering, oh, I wonder if he's going to be Busto soon. No, no, he's not. And it's very possible that Gigi has put up these buy-ins, or a big portion of these buy-ins. That doesn't mean it's meaningless money to him, because if they are putting up his buy-ins, they're not just doing it to be nice. This would be part of a compensation package where they're doing this in lieu of giving him cash. That's how a lot of these deals work, where someone's the face of a site, where they're not just giving you money, they're, they're giving you a lot of tournament buy-ins, plus some money, so you can play and represent them. And then if you get on TV or a stream or something, you're wearing their gear and you can give them exposure. And then you keep all everything you win. It's not like a staking deal, but it's a, we'll buy you in and you'll wear our gear deal. So when they are compensating Negranu, let's say they're, most of the compensation is tournament buy-ins, if he is struggling and not cashing very much, then he's not making very much money. The caches he's gotten so far have totaled to nearly $100,000, like about ninety k actually. So again, that sounds like a lot of money, but not when he spent more than a million in buy-ins, or at least GG has spent this. I'm not sure who spent it. It could be a combination. And not when you are expecting it's going to produce much more. When you're living a lifestyle that's expecting that you're going to cash a lot more than that and put that in your pocket and you get 90k that's a big problem so even if gg is buying him in you can understand how he's looking at this going damn it this is the majority of how they pay me and i'm turning it into very little and i do believe he's running very bad i'm not saying he's a fish or playing terribly i'm just i i know he's been running very bad and he's been open about everything happening on his vlog that he does. He does these daily vlogs, and he brings his equipment there to do these vlogs. But what happened uh, recently really drew people's attention even more to his bad 2022 World Series. And in fact, uh, Poker News decided to cover this. I wasn't sure if they would, but they did. They covered uh, the incident when it occurred, but they actually did an article about this. So John Sofin, who is a prolific writer for Poker News, did an article called Runner Runner Bad Beat Tilts Negranu uh, Poker Star is Out of the WSOP 250K Event. So the 250K event was the high roller event. It's called the Super High Roller No Limit Hold'em, and it's uh, event number 50. You could buy in twice, and it's 250K each. Now, I would never consider playing that. In fact, my dad has become kind of a very light fan of poker. And I say very light. He doesn't pay attention to it except during the World Series. But when he's looking for updates on me, then he starts looking at the other events and seeing like who's winning and seeing if there's any names he knows. So he was talking to me about it when I was talking to him about the seniors. This is just right before I had my own fail at the seniors. But this is the, during the day two dinner break, I was talking to him. And he says, oh, at the 250K event, you know, I see Negranu busted again. And it looks like he busted twice. It's like, I was, it was fine. My dad knew more about how the 250K was going than I did. Because I was, I was just thinking about myself. I told him that. I said, I'm not watching that. I'm thinking about my own event, the seniors event here. And uh, that's what I've been paying attention to. I haven't cared about that. I know what's going on, but I wasn't even like, very aware of what was happening there. So, yes, you could enter twice. My dad was shocked that people would spend this type of money to enter poker tournaments. And I said, yeah, that's, it is crazy when you think about it. And I explained that sometimes there's backing deals or people sell pieces or they trade pieces. But still, it, it's 
it's kind of weird to play those type of events. It just I, I can't even relate to it. I've never played an event more than 10k, and I don't see myself doing that. So event number 50, 250k super high roller, uh, super super high roller. Negreanu decided he's going to enter twice. Again, I don't know who's putting out the money. Maybe it's him, maybe it's not, but he entered twice. And he busted the first bullet, and then he entered with half starting stack into uh, day two. So uh, he was already struggling on his second bullet. And then he started doing better, finally. So he was finally starting to feel better. Maybe he can get this 2022 monkey off his back and put a, pull off a big win and kind of a comeback win in the 250K, which, of course, is the highest one he's played so far. So despite coming in with uh, half of starting stack, uh, he started to run better and must have been thinking to himself, all right, well, maybe this has finally happened for me. Except it wasn't. So the blinds are 20K, 40K. And Andrew Robel raised from late position to 90K. So he did a, a 2.25 times open, which is very common these days. By the way, at the seniors event, that wasn't that common. People were doing like 2.5 to 3, sometimes more. But I, I, I was trying to stick to uh, 2.25 to 2.5. But let's get back to this. David Peters then jammed all in with Queen 10 of Spades. So Peters made it 1.5 million after Robel had open raised, which could mean anything in late position. You know, Robel could have complete trash here to try to steal. So Peters jammed over that with 1.5 million. Well, Negranu, who uh, hadn't acted yet, had pocket tens. And he had less than Peters had, but not by that much. I don't know if he had 1.4 million or something like that point. Anyway, he called. And Robel, who wasn't very strong with his hand, uh, quickly tossed it. So the hands were turned over. And Negreanu was happy to see that David Peters did not jam in with a strong hand. In fact, David Peters had a card in common with him. David Peters had Queen 10 of spades. And Negreanu had pocket tens. All right. Very nice. Now, all Negranu has to do is fade the straight, or fade the flush, or fade the queen. So it's not like he's got a lock here, but when you've got tens, you're happy to be up against queen ten. It's much better than being against, like, ace-king, or uh, ace-queen, or ace-jack. Like, those are much tougher to fade than queen ten, when you've got tens. Flop came king nine six. Rainbow. So, all right. You know, that's... uh, not a perfect flop for Negranu, but uh, not bad because it's uh, only one spade on the flop and no queen. So really, he just got to avoid either backdoor spades, a queen, or jack. Well, on the turn, a seven of spades hit. So that's not the best because now they now he's got a spade draw. Well, what hits the r- the river? None other than the three of spades to give David Peters the backdoor flush. And once again, Negranu's out of the event. Well, Negranu was none too happy about this. He stood up and he slammed his vlogging equipment. Remember, he brings his vlogging equipment 
to every tournament so he can vlog during the tournament, slammed it into the table, and uh, chip stacks fell. <laughs> then he got up from the table and threw his tripod and camera at the wall while muttering under his breath unhappily, according to John Sofen of Poker News. He threw his equipment into the freaking wall. <laughs> well, Negranu then realized that maybe he wasn't out yet, because remember, he had a stack very close to what Peters had. So he went back to the table, asked Peters, you have me covered? And the dealer said yes, and then Negranu exited the tournament. Here is the video, which unfortunately you can't see. I really wish right now I had a video show. Well, I don't, but for this moment I do. But you can find this on Poker News' Twitter. This was a tweet they put out on 11.43 a.m. at uh, June 25th of Negranu's Freakout. I'll describe it as I play it. Okay, the boom. You hear that boom? That was him slamming his equipment onto the table. Like, really hard. Like, like he took his equipment and slammed it down with all his strength, so the table shook and, and chip stacks fell. Then he stormed away from the table, and listen to what happens next. That was the slamming of the equipment into the wall. So first he slammed it on the table and shook everybody's stacks down. People were able to stack their chips back up. He didn't, like, ruin anyone's stacks to where they had their chips mixed up. But I guess it could have happened, because he slammed it really hard. But the, ch- the stacks just kind of fell down. People had to restack. And then, not wanting to disrupt the game further, he uh, walked away and slammed his stuff into the wall. <laughs> Let's listen to this again. This is the, the actual sound effects of his equipment first hitting the table, then hitting the wall. <laughs> listen to this again. Kind of a good beat. They should make a rap out of this. Be called the Daniel Negranu busting rap. So he was not happy to say the least. Negranu cashed for. $1.1 million, and he had uh, two third-place finishes in the 2021 World Series. So as we're sitting here towards the end of the series now, it's June 26th. They haven't played on June 26th yet. I guess they played through the 25th. But this has been going since May 31st, and we only have uh, another week and a half or so until the main event begins. So Negranu has really struggled this year with only 90k of cashing with all these events he's entering i mean 500k alone on this event when was the last time he won a bracelet well that was actually in 2013 and that was not a las vegas bracelet the last time he won a bracelet at the vegas world series was 08 it was 14 years ago he's had a number of seconds he's had a lot of final tables he could not get over the hump 
So he was actually saying when they were announcing the move to Paris and Bally's that he's happy to get out of the Rio because he had like a curse there that for the final 12 years he played from 09 to 21, because 20 was skipped, that he did not get a single bracelet. But it's, it's really affecting him here. It is really, really affecting him. There were some mixed opinions on Negranu and his freakout smashing his equipment. I don't know if the equipment actually broke or if it just uh, smashed against the wall and survived. Obviously, he can afford to buy equipment again if he's entering 250K events twice. But there was some debate on Twitter whether this was inappropriate and whether he should know better after being a poker pro for the last 25 plus years or if this is no big deal and people should stop bitching about it. So I've seen really both sets of opinions on this. Most people were kind of just looking at amusement as I was. I was not outraged seeing this. I I can relate somewhat to frustration when you're struggling in tournaments. I mean, I, I was in a bad mood when I busted the seniors event. I was in a bad mood when I lost more than half my stack when that ace spiked the turn. I didn't uh, break any camera equipment or slam the table, but I wasn't playing 250K events either. Will Jaffe was on Negranu's side. He did one of his trademark tough conversations, and he was saying that people should stop being so critical of how people react at the poker table, just let everyone do their own thing and stop judging them so much. Listen to what he had to say. What's up, guys? Um, It's been a minute, but, uh, you know, there's an issue that needs to be addressed, and it's time to have a tough conversation, basically, with anybody that thinks they can tell anybody else how they should behave at the poker table. Because you know what? It's fucking poker, man. It's poker. We're fucking gambling over here. We're not in law school. We're not doctors. We're not lawyers. We're not astronauts. We're fucking DJs gambling in Bally's or Paris or whatever the fuck it is this year. And I'm just so sick of everybody saying, oh, yeah, I, love, I should love the way Garrett Alstein acts at the table. Like, Bro, if I was playing 600, 1200 with Bill Klein and seven other whales, I'd, I'd be, my behavior would be A plus two. Trust me. I'd be asking them about their wineries. How's the pickleball game going? But I'm not playing with those guys. I'm playing with Billy. And Billy manages a restaurant in Poughkeepsie. And every time I win a 60-40 against Billy, he calls me a fucking faggot. So I'm not going to engage in the same small talk, winery-ass bullshit behavior with Billy that I would with Bill. And you shouldn't either. You should do whatever the fuck you want at the poker table. Honestly. Where did this notion come from? We should behave a certain way. We should we should tap the table. Just be Justin Bonomo. You know, nice hand. Nice hand. You got it. No, bro. I don't have 1,700 million in earnings, okay? I'm grinding out here. A lot of us are. And it's just like if you want to smash your selfie stick because some turtleneck master beats you in a big pot in a big tournament, go ahead and smash your selfie stick, bro. Get another one. Just so fucking ridiculous, man. (laughs) Pretty good. Pretty funny. As far as what he said, I know some of this is for comedy purposes, but when he does these, he usually believes what he's saying. He just... uh, I'm sure he writes these out beforehand and comes up with funny things to say, but he usually says something that he mostly believes. So how do I feel about 
the message that Will Jaffe is trying to give us here? Well, I kind of have mixed feelings. I do think that it's okay to understand when people are being frustrated by their results at the table and not judge them every moment that they can't act like emotionless robots when they lose and that some people will take beats better than others, especially if been, uh, they haven't been struggling in a way they haven't in a long time. So, you know, it's understandable that you can give some people space to just act out their frustrations if they're not really hurting anybody. At the same time, you shouldn't be slamming the actual table that people are playing on to where their chip stacks fall down. And you, you shouldn't be throwing things into the wall where everyone's playing. It's, it's kind of jarring. You're sitting at the table, boom, something slams into the wall. Boom, the table shakes. And, and like, it's unpleasant. And it also makes poker look bad because Daniel DeGranu is not Will Jaffe. And he's not me. And he's not you. He is one of the best-known figures in poker, and he should set a good example. And he's not even a Phil Helmuth, who is also super well-known, but at least has the reputation for being a poor loser and a jerk. Negreanu isn't supposed to be a poor loser and a jerk. He's supposed to be one of the better and nicer figures of poker that you're supposed to like. Remember, he's the guy who's so good with the fans, which he is, by the way. But he's the one who's approachable and, and, and friendly and nice to people who want pictures and autographs and someone who's supposed to make the game look good and someone who doesn't get involved in scandals. So, okay, Negreanu will be that guy. Then don't slam shit into the wall. Don't slam tables so hard that they shake and chips fall down. You may feel like doing that, but don't do it. There's been times when I have, like, been really frustrated and like I'll take a chip stack like let's say I'm at a cash game and I just take another beat and I've just lost another rack of chips so I will sometimes like take a rack and just kind of toss it over to an empty table in kind of a frustrated fashion I don't like spike it down to where it bounces and might hit someone I mean like I've just kind of tossed it over the next table kind of in frustration when I've taken a beat that uh, makes it where I don't need that rack anymore because those chips are gone I'll admit I've been guilty of that at times but i never have created a scene to where people are worried like at the moment like wow this guy's going off like wow he's making the whole table shake or he's throwing shit against the wall like i i've never no matter how fresh i've been i've never like just gone off like a complete psycho and i've seen others do this i've seen others just slamming the table and just going crazy but these are usually recreational players or they're guys who are known to be big assholes. Someone like Negranu, I really haven't seen do this before. We've seen Negranu himself do this during an online tournament at home where he's, he's like, oh, I'm just going to fucking smash this laptop, and he almost punched his laptop. But at least he's at home with just his wife and his dog. When you were at the poker table, a physical poker table in the poker room at the World Series of Poker, you, you shouldn't do things like this. No matter how frustrated you are. So... He does deserve some criticism, especially because of what a visible figure he is and how he represents poker to a lot of fans of the game. You don't want this example being set when you're supposed to be one of the good guys of the game. But at the same time, I I know that there's a lot of people on Twitter just looking for things to criticize and things to mock. And there is some jealousy there because Negranu has had a lot of success. He has a lot of fame. He has these uh, endorsement deals with with 
poker stars and then GG. He's married to a pretty wife. So you, you can see where some people are jealous of him and want to find reasons to feel su- superior to him. And they can say, well, at least I'm not down 1.1 million in the World Series. At least I'm not slamming shit into the table and against the wall. Like, you can see these people sometimes even take pleasure watching him have these moments. But that's also why you don't have them, if you're in his position. He still has time to turn it around. Like, what if he had a great main event run? Or if he has some wins towards the end of the series? Maybe when the whole thing's said and done, this won't be that bad of a series, but it's possible it'll still suck. It's possible he'll never really really recover. It's possible he can't even play with confidence right now. So we will see what happens. Really one of his worst series ever, though. Now it is time to talk about the drama with K.L. Clayton and Kitty Quo. This is a really weird story. Like, there's a lot of dumb controversies in poker, but... This one is, I think, pretty dumb. (laughs) This is just a strange controversy you wouldn't expect. In fact, it involves someone you wouldn't expect to be part of controversy. K.L. Clayton is very well-liked in poker. He has a condition called spinal muscular atrophy. This was discovered when he was a little kid. And from that point, it was taking its toll on him pretty severely. Before he was an adult, he was a quadriplegic. He could not move anything below the neck. The only movement he had below the neck was a little bit of movement in his fingers, which was just enough to allow him to control his wheelchair. But other than that, his body can't move below the neck. That's a pretty horrible way to live, right? Like, whatever problems you might have, and I might have, at least you're not uh, unable to move below the neck. I mean, they just seem horrendous to me, and I feel for anyone in that position. And this isn't something he did to himself. This was uh, just a condition that he was born with, and it took its toll on him. I don't know how much this is going to affect his life expectancy, but, I mean, it's got to be pretty tough. And... It is an inspiring story that K.L. Clayton was able to become a poker pro despite this tremendous disability. So he is a winning poker player, and uh, he's actually able to play poker through the help of assistants who will sit next to him and do the actual motions of the cards and chips by telling him what he has, and then he tells them what to do. Usually the assistant who is with him is his dad, but I have seen uh, Veronica Brill assist him before. In fact, she's out here for the World Series. I've seen her around, and I've seen her actually sitting and helping him. They've been friends for several years. In fact, Veronica arranged a fundraiser, which was successful, to get him a special van that obviously he wouldn't be driving, but at least it was a van that he could wheel himself into and then easily be driven around places. Because it's not so simple when you've got a chair that you're kind of permanently in. It's not like you just step out of the chair and step back into the chair. Uh, to, to have a van that can accommodate his chair where he can wheel into it and wheel back out. So they ro- raised money for this uh, special van 
through a fundraiser that Veronica directed, and now he has that van. So that was one of the heartwarming poker stories of recent years. Also, Daniel Negreanu did something very nice five years ago and bought Clayton into the 2017 WSP main event. That was when people first became aware of him. He also is generally well-liked. He hasn't been in controversy before. He tweets a lot. I'm not sure how he tweets. I'm not sure how he operates Twitter, given that he, I don't think, has enough use of his fingers to type. Maybe he does, but probably some kind of voice thing. Maybe someone holds up the phone for him. I don't know. But he does tweet fairly often. On Twitter, he's highhands89, exactly as it sounds, highhands89. I will say that his good reputation and lack of drama has partially something to do with the fact that he's severely disabled and who's ever going to pick on him. You know, it's one thing to pick on me on Twitter or to pick on a major figure like Daniel Negreanu. It's another thing to pick on a guy who is a quadriplegic. You look like a complete asshole if you do that. So I don't think there's a lot of trolls that want to harass the guy. He actually has gotten some troll messages before that he's actually posted screenshots of, which are pretty awful. Just really insensitive dicks who have sent him nasty things before based upon his uh, disability. But it doesn't happen often. And no one who's got any kind of uh, name in the poker world, even a small name, is ever going to do that. It would only be like burner accounts that would ever do that because... uh, Anyone who attached this to the real name would get clobbered by Poker Twitter and become a pariah for you know, writing those type of things to a disabled guy, a severely disabled guy. So anyway, uh, Cleeton is well-liked and has been since people became aware of him. Kitty Quo, who's the other person involved in this controversy, is very, very different. She is not disabled in any way. And... There is a rumor that she comes from a lot of family money. She's supposedly a poker pro, but some have said that she's not a winning poker pro and that really she's just spending family money that her parents give to her. I don't know if that's true. I haven't kept track of her results, and I don't know how much money her family has, but I've heard this from a lot of people. But what she's best known for is her almost comically stereotypical Twitter account where she writes in broken English and behaves almost exactly what you'd expect of a stereotype of a fresh-off-the-boat Asian woman. In fact, it's so much like this that at first I thought her account was a parody on Twitter, but it actually wasn't. This was really her, and she was really just writing out her own thoughts that just happened to exactly match up with an Asian woman uh, who speaks broken English stereotype. Not just the way she speaks, but also like the type of stuff she writes. Like It's almost like... Uh, an Asian caricature from Family Guy or something. You can find her on Twitter at Kitty Quo Poker, and Quo is spelled K-U-O, Kitty Quo Poker. And I've been following her for a while and kind of chuckling at her tweets. She was married to some white dude named Russell for a while, who's also a poker player, and then they got a divorce not too long ago. And people were laughing at her tweets about happening to end up at the same table as him and uh, and her remarks on that. Uh, but this is a tweet of hers that was kind of typical of like what she'll write back in uh, 2019, January 2019, when she was with her husband still. She tweeted, best gift for husband is working hard my ass, but my tiny Asia body need work. 
so hard to get there working at gym, then play 2 p.m. main event Saturday and 810 shootout. I am good at shootout event. <laughs> I mean, that that's kind of a funny tweet. <laughs> best gift for husband is working hard my ass, saying that the best gift for her husband is working hard on how her ass looks. But my tiny Asia body need to work so hard to get there. It's hard to get a nice ass for her husband because she's got a tiny Asia body. These these are her words, not mine. This is her public Twitter from January 19th, 2019. And then she posted pictures of herself working out in leggings, including one sticking out her ass as much as she could from her tiny Asia body. So she tweeted stuff like this all the time. I thought it was kind of funny. But people, like, they didn't know how to react to her. For the most part, they were kind of just chuckling and uh, there was not like a lot of controversy with her but occasionally she would tweet things that would piss people off and i'll get to that shortly but none as much as what just happened this past week so the controversy with kl clinton you may wonder what it could possibly be between someone like kitty quo and kl clinton like how could they be in a fight but i'll tell you they were both at the world series of poker 5k no limit six max event which to be honest is a very tough field i wouldn't play that event it's just too many good players in that event there's, there's not a lot of fish to enter 5k no limit six max events some people think the higher the buy-in the tougher the event that's not always true like the 10k main event has a way easier field than the 5k no limit six max even though they're both no limit hold'em it's just a tremendous difference in skill level Kale Clayton requires an assistant to play live, as you know, from what I just told you. That's usually his dad. The card rooms allow this. The card rooms do not say, oh, look, you, you have to be able to handle your own stuff or you can't play. They do make allowances for disabled people. Back in the 2000s, you may have seen on TV Hal Lubarski, who was blind, and he had an assistant that would look at the cards and then whisper to him what they were and then... Lubashki would uh, say what he wants to do, and the assistant would uh, act for him. Well, similarly, K.L. Clayton, who can see but can't uh, operate the chips or the cards, he has his assistant, again, as I said, usually his dad, sit right next to him, pick up the cards, look, uh, communicate in some way to Clayton what the cards are without others hearing. I don't know how it's done, but uh, he communicates in some way what the cards are, and then Clayton will verbalize out loud what he wants to do, because that's not a secret. I'll say, you know, fold, uh, bet 1,200, call, whatever. You know, like, uh, he'll just say what he wants to do, and then the assistant will do it. Does this slow down the game? Yeah, a little bit, because rather than someone having to act on their own, you have to wait for the assistant to tell K.L. Clayton, and K.L. Clayton has to say what he wants to do, and the assistant has to do it. So it slows it down a little bit, but it's not terrible. Well, Kitty was in a bad mood for some reason. Maybe not running well, I don't know. But she was in a bad mood, and the whole situation with K.L. Clayton and the game being slowed down was already getting on her nerves. But was what was really drawing her ire was the fact that the dealers, which at the World Series are not very good this year. There's some very good dealers, but there's some awful dealers, and there's some in between. But there's a labor shortage right now, and Caesars is doing the best they can to hire dealers, but they need a massive number of dealers. And, of course, of that massive number of dealers, 
some of whom are only dealers because there's such a worker shortage and otherwise they couldn't get a job because they suck, but right now they can, uh, you're going to have some awful dealers there and there's nothing you can do. So I don't blame Caesars. Notice I have not complained that the dealers suck when I'm talking about Caesars fails because it's understandable why some dealers suck. I dealt with some awful dealers at the seniors event. So some of these dealers were having a very hard time with Kale Clayton's dad being right next to him, not having a hard time that he's there, but having a hard time not accidentally dealing him cards also. So they were seeing Kale and his dad as two players instead of one. So if it was caught fast enough, what they could do is they could adjust where the cards were because players would be seeing this. They go, whoa, 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 no, don't deal him a card. Yeah, that's just He's just helping his son here. So let's take the card you dealt to his dad and move it over to the next person and move that card over there as long as nobody has looked yet. That's okay. And these type of mistakes will happen all the time where cards get uh, dealt to the wrong person, then they, they slide them back and provided nobody's looked, then it's not a misdeal. But if people have looked or if there's action or whatever it is, if it's if it's something you can't just fix by shifting around cards, then you have to have a misdeal declared and everybody has to throw their cards and the dealer has to shuffle again and they have to start the deal all over again. So Kitty was getting really annoyed that Kitty's that, that uh, Kale's dad was causing these dealers, not intentionally, but that his presence was causing these dealers to keep making them some mistake. And she decided to confront KL about this and ask him to have his dad either sit behind him or him sit behind his dad, but just not to have them both sitting at the table because she was saying the dealers just can't seem to handle this. And I believe she probably said this in a rude way. I don't think she went up to him and said, hey, you know, I understand your situation. I, I really feel for what you're going through. And I, I just, the dealer's can't handle this. They just keep making the same mistake over and over. And while that's not your fault, uh, can we try to figure out a solution so this doesn't keep occurring? Because I don't think we can get the dealers to do this right. Like she didn't do it like that. She she probably said something like, uh, "You need you need to sit in front of your dad, or he sit behind you. This no good. This no good. Too many missed deals. Too many missed deals." Like it's probably something like that. And he was probably getting pissed off because he's thinking, "What the fuck? I'm a quadriplegic here." Like, why are you getting my case here? You think I want this? You, th- you think I don't want to be able to sit normally and play like you? I'm trying to be able to play poker here with, with what little physical ability I have. And I need my dad here for this. And uh, it, this is the way we have to do it. I'm sorry. You know, at least you can walk. That's probably what he's thinking. I don't remember what day occurred. This I, mean, I, don't, like, I don't know how long ago this was, but it was very recent. But it took a little time for the controversy to break out, I think maybe a few days, and uh, people started making remarks on Twitter about how Kitty is degrading and nasty to disabled people, and then eventually this full story came out. So finally, K.L. Cleeton decided to make a full statement about this shortly after midnight on January on June 25th, so just about uh, 28 hours ago, he said this. I never expected this to grow into such controversy, so I'm posting exactly what happened to finally put all this behind us. I was playing the 5K6 Max, and dealers accidentally dealt my dad, who is my assistant when I play, into the hand twice. It sometimes happens by accident, and we just remind the dealer that I'm the player and he's the assistant. After it happened the second time, Kitty Quo indicated that I should either sit behind him or he should sit behind me. We both said it was never going to happen, and she responded by saying that if the dealer's mistake happened again, she was going to talk to the floor. This is already getting contentious. So when he said that they're not sitting piggyback style one behind the other, 
then she said that one more time I'm going to the floor which is already like a bad approach you, when you're dealing with someone who's severely disabled you, you can't approach them rudely like this because they're inconveniencing you if if you think that there's a better solution to the way that something's being handled involving them that you think is burdensome to somebody else or to the whole group you can try to politely approach them and say let's see if we can come up with something better that works for everybody in a smoother way but you, you can't threaten if this happens one more time i'm going to the floor on you so that's what she said he said at that point i left the table to get a floor so he decided to just go to the floor himself and told him about what was happening he came to the table and she again told him that i should either sit behind my assistant or he should or he should sit behind me Flora said that wasn't going to happen, and they moved her a short time later. That's kind of funny. That I don't know if they moved her on purpose or if they just happened to move her because it was her time to move and the big blind was coming. I have a feeling they moved her on purpose just to stop all this. My offense came from the fact that I shouldn't need to do anything differently because of dealers' mistakes, especially when we've always played that way without issue. He's, my offense, what he's saying is why I got offended. He doesn't mean that he committed an offense. He's saying that his offense at the situation was this, that he shouldn't have to change just because the dealers suck. By my recollection, the mistakes resulted in only two missed deals. Any other error was caught quickly enough by myself or my dad to ensure that we just needed to shift the cards, which resulted in effectively no slowing of the game. Okay, so let's stop right here. The last thing he said, I have some issues with. Up till there, I am kind of with him. Up till there, it seems like Kitty was rude. She didn't handle it well. And look, there's got to be some solution which is best for how he can play, yet not inconvenience the rest of the game. But there's only so far you can go. Obviously, his presence is going to slow down the game some. And people just accept that because he's severely disabled and they're making accommodations. And there's some best way to do it, which still isn't going to be perfect. So he seems to feel that there really is nothing else they can do besides have his dad sit next to him. That the sitting behind thing just isn't going to work. And he might be right. Now, if Kitty wanted to look into maybe some other possible solutions, or she could think of one herself or see if the floor had any ideas or he had any ideas, that's fine. But I, I see why he was annoyed that she seemed to be coming at him aggressively about this. However, listen again to his last tweet about this in this row of tweets he made to explain what was happening. By my recollection, the mistakes resulted in only two missed deals. Any other error was caught quickly enough by myself or my dad to ensure we just needed to shift the cards, which resulted in effectively no slowing of the game. Well, hold on here. So what's this about two mistakes? It wasn't two mistakes. It was two missed deals. So it's one thing to say, hey, Kitty Quo is just so sensitive that only on the second missed deal that she flipped out. So we've had two whole missed deals and everyone's, you know, why is she flipping out? She, she can't take two missed deals? Come on. But it wasn't just two missed deals. It was way more than that. It's just they were able to prevent a whole resetting of the hand they were able to prevent the missed deal from becoming a missed deal by shifting the cards now he can say that didn't take a lot of extra time but it becomes very burdensome to the game if this is happening so often that you're either having to shift cards or have missed deals on a frequent basis and something's wrong then at that point you are becoming a burden to the game and at that point they need to find a solution now the proper solution if they could do it would be get better dealers 
But since they can't do that at the World Series, he says, oh, this has always worked before. Well, yeah, but before isn't now. Now there are many dealers who would not have been hired other years. So we have to adjust to the times here. So I agree, in a card room where most of the dealers are good, this is not going to be a problem, and it makes sense why your dad can sit next to you and there's no issue. But since it's happening so often here, where there's two times there's a full missed deal, and then a bunch of times you have to keep shifting the cards to prevent a missed deal, I can see why this is unnerving for the table and that uh, Kitty was getting frustrated by it. So I think he's minimalizing this. I think he's trivializing the burden it is to the rest of the game. I think the game needs to take on some burden to allow him to play because he's severely disabled, but that doesn't mean that you can just give an unlimited burden to everybody else. Like, let's let's take an extreme, which wouldn't really happen. Let's say uh, accommodating his play would require him to take a full minute to act every time that he's dealt cards. It doesn't. It never would. But let's say it did. Well, then people would have a reasonable complaint that he shouldn't be there, that they don't want uh, that every hand it takes a full minute for him to act. It's just something that slows down the game too much. And if that were the case, there would be a reasonable discussion to say, look, we'd like to have him play, but we just can't because it's too burdensome to everybody else. At some point, the burden for one individual, even if uh, you're attempting to do something uh, good and inclusive, can be too much of a burden on everybody else to where you just can't allow it. So accommodations can only be go so far for anybody for anything. And I'm very supportive of being inclusive and trying your best to allow someone like him to be able to play. And everybody just keeping their mouths shut, even if they'd prefer the game plays a little bit faster. Okay, the guy's quadriplegic. He needs help. Let the guy play and don't be a dick about it. So I'm very much of that belief. But at the same time, if there's something he can do or a discussion that could be had to maybe speed things up, uh, he should want to do that. And he shouldn't trivialize that the cards just keep getting misdealt because the dealers aren't very good. He can say, oh, well, it always worked before. Well, no, but it's not working now. And you, you have to respect the other players who are getting frustrated by this. But then again, she has to be polite about it, and it sounds like she wasn't. So here's what she said about it. When she was first uh, hassled about this on Twitter, this is uh, back on June 24th before he gave his whole explanation, but she started seeing snide comments aimed at her about how she mistreats disabled people. She said, this happened at WSOP 5K6 Max. Dealer keep dealer two peoples to KL and his friend. Let me translate. She's trying to say the dealer kept dealing two cards to KL and his assistant. I call Floor to ask, is okay one player can sit a little behind so dealer will not keep misdeal the hands? Translation being, I called the Floor to see if it's okay if Kale can have their assistants sit behind him and uh, help him that way so the dealer wouldn't keep uh, misdealing the hands. Then KL is so sensitive. I am just trying to speed the game. Never personal, just try to help. So this KL is so sensitive thing really rubbed people the wrong way. Because the guy's a quadriplegic, so, oh, he's just so sensitive that, yeah, I'm complaining about his disability. Well, yeah, that comes off awful, you know, like, <laughs> oh, he's just so sensitive. He's just so sensitive, KL, that, you know, how dare he be sensitive that I'm saying that he's a burden on us because of his disability. I'm just trying to help him. So I can understand why people didn't like that comment. Danielle Anderson 
was quite angry at that comment, and she also apparently just didn't like Kitty beforehand. She wrote back, KL is sensitive? You're joking, right? I've witnessed you be unbearably cruel to a very kind person because they asked you how old you were in an attempt to give you a compliment. Bullshit. You're just trying to be helpful. You're a bully, and it's always about you and you alone. It's interesting that Danielle talks about how Kitty was very sensitive about her age. So Danielle doesn't say who this is involved, but she said a very nice person tried to give a compliment to Kitty that she looks great for her age, and Kitty got really mad that this person thought she was old. <laughs> and uh, Or asked how old they were. Like That's what it was. Danielle doesn't identify the person, but she said someone who's very nice asked Kitty how old she was because they thought that she was probably older but looked very good for her age, and that Kitty got really offended and got really nasty to this person. I'm guessing it was probably a female probably a female trying to give her a compliment going wow you just look so good you look so young you know like you probably look way younger than you are and i that's awesome i wish i could look good, as good as you yeah you know. so how old are you anyway like it's probably something like that it, it, and i don't think it was backhanded that's the thing like I, I don't think that whoever danielle's talking about was trying to say oh yeah i wish i could look as good as you when i'm old like you i don't think it's like that i think it was someone who was trying to give her a compliment that that she just looks so great for her age and just and how old are you, by the way? Like, But Kitty was all insulted. Like, She wanted everyone to just think she's young. Kitty always uses something called a beauty cam to post her pictures on Twitter. You'll see tons of pictures of her playing poker. But if you look, her skin is super impossibly smooth. And she almost looks like a cartoon character because these pictures are so highly filtered by this beauty cam. So all these shots of her playing poker aren't like pictures of the rest of us playing poker where someone just takes a picture and we post them. These are super filtered by this beauty cam to make her look younger than she is. And I did see one picture of her that she posted, which inexplicably had no beauty cam. And she did look older. I remember thinking, wow, she, uh, she's older than I expected. Like I was, I was thinking that she was younger than she actually is. Uh, I guess Kitty does look good for her age, whatever it is. I think she's like older than people think. And she looks good for that age. But I guess she got really mad because she'd been trying so hard to come off as really young and isn't and someone kind of said they figured out that she's not that young but that she looks great for her age and she got offended and just berated that person i have also heard from people that kitty treats women at the table poorly one of the secrets of poker is that the mistreatment of women at the poker table is often not committed by men Sometimes it's committed by men, but the narrative you hear, it sounds like it's always men, that it's pretty much 100% men who are degrading and nasty to women at the poker table. And while that does occur, there's a lot of incidents of women mistreating other women at the poker table. I have seen it. I've heard about it. I've been told about it. So apparently Kitty Quo is alleged to be a big offender in that way and that she does not treat women well at the table and hence to be nasty to them. So Danielle was uh, bringing up that as an example, though she doesn't say it was to a woman, but I have a feeling it was by the way it was described. A person on Twitter who tweets is El Sriracha. I, I knew her name at one point, but I forgot what it is. But it's E-L-L-E-S-R-I-R-A-C-H-A. She tweeted, 
At the Fall Ladies event, this is referring to the 2021 Ladies event at the World Series, she tweeted about how unbearable it was playing with ladies while they were at her table and probably saw her tweets. Kitty, you're a beast on the felt, but it's hard to be a fan when you treat people this way. Can you just stop it with this stuff? And then she posted screenshots of these tweets. So the first tweet that Kitty wrote, and this is back in uh, October of 2021. Kitty wrote, the girl bet 1500 The other girl tried to raise to 2500 Welcome to ladies event, WSOP. So she was mocking a mistake that was made at the table. Then she wrote, after playing ladies event a while, I realized why all my MT friends, referring to multi-table tournament friends, are men most of the time. Can they send Maria Ho, Sophia Lovegrim, and, and Ashley Sleeth to blue th- table 13, please? So she's mocking the women at her table that they're unbearable. Can she send these bigger name women who know what they're doing to the table, please? And then she wrote in another tweet, same day, no more ladies event in Kitty Quo life. No more. I am done. And then she posted a gif of a girl saying no more. <laughs> So you see that. She's saying, yeah, now I see why my tournament friends are men. I can't stand these women. Like, a, like, imagine if a guy wrote this. Imagine if a guy wrote about how unbearable it is to play with women in poker. Like, he would just be eviscerated online. But she's writing about other women, so it gets less attention. But, it, like, I, I've heard this about her. I've heard that she just isn't nice to other women in poker. And that's probably why Danielle Anderson and a lot of these other poker women don't like her. Kitty Quo apologized to KL, but only after the crowd was very much against her. And so what he wrote, she wrote was, I'm sorry to KL. Please forgive me and accept my apology. I can give you my World Series of Poker main event 3% for free to my apology. So she was offering 3% of her main event cash, if she does cash, for free in order to make it right with him, which is kind of a weird way to apologize. But what KL said back was, I accept Kitty Quo's apology, and I hope that she would consider donating her free roll offer to Able Gamers, which is some kind of organization for people like him who want to game in some way who are disabled. He said, I wish her no ill will, and I hope this can be a growing experience. I don't know why he doesn't just donate it. I don't know why he doesn't just say, I accept the offer and I will be donating the equivalent money to Able Gamers once I get it from her. I don't know why she has to consider it. He should just take the money and do what he wants with it. I actually tweeted back regarding that offer. I said, I was offended by this whole thing too, so Kitty, can you please give me 1% of your main event? (laughs) I didn't get an answer, but I, I really sent that to her. Of course, Veronica Brill got involved. She's good friends with KL, so you know which side she took. Veronica wrote, I'm good without her at the ladies' event. Stay your lane. Kitty said back, I already explained what happened and say sorry. I am sorry one more time. Sure, I will not play ladies' event. So <laughs> Kitty said, yeah, okay, I won't play it. But she was already planning not to play it. However, it was not all hate aimed at Kitty Quo. Sean Deeb wrote, I'm on Kitty Quo's side. If the dealer keeps dealing a person in, I'd complain too constantly. Miss Deal is brutal. It has nothing to do with KL Clayton or Veronica Brill. But if you're affecting the integrity of the tournament and hands dealt, it has to be fixed. He's right. 
I, that was the point I was making, that th- this is not so much about being insensitive to a disabled guy. You do have to give some accommodation, but if there's a problem that's happening over and over and over because of the procedure set up to assist him, then the procedure needs to be re- revisited. You can't just say, well, this procedure worked in 2019, so I don't care if it messes up the game. Like You can't say that. You can't just say because the disabled guy is there, you can screw up the whole uh, table and keep misdealing. You've got to revisit what's being done here and, and maybe find something that's a little more optimal. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong to say, Kale, we want you here. We want to adjust what's being done here so this way these missed deals won't happen, or at least not as often, and yet you can still play. So that's what they need to look for. They need to come up with a solution. They can even ask him what he thinks. I mean, he's a smart guy. He's not mentally disabled at all. The, you know, he's got a ma- major, major physical disability, but mentally, he's just as competent as, as the rest of us. In fact, more competent than many people. So they can ask him, can you come up with something different? And we'll think about it, too. And that's not offensive. But there's no doubt that Kitty was rude about it. Anyway, I don't blame Kitty for being frustrated with the situation. I think she should have approached it better. I think she shouldn't have been threatening to call the floor. I think she should have been very polite and calm about this, knowing that she's dealing with a severely disabled person who has a difficult life because of that. And not to make him feel like a burden and not to make it feel like you're angry at him or blaming him for this when it's not even his own mistake. It's the dealer's mistake. So I would, if I were to complain about this, I would either not say anything to him and just go to the floor quietly and say, hey, can we maybe just change the procedure here because the dealer just can't get this right? So can we maybe reconfigure this somehow? Or if you are going to go to him, do it very gently and Make sure he understands you're blaming the dealer and not him. And that you want to ask him for a way to maybe improve this. And if he says no, then get up and talk to the floor, but don't threaten him. I'm going to go to the floor on you. So I understand why this didn't sit well with people. She didn't approach this right. And I think that can happen when you have a reputation for being unpleasant at the table. This unpleasantry can expand to when you're dealing with people who are disabled or severely disabled and sometimes you can't switch gears and suddenly be nice if you're used to being kind of uh, brusque and obnoxious with people sometimes it's hard to go back to being a nice person (laughs) or convert to being a nice person not even go back uh, convert to being a nice person in the way you talk to people if they're disabled so really just try to treat everyone with respect but especially someone who's like severely disabled you really got to watch the way you talk to them regarding their disability. Even if there is some burdens that going on because of them being there, but especially if the burden is not their fault, which this was not. But even when it's not his fault, that doesn't mean you don't adjust something. You don't just say, too bad, that's the way it is. You, you try to adjust it. You try to make it best for everybody. That's what you got to try to do. Anyway, I think this is a dumb controversy. I think this is much ado about nothing. I think Kitty didn't handle it well. I think KL didn't handle this perfectly. I think they should have just gotten past this and this shouldn't become a big deal. But I guess I'm contributing to it being a big deal because I'm talking about it on the show. And I had people suggest this as a topic. I had people say, hey, are you going to talk about the KL Cleeton and Kitty Quo thing? So I guess people want to hear about this. The WSOP Cafe 
has closed. I don't know if it's closed for good. In fact, it's possible it reopened, and I haven't taken a look yet. I probably should have, because I'm there all the time at the Paris World Series area. I just keep forgetting to look. But the World Series of Poker Cafe was predicted by Alan Kessler to be a failure, and Kessler was right. It has been a failure, and it's not a surprise. So, I know I've talked about it a little bit before, but I I want to revisit this and explain why this is such a big fail. So, Kessler posted on May 31st, the WSOP Poker Kitchen will be a tough, sale, a tough sell this year with literally hundreds of nearly normal-priced options in walking distance, especially Chick-fil-A. He's a big Chick-fil-A fan, by the way. You can buy two fresh sandwiches, fries, and a drink for less than one order of lukewarm tenders. He's referring to Chick-fil-A versus the WSOP Cafe. And so, so I was looking at the selections, and they are expensive, and apparently they're not good. Like a, a hot dog's $14.00 which is insane. A hamburger, $16. Chicken tenders, $16. And then uh, I like this. This is just, like, you're not getting fries with this. But if you'd like to add an individual bag of chips, you know those little bags? Those very little bags of chips? If you'd like to add one of those to your sandwich, it's only going to be a mere $4. (laughs) So it's $18 for a hot dog and chips, $20 for hamburger and chips, and $20 for a four-piece chicken tenders and chips. Lovely. Lovely, right? (laughs) The salads aren't quite as badly priced. They look a little bit better from the description. But really, this is awful. And Kessler's point was, look, people aren't trapped at the Rio now. There's a lot of things they can walk to. They're not going to pay these prices for food that sucks. This isn't even good food. So he was predicting it's going to fail. Well, he was right. Patrick Leonard, who is a European poker pro who has come out for the World Series, he said, the WSOP kitchen scam isn't even a smart scam. Very bad products and very expensive. Make it half decent and a little cheaper and would get a thousand times the volume of orders. Make a healthy, good salad or chicken slash fries and sell it for 15 to 20 and they'd sell 1000 a day. So he's trying to say here that they've either got to improve the quality or lower the price. That selling crappy food that tastes awful that they've quickly slapped together and then charging premium prices for it just pisses everyone off and, and no one's going to buy it. That... It's not even what he calls a smart scam. Now, a scam is the wrong word, but what he's trying to say here is that uh, this is a dumb version of nickel and diming. That they could do very brisk business and make a lot of money if they were to either sell quality good food or cheap bad food. But selling expensive bad food just makes no one want to buy it, so it just pisses people off, and they don't make many sales. So then he posts, it's also been closed for the last two days, I think. Wanted to do a tour. This is on June 19th. And he posted a picture of a sign which says, the WSOP Cafe is closed. Please visit one of the food outlets outside the conference space. Thank you. Andrew Barber tried to defend them a little bit and said, I'm quite confident they are optimizing. 
So Barber's point was, you may not like the price point, but they figured out the best price point to make the most money. And Patrick Leonard said back, half my table in every event so far has had food brought in from outside that is 20 or more dollars on average. So you see the point he's making here. If people are willing to spend $20 or more, why not provide good food that's really, really close to the tournament area? They'll still make plenty of money and people will buy it because they don't have to walk as far. I responded back, maybe it's time to put All-American Dave in charge. Just don't let him handle the money. (laughs) Joe Phoenix, who's a listener of this show and has been coming out to play some of the World Series events. I've texted with him some. He made a forum account. He said, imagine if they came to a realization that, hey, let's sell good food at McDonald's price, maybe two or three dollars more than McDonald's price. They're missing out on the on that foot traffic. Their can of soda was seven bucks. Yikes. I mean, he's right here that the drinks are especially outrageous. You think the $14 hot dog's bad. Paying $7 for a Coke is even worse. $6 for a bottle of water is even worse. So people are pissed off about that too because they don't have drinks with them. Now they've got to pay for that stuff. And you, know, you, you go there, you buy a burger, a bag of chips, not even fries, and a Coke... And you're paying $27, and it's not even good. So you like you feel like you're eating McDonald's food, maybe worse than McDonald's food, for $27 instead of $5. And people get pissed off. And he's saying, why, why don't they just come to a realization that uh, let's sell something that tastes good, maybe costs a little bit more than what McDonald's would charge. But I think they don't even have to go that far. I think there's something that's expensive but not outrageous. I used to say that about uh, things in hotel rooms. Remember back in the day, and this is before the internet was common, back in the day, like in the 90s, when you, or even the 80s, when you could watch in-room movies, and it was like $10 per movie. And the justification that the entertainment system would give is that if you could, you could have like a family of four watching it all in the room and much less than a movie theater price. But first of all, these weren't new movies. And second, it's a little TV. It's not a big screen. So it was just outrageous pricing. And this is $10 back then, not $10 now. So that $10 is worth a lot more. And I used to say, you know what? There were times when I'd be in a hotel room kind of bored, and I would have watched one of these if it was like 3 bucks. But I'm not paying 10 bucks for a pay-per-view movie that came out nine months ago. And a lot of people thought that way, not just cheap Jews like me. A lot of people thought this way. So I said, why don't they just lower this to a much lower price point? And it costs them basically nothing to deliver the movie itself. So if they think by lowering it to, from $10 to $3, if they, I'm sure they'd make more than four times as many sales. It would be totally justified. I think the only people who are paying $10 are ones who are either just so bored they can't stand it or people who can't uh, who just don't care about money or maybe businessmen who have an expense account. I just don't think they're getting enough people watching. And same with mini bars. I felt like if they made the Cokes and mini bars, not five bucks, if they made it two bucks, still not a good deal for a can of Coke, but you can easily make yourself pay two bucks to not have to walk out of the room for it. Five bucks, you go, oh, I don't want to pay five bucks for a can of Coke. So I always thought that they should lower the price to something more reasonable, but still kind of expensive. And they do way better business. I think that's kind of the point he's making here. Anyway, apparently they weren't optimizing because they've been closed. Maybe it's back open, but I haven't seen it back open. What a big fail. 
this is the problem when you have accountants in charge of these type of matters who don't understand the underlying needs of the customer base. You can't just put accountants in charge of setting these price points. You can get their feedback, but you really need to think about who's coming Are they going to spend it? How is it going to affect their attitude about their trip here? Might they not want to come back next year partially because of this experience? You don't want this negative experience in their head because you got a few extra bucks out of them. I'm not saying that Caesars should take a beating on the food and lose money. I'm saying that they should either make it good and expensive or cheap and not so good. But something where people don't pay $30 for some slop. It's just going to get them really angry. And as Kessler said, there's so many food outlets around. Now, nothing really fast like this. And that's what some people are complaining about. It. Especially these 3 p.m. events don't even have a dinner break. So people go, hey, I just want to get... I've got 15 minutes to grab something on every break. This is all I can grab. Well, great. This gives you a big edge. So instead of gouging them, why not either provide good food... Or have something cheap so at least people don't have to feel bad they spent a lot of money on something that's not that good. When I said All-American Dave should be in charge but just not handle the money, I I was only half-joking. Because the truth is that All-American Dave was successful exactly for this reason. Because he recognized that people hated this WSOP cafe at the Rio, and he wanted something quick and ready to eat and charged a lot of money for it. It was not cheap. But it was healthy, and uh, it was better quality than what the WSOP Cafe was, so he did brisk business. So I think if you put someone in charge of putting together like ready-to-eat meals for the WSOP, you could get someone who could do it a lot better and the people will like it. But whoever's in charge here just thinks, hey, well, we've got a a captive audience that doesn't want to walk a long way or doesn't have time to walk a long way because the brakes are so short. Let's just charge them a lot of money and serve crap quality food. Ah, we'll make so much money. Look at the profit margin. (laughs) No, because you're not just a restaurant because that's not your main form of income. A disaster would be if someone has a bad memory of that and that has some contribution in their decision not to return next year. You want these people back. You want them here. You want them spending money on the hotel. You want them gambling. Not just playing poker, but also gambling in the casino. You want them going to your expensive restaurants. You want them going to your shows. You want them paying for the parking. So you you don't want to drive them away because you're trying to make a few extra bucks on shitty fast food. You've got to have priorities of, of where you're trying to make the money from. And you've got to look at the downsides of doing things like this. And they, they weren't. And then so what happened was the people basically spoke. And they, it was doing such poor business, they decided not to keep it open. And the reason they probably decided not to keep it open, it was probably this food was going bad. There were probably so few people buying this stuff that there was probably ready-made food that wasn't being eaten had to go in the trash. Because remember, like burgers, you, you can't just uh, make a, a ready-to-grab burger and they just say, okay, well, we didn't get enough people buying this. Uh, yeah, I'm sure it'll be bought sometime this week. Like it, These have a short shelf life. So there's only so much they can do before they have to dump it. 
So I have a feeling they realized it wasn't profitable and they just shut it down. They, they really need to revisit that. They need to look at this again and say, what do the players really want? And that's what I'll give All-American Dave credit. He identified that and did quite well for many years. He mismanaged the money, it turned out, and didn't have it when he ended up going out of business. So he was a bad money manager, but very good at uh, identifying a need for food at the World Series of Poker and providing the type of food that a lot of people wanted. So I want to talk about the CoinFlex thing. Let's see if we can find uh, Trader Ruski at this point before we get going with this here. What's happening, Jeff? Hello, Trader Ruski. Welcome to the show. Thank you. How you doing? Well, I'm okay. You know, I, I got a World Series cash, uh, just uh, not the one I was hoping for. And uh, missed you at the seniors event, though. Yeah, that was a busy work week. Um, could not make it, but glad to hear you at least uh, made it in the cash. So you can keep going from there. Yeah, and I got my three buy-ins back plus one more. So I guess I can say that too. So okay, uh, I want to go to the CoinFlex topic. I don't know if you've heard about this, but uh, before I even get to the topic itself, do you know what CoinFlex is? Have you heard of it? No clue. Okay. Well, CoinFlex is a cryptocurrency. It's a stable coin. And uh, Doug Polk was heavily promoting it. I think he started promoting it around December. I don't regularly watch his channel. I'll watch it if there's something that I hear is of interest there. And sometimes I'll feature part of it on this show if there's something that has to do with what we're talking about. But I have seen that CoinFlex logo in the background and I didn't really pay attention much to what it was because I wasn't interested in it. But it was constantly there, so much that uh, Veronica Brill, when doing a parody of his channel, even mentioned that and joked about it. In fact, she said something which ended up being uh, kind of predicting the future, saying, uh, CoinFlex, we're not Bitcoin Latinum. And that was mocking Phil Helmuth's promotion of Bitcoin Latinum, which has lost a lot of money and lost a lot of value from where it once was. CoinFlex was different from Bitcoin Latinum, though, because Bitcoin Latinum was not a stable coin. CoinFlex is a stable coin. A stable coin, and we talked about stable coins uh, recently on the show because of the whole crash involving Luna, which was once a stable coin. A stable coin is a cryptocurrency which is pegged to the value of a regular currency, usually the U.S. dollar. And the whole point of a stablecoin is to be able to use cryptocurrency without having to worry about the fluctuation of value, because that has been a big reason cited for why mainstream commercial industries that they don't want to accept cryptocurrency is because once they get it, what do they do with it? Because they it can rise and fall so quickly that by the time they sell what they receive, they can lose a lot of money if it's on the way down. So a lot of companies don't want to deal with this crap. That's why one of many reasons why cryptocurrency hasn't seen mainstream adoption in the public that isn't already familiar with it. So stable coins were attempting to address this, and there's several stable coins out there, some of which are very large 
And uh, for quite some time, people just kind of took for granted that stable coins may not be that stable. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> sorry about that. So after this crash of Luna last month, people have been a little more worried that their stable coin holdings may be at risk. That's simply because you have something that is not is designed not to fluctuate doesn't mean that it's going to hold value. And people who held Luna, some of them were totally ruined if they had too much in it. CoinFlex might be going the same way as Luna. Now, keep in mind, CoinFlex and Luna were different in the mechanisms which would keep them stable, but they were both stable coins, and uh, Luna is pretty much done. And CoinFlex may or may not be done soon, but I think the may be done is much more likely. So the only reason we're talking about this is because of Doug Polk's promotion of it. I do want to start out by saying that Doug Polk does not manage CoinFlex. I don't believe he owns any part of CoinFlex. I don't think he started CoinFlex. I don't think he has any power over CoinFlex. And when I say I don't think, I mean, from everything I've seen, all of those things are not the case. So this is not Doug's coin. Just because he's been promoting it heavily, it doesn't mean it's his coin. It's no more his coin than Bitcoin Latinum is Phil Helmuth's coin. So he was just a promoter. So I want to get that out. And I want to say that I don't blame him for what has happened and what might be happening. But still, he has a very large audience. He has a much bigger audience than I do. He has a lot of influence. There's a lot of respect for him. He's known as a, a pretty honest and straightforward guy. He's not known to be shady. And he spent time building this reputation, building his channel, building a following. And he's got to be careful when he promotes something like a cryptocurrency which could go bad, as many cryptocurrencies do. Even if they're not meant to be anything that's scammy, sometimes they just go bad in some way, and if he promotes it and it does, then it can be a bad look for him. So he has to be careful with things like this, given how much he has to lose, given how valuable his reputation is. So what happened was that uh, CoinFlex is having some kind of problem, and they have frozen withdrawals, which is a disaster. Basically, any coin you have there you can't take out, which, of course, is uh, not something you want to see when you hold a cryptocurrency. When you're holding a cryptocurrency, provided there's someone that wants to buy it, you can always sell it. Well, with CoinFlex, uh, you can't. Now, CoinFlex had a gimmick to it. You may say, well, why would you even want CoinFlex compared to a better-known stablecoin such as uh, Tether? And that's because CoinFlex claimed that you would be earning interest on it. In fact, the gimmick of CoinFlex is that you would earn interest every eight hours. I mean, <laughs> every eight hours? What's going to pay for that? Who's going to pay for that? And I didn't look enough into CoinFlex to understand how that's going to be paid for. But immediately that might raise a red flag for people when they see something like this and say, okay, well, this money's got to come from somewhere. And if this is supposed to be a stable coin, how could it be paying this much interest? So I don't know if that's the reason that they're having their problems, but uh, on Thursday, which is now just a few days ago, because right now it's Sunday morning, on Thursday, they announced that they are going to pause all withdrawals 
citing, quote, extreme market conditions. So the users are unable to pull any of their money out of CoinFlex accounts. So basically, you would uh, get this CoinFlex account and you would buy their stablecoin. And then to get that stablecoin out, you'd have to take it out of the CoinFlex account, which is uh, paying you interest. But if you can't withdraw it, then it's worthless. And uh, as I'm speaking right now, you cannot withdraw it. So Doug Polk, of course, had to say something about this. So uh, June 23rd, 6.04 p.m., Doug Polk said, I was blindsided by the withdrawal pause at CoinFlex. I've reached out to the relevant parties to understand what's happening. I will have a longer statement when I fully understand what happened. So that means, oh shit, this thing I've been promoting for the last six months, seven months, whatever it is, looks like it might be going under and anyone who invested in it might be fucked, but I don't want to jump the gun too fast. Maybe they're just pausing it for a good reason and they can get it started again and everything will be fine, but uh, boy, this is fucked up and uh, I don't want to say anything more until I figure out exactly what's going on. That's, That's basically what he's saying there by his little statement. So, a few days passed. People were wondering when he's going to give that update. He finally did, two days later, twenty or 49 hours after his original statement. June 25th, 7.37 p.m., 10 hours before right now, as I'm speaking here. He said, recently, CoinFlex paused withdrawals to, due to, quote, extreme market conditions. This, in my opinion is not an acceptable action for an exchange to take. According to their statement, withdrawals are estimated to begin June 30th. July 1st, I'll be posting my own statement. Thank you. So what he's saying here is, okay, they're claiming that June 30th is when they're going to go back to normal and let people withdraw. If they don't, then I'm going to have a lot to say about this on on July 1st. That's basically what he's trying to say. Then... His statement will have to do with whether they get this going again by June 30th, as promised. Now, notice they didn't say that they're definitely going to do this on June 30th. They said withdrawals are estimated to begin June 30th, which probably means they won't. I'm sure on June 30th, we're going to see another excuse. The announcement was from CoinFlex.com on their blog. And it says, Dear CoinFlex community, due to extreme market conditions last week and continued uncertainty involving a counterparty, I don't know what they mean by that, today we are announcing that we are pausing all withdrawals. We fully expect to resume withdrawals in a better position as soon as possible. We will fully communicate with you as we find out more. We will also be halting all FlexCoin trading in in perps and spot in the short term. To confirm, the counterparty is not Three Arrows Capital or any lending firm. We are confident that this situation can be repaired fully with a restoration of all functionality, namely withdrawals. Next update, June 27th. So we're not there yet. That's tomorrow. Estimated time for withdrawals, June 30th. Please note that these dates are estimates based upon our current understanding of the situation. We'll be giving more clarity on the details and updates to the situation as soon as possible. Mark Lamb, CEO. So that's all we have right now. And that is not good. Someone on Twitter was claiming that they went into CoinFlex chat and were told that they could not withdraw, but that if they wanted to deposit, that's still open. (laughs) That's pretty bad. They should not allow deposits if you can't withdraw. It should be paused or not paused. A person named... Poppy Holdel, that's P-A-P-I-H-O-D-L, 
on Twitter said, I couldn't believe it when you joined, referring to CoinFlex back in December. Not sure why you deleted your first tweet about it. And Poppy Holdel showed a link of when uh, Polk deleted his tweet on, uh, I think, December 12th or December 21st of 2021, announcing the partnership with CoinFlex. And Poppy Holdel only knows this because he had responded to Doug and went back to look at it and saw that tweet had been deleted. So what did that tweet say? Poppy Holdel said, from what I remember, it was him saying he was excited to join as an ambassador or something along those lines. So it's interesting that Doug, even though he's still listed as a CoinFlex ambassador on his Twitter profile, he did remove the December tweet, which likely no one's going to be looking at at this point, that was saying that he's proud to be an ambassador. He's kind of already preparing to ditch them. I think he knows what's likely to happen on June 30th, and that is nothing. But he is giving them a chance to make good on their withdrawals allowed on June 30th promise before completely going hard on them. That's what I think. I think he's saying, all right, you know, I'm sure they're communicating with him and probably saying, don't worry, we'll get this going very shortly. So before he just completely goes off and says, yeah, this whole thing was a big scam. Sorry about that. He's like, (laughs) he wants to make sure it really was and that they're not just uh, trying to fix something after getting fucked by another party they were dealing with. They don't explain this counterparty and what happened, but they're blaming this on a, quote, counterparty and saying that they just need some time to fix what occurred and then re-enable everything and exist normally. But a lot of times you get this excuse initially and then nothing ever gets fixed and the founders disappear. I don't think this was a premeditated scam, but a lot of these coins aren't. A lot of these coins begin as something where there's a hope that they'll become huge. And then when they don't, then the infamous rug pull happens where the the original founders take their profits and disappear. So that is a problem, to say the least. And it's going to look very bad for Doug if this does not improve if this doesn't go back to what it should be. And I think there's a good chance it won't. This is known as uh, Flex USD in the crypto world. The price right now is uh, 91 cents, but that doesn't really mean much because you can't withdraw it. It went down much lower than that, like 82 cents or something. But that, again, that doesn't mean that much because right now it's not withdrawable. So as soon as people are able to withdraw, then the problem is there's probably going to be a big crash. And they know this. Because if you were holding CoinFlex right now, if you're holding FlexUSD, and let's say they allow you to withdraw, are you going to say, okay, well, cool. It's it's all back. All right, folks. No problem. No, you're going to take your money out and be thrilled to have it. And that's what most people are going to think. So I have, I have to imagine it's not going to continue existing, even if they do enable withdrawals. And disabling withdrawals is usually a very bad sign because that really means that uh, they just simply don't have it. That they simply have spent the other cryptocurrency that was used to purchase it. And they just don't have, uh, they don't have a way to allow people to withdraw, that they don't have the cash or crypto to send to people who want to sell their their flex. They don't just pause it because they feel like pausing it. I mean, there, there's a practical reason to that, and it's almost never good. 
it's mixed in the poker world how they feel about this. Some are blaming Doug and saying that he was promoting a Ponzi scheme and should have known better. Others were saying that Doug was just a promoter and he's a victim here too, and that this is going to hurt his rep, and you can't blame him. Others are kind of in the middle. I don't think this is Doug's fault. I just think he should have thought about this as a possibility, and that everything can seem great when a project is described, and it can even go for a while with no issue, and then an issue happens, and then you look bad for having promoted it. And he heavily promoted this. This wasn't just like a commercial that ran on his uh, show. He had this constantly in the background, a CoinFlex logo. So if you're going to really attach yourself to it like he did, there's really a big difference between having a commercial on your show and, and having something ever-present in the background. And if you have something ever-present in the background, something that's attached to you, then you really have to believe in it tremendously because otherwise they hold your reputation in their hands, even if you have the best of intentions and even if you don't have any inkling that anything's wrong. I don't think Doug was trying to do anything shady. I don't think Doug was trying to get anyone ripped off. I think if Doug could have looked into the future and saw this happening, he would have stayed away no matter how much they paid him. But I'm sure he learned a lesson from this. And this will harm his reputation some if this does end up completely falling apart and you're going to see stories on Twitter from people who bought CoinFlex and were harmed by this because they trusted Doug. So again, I'm not blaming Doug for this, but uh, obviously he knows what's coming if they ultimately don't allow withdrawals, which I'm guessing they probably won't. Maybe they'll shock me and they will, but I have to say it's not that likely and he's going to have to deal with the fallout. And we will see if he offers anything to fix the situation. I remember when the Epic Poker League fell apart, and you may say, well, what does that have to do with this? One of my big criticisms of Annie Duke and Jeffrey Pollock was that they took a healthy salary and never gave that back because there's that million-dollar free roll they promised everybody, and they never held it and just said, F you. And yet Annie Duke made 300 thousand dollars and so did Jeffrey Pollock, like... Why didn't they say, okay, sorry about this, this was mismanaged, but what we're going to do is we're going to take every penny we made from this and we'll hold a free roll with that money. Even if it doesn't add up a million, if those two just put their money together, they would have had 700000 If they, I think everyone would have appreciated that. But nope, they just walked out into the sunset with their money because they could legally keep. So someone called for Doug on Twitter to return every penny he made from CoinFlex to victims. Now, I'm not sure how those victims would be identified and proven and what order they would get it and who'd get priority. And also, it's possible Doug did not make money. Maybe they paid him in CoinFlex and he's getting fucked here too. Maybe when this whole thing is over, that the amount of money that uh, Doug will have made from CoinFlex was... Uh, 0.0. And if, if that's the case then there's nothing for him to give. And if that's really true, he should just say so. Maybe he'll say that. Maybe he'll say on July 1st that he doesn't believe in CoinFlex. He thinks they're a fucked up crypto that ripped everyone off, and he's really sorry for promoting them. He saw no signs of this, and he got ripped off too, that everything they paid him was in uh, FlexUSD, 
and he stuck like the rest of them and that otherwise he would totally return what he made from there to the people but uh, he didn't make anything when this is all said and done because of this uh, situation and if that's the case then I would agree he doesn't owe his followers anything in general crypto is buyer beware and Doug wasn't setting out to scam anybody I would say that anything he made from this uh, should be transferred over to the victims if there is a practical way to do that First, you had to identify if he really made anything, and I guess he should state whether he did or not. But a lot of times, these crypto projects, when they find someone to be their spokesman, what they'll do is they'll pay them in that coin, and that'll be the way they get compensated, and uh, it's kind of seen as a win-win. You get someone who's influential to promote it, and then they get that coin there, which uh, will become more valuable if it's successful. So we'll have to see on July 1st. I have a feeling it's not much is going to change between today and July 1st, especially with, the, with them saying it's an estimated date. That really makes me think they're not going to make it, even if ultimately they do allow withdrawals. But I think Doug knows they're going to, they're going to keep stalling. Like, they're probably going to say, look, we told you June 30th was an estimate, but don't worry, July 7th is a good chance you're going to get it. And then July 7th, hey, guys, July 14th is looking pretty good. I think it would be something like that. And Doug isn't falling for it. So he's just giving them one chance, June 30th. And if that doesn't happen, July 1st, he's going to put out a statement. And I think it's going to be very negative about CoinFlex and apologies and all that stuff. Kind of tough spot for him there. He should have been more careful, but, you know, everybody makes mistakes. Pretty sure he feels bad about it. He doesn't seem like the type of guy who just not care that everyone got fucked here. And it's unknown how many people actually bought into CoinFlex and for how much of people who follow him. Hopefully no one got it for a lot. But if they did, that's too bad. But uh, then again, any cryptocurrency that you buy a lot into may screw you. Either because it's a scam or because it's mismanaged or just because uh, market forces press it down. So always be careful. It's not free money. Who's behind that coin flex drop? Any, anybody big, or is it just some random people that started it? No, I don't even know who it is. It's I don't think it's anyone that prominent. That Mark Lamb, I've never heard of him. Trader Ruski, what time is it right now? Can you tell me what time it is? Five fifty a.m. It's also yes. It's time for Jeffy Time Theater. Jeffy Time Theater is. Uh, it's a rather popular segment on this show, uh, Lord knows why, but uh, it's Dandruff talking about incidents in his life, sometimes from quite some time ago, sometimes from rather recent events. And he goes on ranting about this for 60 to 90 minutes, as if he can't just tell the story in five minutes, but, uh, you know, it's always his style. And um, he just goes on and on and on with this until he feels he's cheered your air enough enough to the whole thing and... We shall begin. Thank you, Colonel Fabersham. This is Druffy Time Theater. 5.50 a.m. edition. I'm sitting in a Las Vegas hotel room. I am looking out the window. I'm seeing planes land one after another. It's amazing how many are coming through. And I see the sun that has already risen because it's that time of year when the sun rises early, especially in Vegas. I see the mountains in the background, including one of the mountains, which is Mount Charleston, which 
houses the poker fraud alert Mount Charleston line. And I'm thinking about some fail. I'm thinking about some fail that happened at Caesars, but not the Colossus fail. We already talked about that. But some fails that happened to me personally at Caesars. And uh, not in 2012 or 2014. No, in June 2022. There's a very recent story. And as soon as it happened, I texted some people, this is going to make Dreffy Time Theater. And indeed it has. So here's what happened. As you guys know, I had COVID. And there's a stupid policy when you have COVID that if it's known you have COVID, that a lot of hotels will kick you out and move you to some designated like COVID property, which is awful. Which is stupid, because if you're doing your best to stay away from everybody, then that's really that all should be expected of you, especially with Omicron, which is super contagious and much milder than the previous variants. So for the most part, if you are not really, really old or if you don't have a major health problem, Omicron is not going to kill or hospitalize you. Furthermore, if you are in those categories, you should not be going out into public where there's uh, high chances you could get it, such as a hotel. So if you're going to these places in the first place, you're taking the risk. That's why people getting Omicron at the World Series, I'm like, yeah, you should have expected that. And I told you guys before I came to the World Series that I made peace with the fact that there was a decent chance I would catch Omicron even right through that fourth shot that I got in mid-May. And indeed, it didn't take long for me to catch it. Fortunately, Trader Ruski, who saw me when I was contagious with Omicron, did not catch it from me. So that's nice. It's kind of a slap in the face to those who want to do the right thing and inform people that they had Omicron so people who were near them for any length of time could get tested, get the thanks of being booted out of their hotel room and moved to some crappy property, which is to house all the COVID people. Like the time to do that is long past. I, I can understand at the beginning, or or even you could have the justification with uh, the original and with Delta that those are a lot deadlier and that those are even killing middle aged people and people who are healthy. That that's that's not happening anymore. That's not really what Omicron's about at this point. So why why is that being done? I had an extremely mild case of Omicron. I told you guys about this. We're not going to rehash all that. But what I also had was a hotel room that happened to be ending and uh, I needed a new hotel. So uh, fortunately, uh, I, I had various people that I know here that were able to arrange hotel rooms for me that they got for free. And I was able to kind of bounce around hotels. And the good thing about this was this was in somebody else's name, so I didn't have to worry about uh, being kicked out of the room because, uh, because I had Omicron. And I did the right thing, by the way. As soon as I tested positive, I just sat in my room. That's all I did all day. It was very boring. But I just sat in my room. And uh, I, I did not play poker. I wasn't one of these assholes who wanted to play an event and just pretended I wasn't sick, which I could have done because I was barely sick. I could have easily gone down and played the 3K 6 max limit hold'em, which I really wanted to play. I could have easily gone down there and played it that day. But I did not because I wasn't an asshole. Now, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back. That's what most people do. 
there's a lot of people who didn't here, but you know, most people did the right thing in poker and said, hey, I have COVID. I'm going to stay away from people. So that's what I did. I sat in my hotel room like I'm supposed to, but don't, don't put me some kind of pariah hotel, some shitty motel somewhere uh, because uh, I'm COVID positive when I'm doing the right thing to stay away from everybody. So f- fortunately, I didn't have to worry too much because I was in rooms that were gotten for me by other people. Uh, I also happened to just not have a room. Uh, what I would have normally done at that point is I would have uh, uh, just left, but uh, you know, I, I I didn't want to bring it home. What I wanted to do is I wanted to just isolate in a hotel room by myself. So I said, rather than bringing it home and, and getting people sick there, I'll just isolate in the room by myself for several days. And that's what I did. So WSOP.com should have had the Omicron special to keep people in their hotel room. They could have had more online events. <laughs> that's right. That would have been, you know, she should tell uh, Danielle Burreal about that. She could finally uh, surface from her hole and tell people that, uh, hey, guess what? We're having a special uh, Omicron event for people who caught it at the World Series. Now you can stay in your room and play special events just for you. Yeah. Like maybe you could, you only, you have to have a positive test to qualify. And then, and then you're not allowed to play World Series events for X days. That'd actually be a good idea. Like, to give these people an incentive to be honest about having it. And then they get to play, like, replacement events that they only can play with a, with a positive diagnosis. Probably not quite enough that would come forward to justify that, but it, it sounds good in theory. So, good idea, Trey Ruski. But anyway, so I was bouncing around from uh, hotel to hotel. And I was giving it uh, probably more time than I really needed to. Then the CDC says five days. I took a little more than five days, actually, until I actually returned home and, and went back out in public. But I, I was not getting, like, long hotel stays, and I, I can't say to someone offering me a comp room, hey, you know, I, I want more days than this. You know, you can only give me three. I want five. I want six. Like, I can't say that. You know, would Anyone who does me a favor, I'm going to appreciate it. I'm not going to demand more. So, when, when something would run out, I, then I'd go to somebody else. Hey, you, you know, you possibly have something now. If they didn't, I would have just paid. But you know, I, I figured I'd ask around uh, from people that have been able to do it for me before. And uh, fortunately, I was able to find this. I was able to find uh, a, a few nights at, at one hotel, and then I moved on to a second hotel. But I, I still needed more, and I, and I was out at that point. So I said, okay, it's been enough days now to where I can... I don't have to worry about being kicked from my room, and now it's midweek, so the the rooms are not even expensive. So I saw Harrah's was pretty reasonable for for me. So I, I wasn't paying the off-the-rack price. I, I had a reduced price. It wasn't comp, but I had a, a very reduced price where it would be very cheap to stay at Harrah's. So I said, okay, I'm going to stay two more days at Harrah's, and then I'm going to bounce and go home. Then it should be safe for everybody at home, and uh, everything should be fine. So... I just needed a, a new room, and this one wasn't a comp. This is me intending to pay for it myself in my own name. And I wasn't even worried about being kicked because it had been a number of days since my uh, positive test to, to where I could show Harris, hey, look, it's been this many days. Uh, uh, it should be fine. It didn't come to that, but I'm saying if they approached me, I could have shown them that. So I just was going to do two more days, and that was it. So uh, for my last comp room, I called to make my next day's booking for Harris. Actually, not the next day. The same night. Because it was kind of a weird situation. I, I had to check out of my room that I was then in at 11 a.m. the next day. But my sleeping schedule was all messed up like it is today, actually. So I knew 11 a.m. was going to be a bad time for me because it was, I kind of want to go to sleep probably right around then. And I wasn't going to want to check out. So I figured, you know, I might as well do the moving right now and then I can sleep when I want. 
So my plan was to book a same-day Harrah's room, go to Harrah's, uh, check out of this comp room early, instead of 11 a.m., check out at like 10 p.m., and then uh, move over to Harrah's and move my stuff there, and then, you know, go to sleep whenever I feel like in the morning, and then stay another full day, and then when I wake up the next day, drive home. That was the plan. Okay? So why am I doing this segment? Well, of course, Caesars fail. So I call. So I try to book online, which is how I book here. So I, I thought it'd be. I didn't have to call anybody. I thought I could just uh, fire up my computer, book my two days at Harris online. I saw the prices; they were very good. I think the whole thing was going to cost me like fifty bucks after tax for the two nights combined. So I get all ready to hit the book button, and it says that I cannot stay at Harris at these prices because I'm presently booked in a hotel room. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. I had a reservation at a different Caesars property, the Rio, actually, but I had already long checked out of that one. So why did they think that I was still at a Caesars property? Because the place I was at with the comp that a friend got me that was not a Caesars property. I hadn't been to a Caesars property in several days. So how could they say I'm still at a Caesars property? So I'm really scratching my head on that one. Well, the problem is it's not as simple as just calling up the property and say, hey, what's going on? Because whenever you try to call anyone at Caesars these days, there's a high chance you're going to get the Philippines. In fact, you can pick up your phone in a Caesars property room and hit front desk and you will get the Philippines. Not only once you get the real front desk, you won't even get someone in in this country. So it's very frustrating. This won't happen every time. Like if you call from the room phone, like I'd say 85% of the time Philippines, 15% of the time someone in the U.S., but you can't just hang up and try back because it usually has to do with the time of day, how busy they are with the calls they're receiving versus the stateside staff they have. And this is partially related to the worker shortage and partially related to Caesars being cheap kind of a combination of the two things but it's awful and the philippines are not empowered to do anything they they're, they cannot make any exceptions their supervisor cannot make any exceptions they're basically like talking to an ai they they follow exact rules that are dictated to them beforehand and they cannot deviate even slightly from anything but I thought, okay, maybe they'll be able to fix whatever this is, because I'm not asking for exceptions here. This is just something that's wrong. It's something that's incorrect. It says I'm pr- currently checked in to a Caesar's property when I am not and have not for several days. So before I tell you what they found out, uh, Trader Ruski, what, what is your guess as to what was happening here? Unless I told you. If I already told you, I don't, mean, could don't they, say could they still have showed the room still in, in, in play? Well, that's possible. So I'm going to let you, that be your guess, and I'll tell you the answer in a second. So the Philippines just couldn't help. They, they couldn't figure it out. They just said, I'm sorry, sir. Uh, I'm showing that, too. I don't know why. I, I can't give you any further details. I don't have further details. Sorry. So I, I was going back and forth, back, back and forth, back and forth. And what they were telling me is my only option, really is to book it at the standard rack rate. So I'm no longer getting my rate 
as what they give me personally, I'd be paying the rate that everybody off the street would pay who's never set foot in a Caesars property in their life, which is much more expensive. So it was like a huge difference. It was like it was like a difference between $25 a night to $140 a night. So there's no way I was going to pay that because of their screw-up. So I said, no, I can't do that. Well, I'm sorry, so there's no, no other option. <sighs> so I'm trying, trying, trying so hard to get them to transfer me to someone in the U.S. And it's it's really like a crapshoot. Sometimes they can do it. Sometimes they can't. Sometimes you can try 10 times before you get someone. Eventually you'll get there, but I mean, it is so difficult sometimes to get someone in the U.S. In fact, if you're actually staying at a Caesars property, sometimes it's a better idea, really, just to go down to the front desk physically, walk down there, and, and ask them whatever you need. Because the effort required to get the Philippines to do it for you, or to, uh, and usually they can't, or to get you over to a U.S. rep is not worth the effort. It's better to just put it on your pants and go downstairs. So here... It wasn't a matter of putting my pants and going downstairs. It was a matter of I had to. I wasn't at a Caesar's property. I had to. And, and besides, they can't book rooms on the front desk anyway. So I need someone here to solve this for me. And first and foremost, what the hell is it sh- is happening with it showing me still being in a room? So finally, they transferred me to someone in the U.S. And boy, was I relieved. I mean, I'd been on the phone quite some time. It took a few different reps to finally get someone. But I finally got someone in the U.S. And I said, okay. Please stay on the phone with me. Please, you know, don't put me on hold or anything because I, I really got to, I need your help. You're the only one who can help me here. It's so hard to get you on the phone. It took a long time. And so I told the guy what was going on. And he looked into it and he said, sir, I can see the problem. The problem is that you're currently checked into the Rio. So you're right, Trainerowski. You figured it out. I checked out of the Rio, but the Rio didn't check me out. I, now, you may think, well, maybe I just walked out of the room and then they didn't realize I left. No, I went into the Diamond VIP room and I checked out with a human being. And they printed a folio for me, which I still had. And everything should have been fine. I should have been checked out. But somehow there's, the person did not hit the right button in the system and I was still checked in. This was now five days after I physically left the property. So I said, well, that's a disaster. I said, we've, now we've got two problems. Number one, you've got to check me out so we can book this room. And number two, it probably shows I owe money for being there the past five days, including which a weekend had passed, which was expensive. So the guy said, yeah, let me work on that. So he puts me on a long hold. This is a U.S. guy. This guy is based in Vegas. He puts me on a long hold. And he comes back and says, okay, I have good news for you. I was able to get someone at the Rio who says that uh, they have fixed the problem. I said, oh, good, good. And he said, uh, it did show that uh, you were still checked in there. However, fortunately, the maid noted just hours after you left that you had left the room. They actually put that on the maid's notes. And for some reason, that never got down to the front desk. So with the maid noting that, they should have checked you out anyway. So this was... Uh, so you, but you also checked out and got the folio. Right. So, on the maid. so I, told him, I told him that, and then I looked at the folio, and it turned out I didn't notice it at the time, because why would I be scrutinizing it like this? But it actually didn't show that uh, the room was actually checked out. If you looked at the top right, it said checkout date, and it was like the wrong date in the future. 
Because what had happened was I had booked the room way longer than I really needed it. And, uh, but then when I left, um, I, I, I had cut that off early and I checked out with the room and they, uh, they, they forgot to adjust the checkout date or whatever. So that's, that's what happened here. But yeah, it was completely their fault. They messed up big time. But the funny thing is the maid noticed like hours later I was gone and communicated to the front desk and they still didn't do anything. <laughs> so, so what I had was a printout of my current folio, not a checkout folio. But who would have guessed that? I said, can you print out my checkout folio? Okay, here it is, sir. Showed zero balance. Uh, okay, sweet. Like uh, That's what I expected. I never had this happen in all my time staying at hotels ever. Not just Caesars Properties, not just Vegas Properties. Ever at any hotel. I've never had it where I've checked out and they didn't show me checked out until I was 50 years old <laughs> at, at the Rio there in, in June. Have, have you ever had that happen before? No. And what I was saying is you were probably standing there with all your bags. So it wasn't like you just ran down there to get an updated folio. Yeah, I'm right. sure you had all your crap with you. Yeah, that's true. That's exactly how I was standing there. So th- this was uh, very surprising. and But okay. The guy said it was fixed. Good. Good. So I said, okay, uh, can you book the room? So he uh, said, yes, I can. And then he quoted me prices that were about double of the prices that I had seen online. <laughs> And I said, no, 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 no. That's not the prices. I'm telling you the prices I saw online. He said, well, that's what I'm showing here. So I said, well, hang on. I, I, I took a screenshot because I was worried this might happen. I was worried what if the prices go up while we're solving all this. So I took a screenshot. I'll send you the screenshot. And he said, um, okay, but uh, I'm not sure if they can do this. You know, the, So he puts me on a long-ass hold and speaks to a supervisor and comes back to me and says, okay, the supervisor is willing to make these compromises, but uh, we still can't offer it at that rate. That rate's just too good. And so it turned out the problem was that the type of room I wanted to book, which is the cheapest, because what happens at Caesars Properties is that if you're a diamond, you can book the cheapest category room, and they will always free upgrade you to the best non-suite in the property. So that's... uh, what I plan to do. I was, I'm not going to book at a higher category. I could book at the lowest category and then just have them free upgrade me to the highest available non-suite room in the property. So what happened was that category was, quote, sold out in the system, even though I wasn't really going to be staying in that category. So they couldn't offer that to me anymore. But I said, but this was available. If you can see here, I took a screenshot while, while we were on the phone. I showed them the time on the screenshot. I said, this, this is... This was available at the time, and I was explaining the whole thing. Yeah, no, we know, but this is the best we can do for you. Look, we're already discounting the room a lot more. So I think what they – it was actually more than double. So what what the website and and they wanted at first was for me to pay like like $110, $120 for the uh, two days combined, that that they were offering it to me for like – 85 or 90 combined and my deal that i had when i made the call that only failed because they had me erroneously checked in was like 50 dollars combined so i said no i said i don't want to pay even one dollar more because of your mistake i'm not asking for comps i'm not asking for you guys to compensate me for all this trouble i said we've been on the phone more than an hour over all this fail when i should have just been in it should have been like an effortless booking that that should have taken like 30 seconds because of this one mistake at the Rio. And this was not my fault, obviously. So 
All I'm asking is to undo any damage it does me. I'm not asking for anything for my time or my trouble. I just want to not pay more because this happened. Well, we understand that, sir, but there's no way to do it. So they put the... Eventually, I asked for the supervisor, and I spoke to the supervisor, and she she was nice, and she tried to be helpful, but she said, look, I'm just going to be honest with you. I don't have a way to discount the room down that much. They they give us only certain power here, and uh, this is beyond what I can do. I gave you the most I can do, and unfortunately, I can't go beyond that. So I said, well, this is still a big problem. I, I understand and believe you, but what do we do here? And she said... Well, you can go down to the property itself. You can go to Harris itself and try to talk them into it at the front desk. I said, okay, you know, I may actually do that. But uh, then I noticed one additional problem. Uh, remember they said they checked me out of the Rio room? Well, I knew they had because I, while I was on the phone, I got an email saying, thank you for staying at the Rio. Your folio is enclosed. So that meant I was finally checked out. I didn't bother to open the folio, though, until near the end of this call. So I opened the folio... And it said that I am checked out as of that day, and I owe $543. (laughs) So so they checked me out of the real, all right, but they checked me out presently, as if I had been there the past five days and said, hey, $543, please. So I, I told the supervisor, hey, fix this, please. And she said, I can't. I said, what do you mean you can't? Well, only the Rio can backdate your checkout. We don't have that power here. I said, well, can you call the, the Rio about this? No, even the people we spoke to can't do this. Uh, this will have to go through the billing office, which is only open during such and such hours. And besides, you can't call them. We have, to, uh, we have to email this to them, and tomorrow they'll take a look at it. I said, that's a freaking disaster, because I know what's going to happen. I said, you're going to email them, and they're going to look at it, and they're going to look at my original reservation, which went through these days, and say, oh, this guy just wants uh, money back for days in the room that, uh, that he doesn't want to pay for. F him. Like, because the, unless they see proof at the, at the billing office that I left, uh, they're not going to give it to me. And I have a feeling they're not going to read the maid's notes. I said, do you think that's possible? And she said, well, actually, yes. <laughs> so she even conceded that it's possible the billing office is going to reject this. I was like, oh, no, 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 no. I said, okay, I hate to have to do this, but can I, if I go down to the Rio right now, if I drive down there and park and walk my my ass in there and confront them about what happened here and ask them to fix it on the spot, do they have the ability to do that? And she said, yes. And I said, is there a way you can transfer me over there so I don't have to walk down there? And she said, No. The only way you're going to get someone who can do this is if you physically go down there. So, fortunately, still being in Vegas, I physically went down there. And the hotel I was staying that before staying before there was not close to the Rio. It wasn't even on the Strip. I didn't care where I was. I just had to, yeah, I just wanted to stay somewhere and wait for the COVID uh, to be over. So, uh, you know, here was towards the end. Here, in fact, I was, by, according to the CDC, I was not contagious and I didn't feel sick at all anymore. So I didn't feel bad about walking into the Rio and, and complaining about this. So I, I went down to, uh, to the Rio, approached the front desk and said to them, hey, guys, uh, 
there is this billing fail, and I explain the whole story to them, and can you fix this? So the rep at the front desk said, actually, no. <laughs> I said, you've got to be kidding me. Oh, no, you've got to go to billing. I said, come on, you guys are the front desk. You've got to be able to do this. So can I speak to your manager? Okay, so I wait, wait, wait. Finally, a manager comes out. Good news, she tells me, she can fix it. I said, you sure? She said, oh, yeah, I, I can roll back your checkout date, and I can wipe out the $543 you owe, and I, I can fix the whole thing. If you just, She said, I can either do this right now while you wait, or I can do it later and, and contact you. I said, ah, I think I'll wait for you to do it right now. So I stood there as she was doing it, and she was like very busy at work like trying to get this... Uh, fixed like she was like type 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 type. like i didn't want to interrupt her too much because i didn't want to have her mess this up i just wanted her to fix this for me and she was doing it but then i thought about something i said you know what this has been like two hours now i've been at this shit and i'm not even done i've got to go to harrah's now and try to beg them to lower my rates back to what they should have been so i said I thought to myself, you know what? They, I think they do owe me something. You know, here I'm about to actually settle my final bill of when I actually was staying there. Because remember, I wasn't checked out yet, so I hadn't actually settled the bill yet. So they're about to settle my final bill. So I thought, you know what? I think they should take something off for this. This, this wasted two hours of my time and aggravation over a mistake of theirs. So I, I politely said to her, I said, uh, excuse me, I, I don't want to interrupt you, but... I, I uh, let me show you on my phone here. Look at this long phone call, and I showed her the length of the call to Caesar's, the Caesar's number, and I uh, told her all the hassle. You know, very briefly, I didn't tell a big long story, but I you know I made it clear what had happened, and I said, I'm just wondering, can you maybe take uh, one of the room nights off or do something? No, I didn't say. I said, I said, I said, perhaps you could do something on my bill here because of uh, how much trouble this was and she says oh yeah, yeah that, that, that's fine i'll take a night off for you so i said okay that's fine so i'm sitting there as she's doing it and then i had a bad thought the price of the nights i did spend at the rio it was not at all uniform that the weeknights were really cheap like seven or eight bucks a night and the weekends were fairly expensive like you know 90 bucks a night. When I say fairly expensive, I mean compared to like seven or eight bucks. So I was like, oh, no, no, no. Hold on a second. Uh, please don't take off one of the nights that's like $8. That's going to basically do nothing. Can you take off something that isn't like that? She says, oh, no, no, no. I understand. I understand. I wasn't going to take off one of those. I said, okay, good. Thank you. Thank you. So then I went quiet and let her do her work. And she says, okay, it's all set. Well, did she take off one of those $8 rooms? No. Uh, she took off one of the $23 nights. <laughs> and she didn't even fully take that off. She like discounted it down to like $6. So what the hell? Like, oh, no, no, I'm not going to take the $8 one off. But let me take the $20 room off. Like, what the hell? That's not what I was expecting. Like, how about take one of the weekend nights off that was like 90 Or at least discount it down to 30 or something for this whole thing. I mean, come on. I mean, I got like 17 bucks back for this whole thing. But whatever, I was so sick of this, I didn't even argue. You would expect it, I'd, I'd bitch about that like terrible discount they were giving. No, I, I just I was so happy to have this solved, I just accepted it. I'm like, um, 
Yeah, okay, fine. And then she, so she processed it, she printed the thing, she showed me it was, it was processed correctly, and I believed her, and, and I walked out. So, okay, almost done, right? Almost done. But now we got to go down to Harrah's and negotiate with them. So I drive myself from Rio to Harrah's, get my stuff, walk in. I'm not booked there yet. Because remember, the, uh, or actually, I was sort of booked. I was booked in like a cancelable reservation. That supervisor did do me that favor. She says she booked it in a way that if I don't get satisfaction from Harris and they won't give me the lower price, I can just have them cancel it and it won't be any penalty. So I went down there with kind of like that half reservation and having to negotiate with them. So I go up to the front desk and I explain it to them and they say, well, hold on a second. Uh, let's see what we can do for you. And the, the woman at the front was very nice. So I'm expecting she's going to go back, explain this to her manager, get permission, and come back and do it. No, uh, she was gone a long time, and then eventually she brought out the manager. Well, the manager had to deal with some other things that were also happening with other people. For example, you remember the story a few years ago. Actually, I guess it's more than a few by now, but uh, William Sodstegard who's uh, willing to die on Twitter, willing number two die. He had that awful thing at the Rio where they double-checked in his room and uh, someone checked in and stole from him, stole his iPad and 2000 bucks, and then the Rio didn't want to take responsibility for it and only gave him back whatever this guy returned, but wouldn't give him back all the money until he shamed them on uh, this show and on social media. We had him on here and all that, but... Uh, I was wondering how often that actually occurs. Well, right next to me at Harrah's was a guy whose room was double-checked in, except he was the one who walked into a room with someone else in there. So the dude opens up the room, and there's people sitting in there. He's like, what the fuck? And they're like, what are you doing in our room? And he's like, I don't know. This is supposed to be my room. Sorry, I'll go go back down and uh, talk to the front desk. So fortunately, nothing bad happened. But yeah, someone was double-checked in, and I, I guess it's good that the person was there, so there's no potential for theft. So they had to deal with those people. And uh, they were like totally not apologetic either. Like you'd think they would really act like they're sorry or want to give them something. No, just, oh, well, it happens. You know, we, we double-check people in sometimes. Oh, well, like that's no big deal. Then there was someone else who was having some kind of issue. I don't even know what it was. But he was starting to like argue with, with a rep that he was dealing with. And the manager hears this, and then the manager just shuts him up. The manager goes, ah, 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 don't you speak that way. We don't do that here. You're going to change your tone. And I'm like, whoa. <laughs> and the guy's like, well, I'm not, I'm not being rude. He says, yes, you are. I heard the words you said. You're not going to talk to her this way. Uh, you're going to calm it down or you're gone. I'm like, whoa, this dude here. Like, I didn't hear what it was. It's possible maybe the guy was out of line. I know there are hotel guests who are jerks and who are abusive to the uh, – the rep, but I was right next to him. I didn't hear anything that bad. I was only like half paying attention, but um, but that manager's like jumped on that guy and was about to like eject him if he did, if he didn't change his tone. So then uh, then they went over and handled that guy's issue where the hell it was. Then he comes back to me, and uh, I got this whole lecture about this is the only time they're going to do this for me. This is a one time exception. Blah 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 blah. And I'm like. I didn't argue because they were doing it for me, and I didn't figure this was going to happen again. But how is this a one-time exception that I got fucked by a, a, a checkout that wasn't made as a checkout, and I had to pay a higher price for that? So um, I did ask him. I did say, well, um, 
the only reason I was asking for this wasn't as a favor was because of an error that the Rio made is why the price went up. And he said back to me, yeah, that's the only reason we're doing this for you. So, it, again, there, was, there wasn't any apologies for this. It was just kind of a... Um, kind of like, be happy we're, we're helping you here. Which I was happy they helped me. I just kind of thought that... Uh, <laughs> This shouldn't be something that's accompanied with a lecture like we're never doing this for you again. It should be just, uh, hey, we're sorry the Rio messed this up for you. We're, we're not, we don't normally adjust prices for people, but we're doing it because, uh, because the Rio messed this up and we apologize. So I just, we're just letting you know that this is a uh, – we're doing the exception for this reason. I mean, that would be fine with that, but it was kind of made – explain to me like uh, this is just a one-time lifetime thing they're ever going to do this for me for any reason. Um, I think from what I've been observing at some of the Lesser Caesars properties that the clientele has changed pretty much since COVID started and it kind of never changed back to where there's uh, more of a uh, lower-end clientele there at at these properties. And it made sense during COVID when people just got their checks or whatever and people came to Vegas who normally didn't and a lot of criminal element came there and stuff like that. But I don't see that anymore. I don't really see like like people there who are uh, causing trouble or committing crime or look really scary. I'm not talking about that. I'm just saying that uh, if the class of clientele there they have has changed to where it does seem like... Uh, they, I think now Harris and Flamingo and some of these other lower end Caesars properties are perceiving that and therefore treating people like almost like they're going to a budget hotel. Because it, it, in general, the way you're treated at any business is directly related to the whether it's considered a high end, medium end, or low end experience. And I don't just mean hotels, I mean all industries. Now, there's a few exceptions, like, like uh, there's some companies like In N Out, which even though you're going to a fast food place, uh, everyone is commanded to treat you with the utmost respect and be extremely friendly. But that's, that's an unusual situation, that's an outlier. In general, any lower end thing you're doing, you're, tr- you're typically not going to be treated all that great. And any higher-end experience, they're supposed to treat you with uh, you know, so much respect to the point of ass-kissing. And then, of course, there's the middle grounds. So I think what's happened is I think they are perceiving. I think the workers at, at Caesars and, and – uh, not Caesars, the workers at Harris and, and Flamingo and uh, the Link and the, you know, the cheaper properties in the Caesars portfolio – are kind of looking down on the clientele, like, hey, the, these we're the low-end properties here where the uh, uh, lower-middle-class people are coming – and we're going to treat them that way. And so I think that's the reason for the way people are being talked to there and treated there. They pro- they probably think they're safer, too, because there's such a shortage of employees. What are they going to do? Get rid of them? The, right. That's another good point, is that with the shortage of employees, they, they, they feel less uh, worried that if there's complaints about them, that there's going to be issues. But, like, I've noticed... I've told this story before, and I, I think it applies here a little bit. I needed something done at an AT&T store, and I happened to be in one particular city, which wasn't a, a, a very good neighborhood. And I, I went in there because it just happened to be where I was, and I was waiting for something else. So I had some time to kill. I go, okay, we well, might as well get my AT&T problem fixed. So I go into the store. Not only was it super crowded, but 
they were treating everyone in there like shit. I was watching it. And uh, it wasn't a racial thing because uh, the employees uh, were the same race as the the clientele there except for me <laughs> and and they were treat they, like they were treating all the customers like shit so it wasn't even like one race talking down to the other it was i was all the same race and and uh, i'm like whoa this is uh this is pretty bad like this is very disrespectful when i'm watching well, not even to me like i was just uh watching the way of treating the other people there and then also actually also to me they were just kind of rude and and uh unaccommodating so i just left i, I just left i said i don't want to deal with this place uh on the way back home I stopped at another AT&T store in a much better area, and I walked in, and not only wasn't it crowded, but boy, were they nice and friendly and accommodating and helpful, and and, uh, and I go, wow, I can't believe this exact same company, corporate store, but one is in an area that isn't very good, where the clientele is expected to not be very well off, and another one is a much better area, and it's amazing the difference in how I was treated. I'm the same guy, same day, same problem, same store. I mean, same company store, totally two different treatments. So a lot of times it's it has to do with the perception of your class of how you're treated. Not not I, I see that a lot more often than I see different treatments based upon race. And uh, I even see that the difference between downtown and the strip in Vegas. I've talked about that before, too, where in downtown they, they kind of treat you like your low class trash. And then in uh, the strip, they will treat you with more respect. So that's one of the reasons I don't like going downtown is I feel like I'm being looked at as trash. I'm being dealt with in a way that uh, I'm not seen as someone who is uh, worthy of being treated with respect. So, and of course, I'm generalizing, but I, I, I noticed this, and I think that's starting to happen in some of these strip properties, the lower-end strip properties, uh, even ones where it didn't used to be the case because uh, their clientele has changed and the, and the employees' attitudes have uh, changed along with it, which I think is, is lousy. I think that uh, everybody should be treated with respect and that uh, there shouldn't be these judgments of that, um, you know, such and such type of clientele comes here, so we're not, we're not going to treat them well. Yeah, we're losing trade risky again. So they did it for me. I mean, it kind of looked like it was just barely. It kind of looked like it was very reluctantly done for me. So the good news is from that point forward, everything was fine. The room was fine, and uh, I wasn't overcharged or anything, and they, they did lower the price as promised. I was a little nervous because they wouldn't give me a printout of uh, the new prices. I got them to handwrite something for me, but you know what's that going to mean? But it, they did keep their word. I was charged the right amount. So when it was all said and done, I wasn't out any money. But what a freaking mess, you know? Like, this is all because they didn't check me out. And it took hours to resolve. It's not like I caught it and called and said, hey, fix this, please, and they fixed it. This was an hour's process, and I did everything I could to try to solve it. And it wasn't something I could just let go because I needed the room that night. So unless I wanted to like severely overpay as if it was my second room, I needed this fixed right on the spot. I had to physically go down there. And isn't that crazy that they cannot call someone at the property to fix this? That I had to physically go there? It wasn't just that I couldn't call someone. They couldn't call someone. When I say they, I mean the call center. The Caesars call center could not, even someone based in Vegas, could not call the Rio and get someone who is like a front desk manager and say, hey, fix this for Todd Wittellis. They couldn't do it. I had to physically present myself. What if I wasn't in Vegas anymore? I would have been fucked. So, I mean, this is just so bad. And I realize it has to do with the worker shortage somewhat. And that's part of the reason some of this is happening, but still... 
I hope you enjoyed the Caesar's fail story. First time ever I've been uh, not checked out when they tell me I'm checked out. Okay, so we're going to talk about the Fremont Street experience and the shooting there. We've talked about on a recent show a problem that they're having at the Fremont Street experience with what are known as the buskers or the street performers. And this was a problem that has dated back to when they first built the thing in 95. But it's a problem that has come out much more in the last 10 years as these buskers have become more and more problematic. And they've had trouble getting rid of them because the Constitution guarantees free speech in public spaces and street performance is considered a form of free speech. So if there's a public space and someone wants to do street performance, it's actually illegal by federal law to tell them they can't, just like you can't tell someone not to protest in a public space. So this has been very difficult where these street performers have been causing a lot of problems. And uh, we've been over that on another show we did about this. And I'm not going to rehash all that. Now, this isn't really about the street performers, but that and many other factors have been causing the Fremont Street experience downtown to become more and more dangerous and crime-ridden and attracting a bad element. So when I heard about what happened there, I wasn't even that surprised, even though this didn't have to do with street performance, but it's just kind of part of the whole package there. And I, I really just am not enjoying downtown very much at all. Not that I was ever a big downtown guy, but now I, I really kind of avoid it. So apparently there was a fight that broke out there. And I'm not sure the reason for the fight, but there was a fight that broke out among people at the Fremont Street experience. It did not involve any employees or any of these buskers, to my knowledge. But there was a shooting during this fight resulting in one of the people fighting to be shot dead and another one, an innocent bystander, was shot but survived. That's not good. Imagine you're just walking around the Fremont Street experience and shots ring out and you're one of the unfortunate people who would be actually get shot when you have nothing to do with the fight going on. I mean, this could happen to me or you just walking by. So uh, there's actually video of this and you can see who did the shooting. Not really clearly, but you can see the fight happening and you can see one of the people who was fighting eventually uh, pulled out a gun and one of the people, other people who was fighting uh, hit the ground. You can't see the bystander who was shot. But this was posted on the Network in Vegas Twitter account. They were looking for the shooter. They said, uh, this is from the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police. It said, on June 19th at approximately 2.12 a.m., officers working foot patrol in the Fremont Street Experience heard gunfire in the area. As they responded on foot, officers located two victims suffering from gunshot wounds. The victims were transported to UMC Trauma, where one was pronounced deceased. The second was treated for non-life-threatening injury. So I'm guessing like the person who was the innocent bystander was probably shot in the foot or the hand or something where it sucks and it's going to take a while to heal, but you're not going to die from it. The investigation from Las Vegas Metro PD homicide indicates a fight broke out between several people in the Fremont Street experience. 
During the fight, one of the suspects pulled out a handgun and began firing. The victim who died was involved in the original altercation. The second victim was an innocent bystander. The identification of the victim, as well as the cause and manner of death, will be released by the Clark County Coroner's Office. Anyone with info about this incident is urged to contact uh, Las Vegas Metro, blah, blah, blah. So at that point, on June 19th, they did not have the information on who did it. They had not arrested anybody, to my knowledge. They didn't say that. So that's uh, not good. <laughs> that's, that's not good that there's like shootings right on Fremont Street. The person who was killed was uh, eventually identified. It was a, uh, a 23-year-old guy whose name is uh, Raymond Renova. But they still have not made an arrest from what I can see. And uh, the person who was shot was uh, someone who's actually a tourist who is uh, visiting Las Vegas. And the person who's, who was the victim of that was uh, Kenneth Tyler Sommer, S-O-M-M-E-R. And he was just kind of cro- caught in the crossfire. He said he was, on his, he was on vacation with his wife Taylor and a group of friends. And uh, at around 2 a.m., they were actually in front of a kiosk buying souvenirs for their kids when a fight broke out in the crowd. He, it wasn't clear to him what it was about. And uh, Taylor, his wife, grabbed his arm. And uh, because he wasn't really focusing on the fight, he was just looking at souvenirs and wasn't paying attention. And then a spokesperson of the family said Tyler came around the kiosk and he took two steps forward to look at what was going on. As he starts to turn away, he heard gunshots and instantly felt it. The first shot hit Tyler right in the abdomen above his belly button. Wow, I'm surprised that he uh, wasn't more hurt than this. As he grabbed his stomach, a family member said he felt another shot in his right leg below his knee. He was trying to move out of the way and that's when the third shot hit him in his left foot. Wow, he got three shots. At first, he thought his foot got blown off because he said that hurt the most. But the bullet didn't actually penetrate his foot. It ricocheted off his boots, which you can see in the photo above. Uh, it definitely bruised the absolute hell out of the side of my left foot, Tyler posted on Facebook early, early Monday morning. And he said that he felt a burning sensation in his abdomen like it was on fire. And he said the crowd was running away, including his wife and uh However, she realized that he wasn't running with her, and she quickly turned around to see where he was and saw he was lying on the ground and ran to him. So she wasn't trying to ditch him. She thought he was with her. And then when she realized that he wasn't, she came back. A police officer then came there and uh, aided Tyler. He pushed against Tyler's uh, stomach to keep him from bleeding, or stop the bleeding at least, and uh, kept apologizing if he was causing him more pain. Tyler said, push as hard as you can. I'm a dad. I don't want to leave my kids. He truly felt like he was dying. Wow. And the officer removed his belt to make a tourniquet to stop the bleeding in Tyler's leg. And then they rushed him to the hospital. The doctors performed surgery on his abdomen and determined that the bullet fractured the top part of his pelvic bone, but narrowly missed his joints and other vital organs. I guess that's why they were, I mean, they really made this sound like it wasn't as big of a deal with non-life-threatening injuries. I just found this right now. I kind of thought he was just shot in his foot, but... Uh, that's uh, pretty bad. It looks like it just missed killing him or seriously injuring him, and he still had to have the surgery, and it went into his abdomen, and he thought he was going to die. Sometimes when you get injured 
where you feel the pain the most is not actually what's actually what's damaged the most. When I fainted at Caesar's Palace in the room in 2014, I remember when I came to about a minute and a half later, the thing that hurt the most was my forehead. The thing that hurt the second most was my hip. And the thing that hurt the third most was my rib. And I said, as soon as I kind of came back into full consciousness and understood what happened, I said to my girlfriend, you know, my forehead hurts because I scraped it on the carpet and that really hurts a lot and my hip hurts a lot, but I'm worried about my ribs because I thought right away I may have fractured or broken a rib and I could tell I didn't break my hip, it just hurt. And my forehead, I could just see there was a scrape. So the scrape, I it hurt a lot, but I knew it was going to get better fast and not be a problem. And the hip, I figured, was just bruised and it's going to get better. And I was right about both of those. And unfortunately, I was also right about the rib. I broke three ribs. But that right away, that was not the most pain. After a short time, that became the most pain. That's really too bad. Now, this guy was just vacationing in Vegas and gets shot. Wow. So yeah, Fremont Street's becoming a problem. It's a bad element hanging around there. This isn't just shocking that this occurred. I wasn't like, oh my God, Fremont Street is shooting. Oh. All right. Let's move on to the next topic here. This is a weird story about a counterfeit tournament ticket. And it's not a Vegas story, but I think you'll find it interesting. So this has to do with Deadwood, South Carolina, which is a gambling town, and you have Indian casinos there. Actually, you know what? I, this isn't the final topic. I, we got to still do the Poker Hall of Fame. I forgot about that. But anyway, uh, in Deadwood, they have casinos and they have poker tournaments. And there are two guys who are now banned from the entire city of Deadwood, at least the casinos there, because of a scheme to generate a counterfeit tournament ticket and basically play a tournament for free. So the two guys involved were Rick Burleson and Benjamin Palmer. And I should say before you Google either of them, there is a Benjamin Palmer who is a successful tournament player. And that's not the same guy. This this is kind of like a nobody Benjamin Palmer that lives in South Dakota. So don't blame the successful tournament guy. But what happened was that apparently Palmer worked at this uh, one casino there where these tournaments were taking place and was able to generate uh, tournament tickets. And, of course, uh, he couldn't play on it, but uh, he made an agreement with this Burleson guy to uh, give him the ticket and then to split the winnings. So... What happened was uh, he went down to uh, Benjamin Palmer's house and got a tournament ticket that uh, Palmer had produced for him. And uh, this was at the uh, Silverado Casino in Deadwood. It was for $1,100. It was a you know, pretty big tournament by Deadwood standards. And Burleson got into the tournament successfully, and he'd been playing for about four hours when poker manager... Greg Glott approached him and said the ticket wasn't valid. Burleson told the Gaming Commission in South Dakota that uh, 
he d- was not under the impression that it was a fraudulent ticket. He just thought he had bought a ticket from this Palmer guy that yeah, he was just sold. But uh, apparently that wasn't true. An agent of the uh, Gaming Commission of South Dakota named uh, Brian Sweats said that Burleson was very aware of this and they had uh, made this agreement beforehand that he would obtain the ticket this way. Agent Sweats testified at a commission hearing that after he arrested Palmer for his participation in the scheme, that Palmer admitted that he, quote, made an extra ticket for his friend, and then Palmer voluntarily let Agent Sweats accept his, uh, inspect his cell phone. And then uh, Agent Sweats found Facebook messages between Palmer and Burleson. And in these messages, uh, they were basically agreeing that he was going to get this fake ticket that was generated for no real money and that uh, the winnings would be split, whatever Burleson cashed, if anything, would be split between them. There were also apparently text messages where they had uh, similar discussions. The whole reason for this, this was not a trial. This was actually a hearing because Burleson wanted to be unbanned from the city of Deadwood. Burleson claimed that he had been playing in Deadwood for 12 years and that he really wanted to come back and he was basically trying to pitch the story that Palmer had just sold him a ticket and he had no idea he was buying something that was counterfeit. But they were saying, hey, look, we already looked at Palmer's exchange with you on Facebook and text messages and it was very clear you knew what this was, that you knew he was making a fake ticket for you and that uh, anything you won, you were going to give him half of it. So, no, we're not unbanning you. So, Burleson and Palmer are both excluded from Deadwood, South Carolina casinos. They cannot set foot in them, and this hearing to overturn that for Burleson was denied. They they had the hearing, but they denied the overturning. I can't find anything about uh, what criminal charges are being filed and what penalties they may face there. I know that Palmer was arrested, and that's where they got these Facebook messages, but... I'm not reading anything about that case, but it's pretty interesting, right? Like, a, I haven't heard of this before, where an employee of a casino generates a fake tournament ticket without collecting the money. I would think this is computerized. I would think that the casino would be short on the money, and then they'd have to figure out where that money went. That's, the, that's where I think the big hole would be. This may have worked a long time ago. Now, maybe this is done manually at Silverado in... Deadwood. Otherwise, I can't see how they'd pull this off. Because otherwise, there would be a short. It'd be basically the same thing as just uh, pocketing cash that's given to you as an employee there. Like, if there's a short of $1,100, <laughs> the casino's going to say, what the fuck? You know, where's that 1100 that disappears? That's not really going to work. Unless he just kind of figured out a way to print the ticket and then invalidate it in some way and hope nobody catches on. But I guess they caught on after four hours. Okay, so moving on to our last actual topic. I want to talk about the uh, Poker Hall of Fame, and then we'll get into the COVID stuff in the editorial. So the Poker Hall of Fame comes around uh, every year. I always have my little speech about it, how I think it's bullshit, and I think they need to massively reform it. And a lot of people think this, and then it never gets reformed. It's got a few problems. So I'll tell you the problems again, including a new problem. 
a fairly new problem. And then I will list the nominees, and then I'll quickly tell you who I feel belongs in there and who doesn't. The two problems are, number one, they will only induct one person each year, which is stupid because there's a lot more poker players becoming eligible each year than there used to be because poker got much bigger. Plus, because one of the requirements is they had to be 40 or older, a lot of good players from the 2000s are, are now turning 40. So these good young guys from the 2000s who might qualify for the Poker Hall of Fame, they will now have their shot. And we had this massive influx of people into the game, a lot of whom were young in the 2000s, and a lot of them are turning 40, and yet uh, instead of increasing the number of people inducted, they have decreased it from two to one. That's problem number one. Problem number two is that non-players are competing with players, which is insane. So you have guys like Isai Scheinberg, Lon McCarron, Norman Chad, and Matt Savage competing with players for that one spot. And sports deal with all this, this all the time. Vince Scully, who is uh, the very, very, very long-time announcer for the Dodgers... He worked 66 years for the team. He is in the Baseball Hall of Fame, but he didn't compete with players to be inducted to the Hall of Fame. He was inducted separately as a non-player, and him getting a spot in the Hall of Fame didn't take away spots from players who would have won otherwise. So the players compete with one another, and then non-players get inducted separately. That doesn't make Vince Scully any less of a Hall of Famer. He just wasn't competing with actual baseball players because it wouldn't make sense because he's not doing the same thing as they are. So they should do the same thing in poker. They should not have players competing with ones who are getting inducted for reasons unrelated. Third problem. This might be the biggest problem. The voting can be rigged. The voting is done by getting a list of the nominees and then ranking them from 1 to 10 of their worthiness to be in the Hall of Fame. But, and here's where the trick comes in, you don't have to rank all of them. So if out of the 10 you think only 3 deserve to be in, you can just put 1, 2, 3 and leave the rest blank. You only do 1 through 10 if you think they, all 10 should get in. And if you think only one person deserves it, you can just put 1 and leave the rest blank. So what this allows is that anyone who wants to rig this can just put a one for the person they want and leave the rest blank, and this allows them to gain on the others a lot faster. Very simply put, if someone ranks all 10 people, the person who gets a one will only gain one point on the person who gets a two. But someone who ranks only one person, that person will gain 10 points on everybody because you get 10 points for one, nine points for two, eight points for three, et cetera, et cetera, all the way down to one point for 10 and zero points if you're left blank. So the way to help a preferred person to get in is to put one for them and leave everyone else blank. So say some people get together who all want to see the same person elected and all agree that they are going to put a one down for the person they want and leave the rest blank. That'll give a tremendous edge to that person where it's pretty much guaranteed they're going to win if enough people do it. So that's what's been happening. There is kind of a clique of voters who are uh, Poker Hall of Fame members who 
pretty much control who gets elected by that way. They just get together and do exactly this, and they control who gets in. And then the rest of the voters don't matter. So that is something that needs reform. I thought maybe when the World Series of Poker bought the Hall of Fame that this would change, but it has not. There is a rumor that Doyle Brunson is the one who's in charge of this clique. And that Doyle kind of is one of the guys who's directing who they vote for. And yeah, they all the others get a say, but that it's like Doyle's clique there. And if they don't like you, you have no shot of getting in. And if it's not Doyle, it's someone. I, I, I used to know who they all were, but I forgot. I should have written it down or something. But I guess I'm forgetting in my old age because I'm in the seniors event. I'm at the time of my life where I'll forget things like this. But I've heard it was Doyle kind of in charge of the whole thing. Maybe it is, maybe it's not. But there, there's someone, there's some people involved in this. Let me just say that. There's some people at the Hall of Fame who are definitely uh, voting as a clique. And in this specific fashion to give certain candidates a huge edge. Because the problem is if you have like six or seven people voting this way and everybody else is actually ranking one through ten, you're giving a tremendous boost. Just like spotting 60, 70 points to the one you want being elected. The criteria to get elected is as follows. A player must have played poker against acknowledged top competition. They must be 40 or older. They must have played for high stakes. They must have played consistently well and gained the respect of peers. They must have stood the test of time, meaning they weren't as hot for one year. And uh, if they are not players, they had to have contributed to the overall growth of the game with indelible positive and lasting results. I mean, that sounds good and all, except the non-players shouldn't be competing with the players. And uh, the whole voting process is crap. They also need more spots every year. So it's the 32 living members of the Hall of Fame will be voting on who's going to be inducted. There are currently 60 people in the Hall of Fame, 32 alive, 28 dead. So here's who has been nominated. And I'll tell you what I think of uh, each of them. So first one is Elkie, Bertrand Gospelier. So Elkie is 41 years old. He's one of those young guys who recently got to be old enough. And he has $14.6 million in lifetime caches. Of course, that doesn't matter that much because it matters how high a buy-in events they play. He's won two bracelets. He also has a uh, WPT title and an EPT title. So he is part of the Triple Crown group of those who have a bracelet at the World Series, WPT and EPT. You know, I don't think uh, Elkie quite qualifies. I know he's a notable player. I know he played online and, and had some good results there. But he's not someone you constantly see all over poker who's just uh, been dominating everywhere. This is someone who just... Uh, uh, you know, he's he's there, he's not there. He's someone who I don't think has, has just dominated enough to be Hall of Fame material. I don't think including him would be terrible. But, uh, for example, he only has two tournament caches in 2022, and both were for low four figures. And we're through half the year already. And you can't blame COVID for this one. 
he did better in 2021, and and I know you can't just look at recent results, but I don't know. You you just you talk about Elky, he just doesn't jump out at you as a Hall of Famer. Good player, had success, but uh, I don't see him as a, as a Hall of Famer. Brian Rast is the next one. He has 22.3 million in career tournament earnings. He is one of these younger guys from the 2000s who is now 40. He has the 29th highest Hendon Mob ranking as far as total earnings, but again, that doesn't mean that much if he's entering very high stakes. Uh, he has five bracelets, and he has won the Poker Players Championship at the World Series in 2011 and 2016, which is a tough event to win. He also run, won the uh, Super High Roller Bowl in 2015. That was one of those high-stakes entries, so I, I'm not that impressed by that. That's just, if you have a lot of money, you can enter and you can beat 42 other people, then you're the winner. But the Poker Player Championship wins was impressive, as are the five bracelets. I would say Rast uh, deserves it. I'd give it to him. Like, I'm not talking about uh, of all these 10 necessarily that he's the most deserving, but uh, he could be. I'll have to think about it in a second, but he, I would say, belongs in the Poker Hall of Fame. Now we have someone who's had some success presently, both in 2021 and 2022, but also has been around a while, Josh Arie. He was the 2021 World Series of Poker Player of the Year, and he also finished third place at the main event in 2004. Now, I will say that in the past few years, he has really done most of his damage where he's uh, three of his five best caches were in the past few years. And he has four bracelets and two of them were last year in 2021. He has a uh, 10.6 million in career earnings. He is 47. Now he's only being considered because of his uh, sudden strong performances. If you want to talk about uh, one of the best recent WSOP players, uh, I, I would say he's one of them for sure. But unfortunately, uh, he had a number of years where he just wasn't doing much. So much to where I actually forgot he was there. <laughs> and uh, I'll tell you what made me think of it is one year he actually bought a piece of me through CalWatt's uh, Tasty Steak site. So he somehow found that and he bought a piece of me at an event. I didn't cash for him, unfortunately. So sorry about that, Josh. And he's a nice guy, by the way. I like Josh. And uh, we're not friends. But. Uh, I know who he is. He knows who I am, and we've played together before. We actually spent some time playing at the main event when I went deep in 2019, uh, in the later days. And you know, he I played back with him a lot back in the day on Poker Stars when he played on there as Atlanta Angela. And you know, I think right now he's doing great, and whatever he's whatever adjustments he's made since uh, 2021 are working for him big time. I mean, this guy is really kicking ass and he just continues to win even this year. But as far as like the stood the test of time thing, he has been around a long time. He got the 04 third place at the main event and then he's kicking ass now as player of the year in 2021. The problem is in between. The problem is there are a lot of years in between where he wasn't doing much. He was there. You could see he's cashing, but he just wasn't doing much. He wasn't dominating for a long time. I'm not saying he was losing or he was doing badly. He just wasn't, he was someone you didn't think of much in, in a lot of these years in the interim. So I have to say no on this one. But if he continues at this pace, uh, definitely yes. 
Kathy Liebert, who may have a bracelet coming up because she's down to the final 18 as the chip leader of the seniors event where I hoped I'd be, but I went out 263rd. Kathy Liebert has one bracelet and she uh, won that at the Limit Hold'em shootout in 2004. She also was the first female player to ever win a seven-figure payout in a tournament, which she did at the Party Poker Million event, also Limit Hold'em, in 2002. She has 401 finishes in the money and 6.5 million in career earnings. She's 54 years old. Uh, I have spent some time with Kathy over the years. So again, we were never friends, but uh, in, in various poker venues and stuff. And, uh, you know, I've had personal interactions with her. As far as female players go, she was one of the earlier good female tournament players. And for a while, it was said that she was the best female tournament out th- player out there until some of these uh, other really good female players came on the scene later on who, who were seen to eclipse her. But the problem is, she really is not Hall of Fame material on an absolute basis. She is someone who's a excellent female player because there just aren't that many good female players and the bar is lower for good female player versus good player overall or top player. I shouldn't say good. She is a good player overall. I'm saying like top female player versus top poker player is very different. And unfortunately, uh, I don't think she qualifies for Hall of Fame poker player. She would qualify for Hall of Fame female player, but I don't think they should be gendering the inclusion of people into the Hall of Fame just because there's fewer female players. So I think she does deserve some honor for being a female who has been as successful as she has, but uh, not necessarily the Poker Hall of Fame. So I have to say no. Lane Flack is also being nominated. Now, he passed away last year at 53 due to a drug overdose. And he does have uh, those famed back-to-back bracelets that he won in 1999, but or actually it wasn't bracelets, back-to-back uh, tournament wins in, at the bike in 99. But uh, he also won a WPT in 2003. But the thing was, he doesn't have Hall of Fame numbers or credentials. I even wonder if he was a winning tournament player overall when it was all said and done. So this was someone whose personality was kind of bigger than their results. And I'm not saying he wasn't a good player. I'm just saying he wasn't a Hall of Fame caliber player and didn't have those type of results. He may get some sympathy votes because he died, but I I don't think he belongs. Mike Mizraki, 41 years old, is up to be elected to the Poker Hall of Fame. I played with Ms. Rocky on Poker Stars before anyone knew who he was back in 03. In fact, back in 03, playing him at Limit Hold'em, he was a fish. I loved having him in the game. In the years that followed, he found that he had a lot of talent for tournaments, and he became known as anything but a fish. I expected when I would meet Ms. Rocky in person, I wouldn't like him. He kind of had an arrogant look to him. I just pictured that the guy would be a jerk. Well, he wasn't. He was actually nice and soft-spoken, and uh, I, I liked Ms. Rocky, and and we got along. 
he has uh, some pretty impressive results. He won the Poker Player Championship three times, 2010, 2012, and 2018. He also has won two other bracelets. So he's a five-time bracelet winner, including three times the Poker Players Championship. That's amazing. He also made the main event final table in 2010, the year I was with him at the table at some point, because I made it down to 88 that year. And he finished in fifth. And he also has won the WPT twice. And also... And so he... So anyway, Ms. Rocky has had some pretty amazing tournament results. Now, he's had a lot of money issues. He has uh, been broke many times. And there's been a lot of irresponsible personal behavior in his life. He's not a bad guy. Like, I actually think Mike Mizraki is uh, not a bad person. He's just kind of an irresponsible person. He's actually nice, you know, whenever I've uh, interacted with him. And I've heard some uh, good stories about how he takes care of his friends who are struggling. And uh, that's part of the reason that he's had money issues is a combination of too generous and too much of a degenerate. But I can't argue with his results. I mean, three wins in the Poker Player Championship, two other bracelets, these WBT titles, the the main event final table. So, Mike Mizraki, you know, I used to beat you a lot on Poker Stars in 2003. But I will say that today I support you as a Hall of Famer, and I don't support myself as a Hall of Famer. So good job. Finally, Mike Matisau. Mike Matisau has been nominated many times and doesn't get elected. I think they don't like him. And I have a feeling that Mike Matisau probably thinks what I do. Probably thinks that this uh, little group here isn't uh, interested in electing him. That might be true. Mike Matisau is 53. He's won four bracelets. He has uh, 9.6 million in lifetime caches. And he finished ninth. So he made the final table in the 2005 World Series main event, the year that Joe Hatcham won. He also won the 2005 Tournament of Champions. So I've been kind of back and forth on Matisau's inclusion. It also helps that he's a well-known name in poker and kind of a character that people know and like in poker so i i think that kind of should help too as far as this conflict is the table it's very marginal and kind of uh i don't know, kind of i used to say yes pretty strongly uh given that there's so many other candidates that are now uh showing up who have uh, overall better results it's harder to say yes but i'll i'll actually say yes to him too it's Definitely someone who, if they were elected to the Hall of Fame, you wouldn't say, oh, he doesn't deserve to be there. Like he, he, I, I'd say he belongs. Now, as far as selecting him over everybody else, I don't know, because it's getting tougher and tougher. It's more and more of a backlog each year. Now, so these were the... Uh, this were seven of them here. We also have uh, Lon McCarron and Norman Chad, who I don't have to talk about their poker accomplishments because they don't have any, but... Uh, they, of course, being are nominated for their longtime coverage of the World Series of Poker. And then Isai Scheinberg for starting Poker Stars. 
and Matt Savage for being a famed tournament director. And I think these are all fine people to induct from a non-player standpoint, but do I think they should take precedence over players? No. I think they need to make a separate category and have these guys compete with each other. So I have to say no to all of them until they have them stop competing with the players. It's just apples and oranges. But I hope one day they fix the Hall of Fame. They need to add more spots. They need to separate players from non-players. They need to fix that voting process, kill the clicks, and just say, you know what? I don't care if we piss off Doyle. We're going to make the voting fair. Put me in charge. Seriously. Put me in charge. Say, Todd, we want you to redesign the Hall of Fame the way the voting goes. And I will say, okay, pay me something, and I'll do it. I would make a perfect process that could not have any kind of significant rigging, unless a ton of people got together of those 32, and that the right number of people would be inducted each year, and that players and non-players would not compete with one another. That's my promise. So get a hold of me. Okay, so I want to talk now about... Omicron variants BA4 and BA5. I think I probably had BA4 or BA5. And the reason I think that is because I had just gotten vaccinated in mid-May and yet I got sick. Not very sick. I got a mild cold type thing, but it was actually COVID. And while BA2 could break through the vaccine, BA4 and 5 are known to be a lot better at doing that. Now, BA4 and 5 are not more dangerous than BA2. In fact, there's even some belief, though it hasn't been proven yet, that they're more mild than BA2. So it seems like the COVID might be getting milder and milder, even as Omicron mutates. But they are more contagious, and they are better at evading vaccines, and they are better at evading immunity from having COVID previously. So how worried should you be? Now, as of about, I'd say, two, three weeks ago, I'd say about 50% of the cases at the World Series of Poker were probably BA4, BA5, and 50% were BA2. And this is according to statistics that I was seeing about uh, BA4 and BA5 in Nevada at the time. Nevada was one of the leading states in BA4 and 5 taking hold. They are eventually going to probably beat BA2 because they're more contagious, and that's the way COVID's been working, is whatever is the more contagious variant wins out eventually. That is how Delta destroyed the original COVID. That is how Omicron destroyed Delta. And now we have the Omicron subvariants destroying each other. So BA4 or BA5 will probably become the dominant or maybe even only variants until the next ones come out after that. Eventually, there will be like a ceiling of contagiousness where they can't get more contagious than they are. And then it'll be interesting to see how we go from there. But we're not there yet. And I think the reason it's spreading around so much of the World Series is BA4 and 5 are more contagious and they're also busting through vaccines or natural immunity. I have said before that if you're going you're gonna to play the World Series, you have to resign yourself to the fact that there's a good chance you'll get COVID. It's not guaranteed, but the longer you're there, the higher chances it's going to happen, and it popped me pretty fast. But how worried should you be about BA4 and BA5? Because we're seeing a lot of alarmism again. We're seeing people saying, 
This is it. This we got to bring back all the restrictions. We got to have the mandatory masking, the mandatory vaccinations. We have to have the uh, the distancing. People want to bring back all these restrictions because BA four and BA five have come to town, and they can spread a lot more easily. Now people are admitting that the vaccines aren't doing that much to stop them, so they're saying we, we've got to go back to things like mandatory masking. Otherwise, we're all going to get it. Well. You're talking to someone here, or I guess listening to someone here, who probably had BA4 or BA5, and I'm not dead. I'm not in the hospital. I was never all that sick. In fact, I wasn't very sick at all, and I know I'm just one person, but I don't know anybody at the World Series who was, like, devastated by COVID where they were just knocked out for weeks. So I think we need to look at this differently. Now, it is probably a fact that there's not much you can do other than just avoiding people and avoiding crowded indoor spaces like the World Series. Aside from just avoiding being in places like that, there's not much more you can do unless you want to saddle yourself with wearing an N95 mask all the time, which is very uncomfortable. So I guess if you want to do that, you can maybe avoid it. But short of that, if you're going to spend indoors spend time indoors at places like the World Series of Poker or anywhere else for any kind of length of time, then there's a good chance you're going to get BA4 or BA5. And even if you don't, you may get it from somebody who did. So say your friend just went to a concert or at the World Series of Poker and they don't feel sick, they have no symptoms, and you spend time with them in their house or in their car or wherever, you may catch it from that way, or they could be a coworker of yours. It's very hard to avoid, is the truth. So it, it might hit you, and if you're not really old or have major health conditions already, you're probably going to be fine, and not fine in the way where you're going to be knocked out for two weeks and maybe get permanent lung damage like it was with the original COVID or Delta. I'm talking about fine, like you'll feel like you have a cold and you'll get better. What I have to say about BA4 and 5 is we, we can't panic. We can't start shutting things down or, or, or making people wear masks everywhere or, or just making all these different restrictions and, and other nonsense that dis- inconveniences people because it's a fool's errand to try to stop this thing at this point. It, it's now time to say we have to just live with it. We have to just accept it's going to spread very easily, much like we do with colds and the flu. And we can do our best and we can offer a vaccine and we can be honest about what it does and doesn't do for you and then just move forward and uh, maybe see ways you can protect the most vulnerable, the ones who are more likely to die from it. Like, uh, for example, Daly, who listens to this show and posts on the forum, uh, his 100-year-old grandmother unfortunately passed away from covid probably was uh, Omicron BA2, if I had to guess. She got it a little bit before I did. But the difference is uh, she was double my age. She's 100, I'm 50. So unfortunately, she passed away. And uh, that's who it's killing. And, and you know, daily, I feel bad for him that he lost his grandma. But uh, it was good for him that he had her until he was past 40 years old. I haven't had any grandparents for quite some time. But, you know, it's uh, still sad when they pass away, but even he acknowledged that that this is who it's getting. This is who's in danger these days. But that was the case with the flu, too. That's who the flu's been killing. And we've had that our whole lives. So I think it's time to start treating Omicron BA4 and 5 like we treat the flu. 
because it uh, and you may say, well, what about long COVID? That's 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 the big uh, fear these days. Oh, what about long COVID? Well, how much long COVID you get from these variants of Omicron is still the jury's still out on this. But the problem is you can't avoid this forever. It would be great if everybody could just avoid this somehow, but you just can't avoid this forever. It's unrealistic. So yeah, it sucks if you get long COVID. But I will say that they have acknowledged that the chance of getting long COVID is much lower with Omicron than it was with Delta or the original. And the forms of long COVID are not as bad. So uh, from the original and from Delta, people were losing their taste and smell and never getting it back or only getting it back halfway. That's awful. Or people were getting permanent lung damage. Now, I will report one of our listeners here who I, I saw in Vegas here who listens to the show and, and we text sometimes. Uh, I saw him and he gave me the good news that he had a very bad case of original COVID that he felt was going to kill him at one point. He was hospitalized. He couldn't breathe. It was, it was very bad. He lost uh, oxygen. Uh, he ended up recovering, but he had lung damage. And from what was seen then, it was going to be permanent. But he said, believe it or not, his breathing's normal again. The lung damage went away. So the people with permanent lung damage have actually may not be permanent, which would be great, or at least for some people. But in Omicron, this isn't the, the, that type of long COVID isn't really happening. You're not seeing the lung damage. You're not seeing the loss of smell and taste very much. So what you're seeing in things like fatigue or, or what seems like a persistent cough or a persistent cold, that's not pleasant either, but it's, it's nowhere near as bad as, as lung damage or loss of smell and taste that doesn't come back. So you also have to ask, what is this form of COVID? So my conclusion, and this is, of course, just my opinion, but my conclusion is just stop worrying about it. Except you may get it. Go on with your life. Take a vaccine dose to refresh your uh, immunity if uh, it's been six months or more. But know that it's not going to do what the previous vaccines were doing. I think there's a good chance my symptoms were so mild because I had just been vaccinated. I had the mildest symptoms of anyone I knew who had symptoms. I still have not met anyone who got COVID at the World Series and experienced it as mildly as I did. Because the peak of my symptoms was, was never even bad. You know, maybe get that, maybe don't, but it's going to be hard to avoid if you go to places like the World Series. I mean, look, I had four shots, the last of which was mid-May, and I got it. So I think short of wearing an N95 mask, I had no way to avoid this if I was going to go to the World Series. So just something to think about. Again, don't worry about the obsessive cleaning and disinfecting. That's not going to help you. It may help you with colds and flu. It's not going to help you with COVID. COVID does not, trans- does not transmit that way. It transmits through the air, transmits through breathing. So if you're in a room with thousands of people breathing at once, like the World Series of Poker, it's a good chance you'll get it. So I'm not going to get it because I, I got better from... Uh, COVID a few weeks ago, so it's not going to get me right now. Before I finish this segment, what about people's immunity from before? What about uh, natural immunity from previous COVID infections or from previous uh, Omicron infections? I already told you about the vaccine it busts through, but what about natural immunity? Well, if you recovered from COVID less than a month ago, like I did, you're very unlikely to get BA4 and 5. Even if the version you got was BA2, you're still unlikely to get BA4 and 5 at this point. 
Once you get more than a month, it starts to increase. Once you get a few months away, it increases even more. But you're still a lot better off than somebody who didn't have COVID as far as getting it. So nothing's for sure, but if you've had COVID during the World Series of Poker, you're not getting it again. Very unlikely, as long as your immune system is normal. So I wouldn't worry about it. Final topic. I'm going to do an editorial. I'm going to shut this down. I'll edit this later on today, and I'll smack it up in the archives at that point. I figured I had to say something about Roe versus Wade, even if I've talked about this fairly recently. I talked about this back in May when the leaked opinion that was going to overturn the Roe versus Wade came out. It hadn't officially been done yet, but the leaking made people discuss this, and I gave my feelings then. But of course, the topic got reinvigorated this week when people were going crazy over the situation with it actually being overturned. And that news just came down a few days ago. I'm seeing a lot of panic about it. And it is true that a number of states have already made abortion illegal, except in cases where the mom's life is in danger. Some have already slapped restrictions on abortion where it's not outright illegal, but you can't do it past like the six-week mark or past the 12-week mark or past the 16-week mark. Some of these laws are pending to come soon, but are not uh, there right now, but they're probably going to come within the next few months. So a number of red states are really looking to restrict or ban abortion except where the mom's life is in danger, and some of them also have exceptions for incest and rape. Now, I will start off by saying that I don't believe in no-exception abortion laws. That there should never be any state that makes it to where you cannot get an abortion if you were raped, or in cases of incest, or in cases where the mom's life is in danger. I don't think there's any states where you can't get an abortion if your life is in danger, but I think the incest and rape is not guaranteed in all these states that are trying to ban it or have banned it, and that's very bad. Those should always be exceptions. I don't even have to go into the reasons why that should be. It should be obvious. But what about states that allow it for incest, rape, and when the mom's life is in danger, but no other time, even early? How do I feel about that? Well, personally... I am pro-life, meaning that I would not want abortions to be done with any child that I create. And I actually have experience, which I don't know if I've ever talked about before, but in 2001, early 2001, I thought I got a girl pregnant. It's no one anyone here knows or has met, because I had just gotten into poker then, and I was like a low-stakes recreational player, so nobody knew me. And that relationship didn't last very long, which is part of the reason that I was not happy to hear that it really appeared this girl was pregnant. I won't go into the whole story, but suffice to say, at one point, it seemed more likely than not that she actually was pregnant. But we, it hadn't been quite long enough to where we could take a pregnancy test for, where she could take one and uh, see if she really was. But I was already preparing myself as to what I was going to do about it. And 
at no point was I thinking, you know what, she should get an abortion. And this is someone I wasn't with anymore, didn't want to be with, she didn't want to be with me. And yet, I did not want that baby aborted. And I even told her that. I told her that that's not what I want to see her do. If it turns out she is pregnant, she said she has mixed feelings, she hasn't decided, and I figured I'm not going to press too hard until we actually uh, see the result. No point to fight about something that we're not sure has actually happened yet. So, uh, eventually enough time passed to where a pregnancy test would be accurate. So she got one of the early pregnancy tests, and she took it, and it was negative. I was expecting positive, but it was negative. She took another one a few days later, negative. Took another one the next week, negative. Yeah, she was negative. So, crisis averted. Crisis averted. I I did not actually... uh, impregnate that girl who I didn't want to have a kid with, but if she was pregnant like I thought she was at one point, and she thought she was at one point, then I would have encouraged her very much to have the kid, and I would have just dealt with the fact that this is someone I really didn't want to be with. So I can say from my own life that I was not uh, ever someone who would have uh, supported an abortion being done the kid I created. But what I would want for myself is different than what I think is right as far as uh, legalizing and banning practices for other people. I feel that the complete lack of access to abortion is a mistake. Because even if you believe it should be restricted, the problem The biggest problem comes from the fact that about one-third of all pregnancies end in miscarriage. Now, it's true, a lot of that is skewed to older women, because once you're 35 and older, the chance of having a miscarriage goes way up, and once you're over 40, the chance of having a miscarriage is tremendously high. And in fact, once you're over 45, it's so high that it's unusual to not miscarry if you get pregnant. So yeah, it's skewed to older women, But still, young women have miscarriages. There have been miscarriages in my family. In fact, I would not be alive if it were not for a miscarriage, because there was a miscarriage of a child right before me, and then the pregnancy that produced me would not have happened if that child was born. So, miscarriages are pretty common. How do you know the difference between a miscarriage and an abortion? A woman gets pregnant... And then she says she had a miscarriage. How do you prove that it was not an abortion? In fact, how do you even know if the woman was pregnant in the first place? It's not like they're showing with a big stomach when they're at the beginning stages of the pregnancy. They could simply get pregnant and not tell anyone and find one of various ways to end the pregnancy that are not legal, but that nobody will know. And this used to be the case before abortion was legal after Roe versus Wade. So we already saw the results of that. And we had these dangerous back alley abortions occurring and all that type of stuff. And it, the problem is it's uh, it, you can't just say, well, we'll put criminal penalties attached to that because it's too easy to avoid and too difficult to prove. So it just doesn't make for good legislation regardless of how you feel about it. 
there is a myth that the term safe, legal, and rare was used at the time of Roe versus Wade in 1972. That's not true. It was 20 years later by Bill Clinton when they were discussing a new case involving abortion, which uh, kind of changed the interpretation of Roe versus Wade somewhat, which is called the uh, uh, Planned Parenthood versus Casey. So that was kind of the updated Roe versus Wade, and that is what has stood as the federal interpretation of Roe versus Wade for the past 30 years. And it was actually Bill Clinton who came up with the safe, legal, and rare line, which was used many times. Well, unfortunately, even the left now doesn't like saying safe, legal, and rare. They don't want it to be safe, legal, and rare anymore. They think that's too restrictive. I'm not kidding. Look it up. Funny thing is, I agree with safe, legal, and rare. I think that is the justification for allowing early-term abortion. That you want it to be safe so the women aren't seeking illegal methods which will put their lives in danger. That it's legal so they can actually do this and not have to seek these illegal methods. And rare, meaning that it's not something that's done constantly. It's not something that's just, uh, you do it without caring. That it's something that you only do in rare circumstances where unwanted pregnancies happen. And that you do your best to prevent that. You don't just say, okay, well, I'm not going to worry about it. If I get pregnant, I'll just keep getting abortions. So safe, legal, and rare should be what we're shooting for here as far as abortion law and as far as uh, the usage of abortion. But unfortunately, the left has gotten away from that. They don't even like safe, legal, and rare anymore. They've, they've advised people not to say that because that's not the present goal. Now, to be fair, the right doesn't like safe, legal, and rare either. The right wants basically no abortion at all, (laughs) except in these super extreme cases like uh, where the woman's life is in danger or it's a case of rape, which really constitutes a tiny percentage of abortions. So this would basically put an end to abortion, except in these uh, very unusual cases. That's what a lot of the right wants. And the left has gotten away with safe, legal, and rare. And what they have taken as a replacement position is a woman should be able to do whatever she wants with a baby inside of her, no matter how late it is in the pregnancy. It's her choice, her body, her choice, period. Which sounds good as a slogan until you really think about it. Because there's another human being involved. And you could say at the very beginning, oh, that's not a human being, it's just a clump of cells. Uh, At the seven-month mark, eight-month mark, nine-month mark, that's not a clump of cells. That's a human being. It could live outside the womb. It's a human being. If you get rid of it, you're killing a human being. That's not trivial. And they like to say, well, we should trust a woman and her doctor. Yeah, sure. If you think that doctors will not do something unethical if there's money in it, then you're one of the most naive people alive. Think of how many doctors there are in the U.S. and think of how many doctors would be willing to do something if if they could not get in trouble for it and there's money in it. There's plenty of doctors who would not turn down that opportunity and not care about ethics or find a way to lie to themselves of why the ethics are okay. So to trust that a woman would not be able to find a doctor willing to do an abortion on a baby at the eight and a half month mark just because she doesn't want it 
and oh no doctor would ever do that of course they would if it's if they can't get in trouble for it and if they will get money for it there will be plenty of unethical doctors who will do this because all they care about is themselves and their pocketbook and there's all kinds of crappy and unethical doctors all over the place who will do illegal things to make money so can you imagine how many would do it if it was legal so that's a horrible argument. Oh, they can't find a doctor to do it. Of course they will. Oh, no woman would do this to their baby. That's also not true. There are plenty of callous women out there who would make this decision if this baby is some something they no longer want. So I've talked about this before. A 22-year-old woman who's broke, who gets pregnant by her boyfriend, says, oh, crap, what do we do? And the boyfriend says, don't worry, we'll make a life together. We'll, we'll get past this. You know, I'll, I'll work two jobs. We'll be able to afford this kid. We'll have a great life together. We'll make it. And then at the seven-month mark, the guy's like, ah, you know what? Uh, I don't really want this anymore. I don't really like you anymore. I'm leaving. Bye-bye. And he disappears. Well, that's not what he promised when he told her she should keep the baby. What do you think she wants to do at that point? And she thinks about if she has a kid, about how much this will affect, how much... Uh, free time she'll have, how much of a social life she'll have, what guys will want to date her at this point when she's 22 with a baby. All she has to do is get that abortion, get the baby aborted, and she can go back to her old life and resume. I'm not saying all 22-year-olds in this spot would do it, but if you say none would, you are also extremely naive. And if it's legal, which it is in 20 states right now, 20 states, then it will and does happen. In fact, there have been studies on this that well more than half of late-term abortions are not because the mom's life or serious health is in danger. More than half. Not just more than half, like 51%. Like I think it's like 60-something percent. And I'll hear the lines, oh, well, this is a tiny percentage of all abortions that are done. Well, that's true. They said like 1% are late-term. And most of these are because of uh, the woman's life being in danger. Well, that second part's not true, which I just said. But who cares what percentage of abortions it is? I've never made the argument that 50% of all abortions are late term and then because the woman just doesn't want the baby anymore. uh, I've never said that. No Republicans ever said that. You, You don't look on the percentage of things happening. You look at, is this right or is it wrong? Is this murder or is it not? If it's murder, you don't permit it. And you never write law based upon what you think someone would do. You write law based upon what is right and what is not right. You're not writing law for the good people. When there's laws that I can't steal a candy bar from a store, it's not written for someone like me who wouldn't steal the candy bar anyway. I could walk into a store and there could be nobody in there. It could be abandoned where I could steal a candy bar and walk out and nothing would happen to me. And I still wouldn't steal it because I'm not a thief. But the law is not written for me, who is not going to steal that candy bar anyway. It is written for those who would steal it to punish them for doing so. So you don't look at what the majority would do. And if you say, hey, look, the vast majority would do the right thing, so let's not write a law about it. That's stupid. You write the law to make it illegal for those that will do the wrong thing. That's the way you write criminal law. So if killing a seven or eight month developed baby because the woman doesn't want it anymore is murder, which I think you probably concede it is, 
then there should be no law anywhere that can permit this. And you can't just say, well, I can't think of a woman who would do that. It doesn't matter if you can think of a woman who would do that. You need to just not allow it. I don't know anyone personally who would commit murder, but that doesn't mean I don't think there should be murder laws on the book. The town I live in has very few murders. The neighborhood I live in has had zero murders. Does that mean there should be no law against murder? Of course not. You, you don't look at how frequently something happens. You, you look at, should this be allowed? And if the answer is no, then you make a law against it. That's the way criminal law works and has always worked. So these counter arguments are so stupid. The problem is that the left has become obsessed with a woman should be able to choose at any time what she wants to do. And if she can find a doctor to do it, if he says it's okay, they should be able to do it. The, the government should get involved. Of course the government should get involved. There's another life involved here, which they fully formed human baby at the 7th, 8th, 9th month of pregnancy that can live outside the womb. You can't just kill it because a woman and doctor says so. She finds some quack doctor to sign off on it. So it's insane to make these arguments. And it's not just me saying this. It's not just Republicans saying this. Late-term abortion for reasons other than the mom's life being in danger is very unpopular in the general population. If you polled this, it would get clobbered. In fact, they did poll this about five, six years ago, and only 11% of respondents were okay with late-term abortion being done for anything other than the, the mom's life being in danger. 11%. 89 were against it. Now, that number has gone down, the 89. It's no longer 1189, but it's no not even near 50-50. The vast majority of Americans do not like permissive late-term abortion law. So what happens is the left kind of hides the ball and pretends it's not happening. You, you bring it to someone on the left and say, hey, you know, there's 20 states where a woman can get an abortion at the nine-month mark without any physical health danger, and they'll say, no, that's not possible. There's no such thing. Oh, yes, there is. Go look it up. There's some states that have no restriction at all. There's a lot of states that say if the woman's life or health is in danger, she can get an abortion, and health can mean anything. It can mean uh, mental health. It can mean minor physical health. Anything that's just health. If she has a health issue with the pregnancy, mental or physical, even minor, then she can get the abortion. So that's extremely broad, and any doctor can find any, quote, health problem to perform a legal abortion at nine months. And if you think they won't do it and haven't been doing it, then you're deluding yourself because anything legal and has money in it, people will do. So the solution is to make it illegal. It's to say, here is when it's okay. Otherwise, no. That's it. That's, what, that's the whole purpose of having law. So why am I going on this rant here? Why am I focusing on the left when it is the right who killed Roe versus Wade? When it's the right who now has their governors making abortion outright illegal, except for when the mom's life is in danger in certain states, which I disagree with and I think is bad. So why am I blaming the left for this? Why am I going this rant about the left? Well, the left getting more and more extreme, going from safe, legal, and rare to the current situation with these late-term abortions being allowed by law, well, this has kind of kicked the right into high gear to try to do what they've wanted to do for five decades now, but 
really hadn't uh, had the motivation to fully go through with it. Uh, yeah, the the Christian fundamentalists have had the motivation the whole time, but the mainstream right just hasn't quite had the motivation to really get it done, to really seriously attack Roe versus Wade. In fact, it had been my opinion that I was not going to see Roe versus Wade get repealed any time while I was alive. And I was wrong because I'm alive now and it got overturned. Whoops. But it happened in part because abortion was no longer safe, legal, and rare. And the narrative changed. The concept of Roe versus Wade has been perverted. What you're seeing now, the late-term abortions, if it's a, of a woman's experiencing anxiety, it should be up to her and her doctor. She should, they should be able to make this decision. That was never the spirit of it in 72 or in 92. So if you're a big fan of Roe versus Wade, then you should want us to go back to the actual spirit of Roe versus Wade, where it was permitted and where it wasn't. And not Roe versus Wade, plus a bunch of other circumstances where you can kill viable babies legally. And if you think these new laws that allow this to happen in 20 states are okay, then you're not a fan of Roe versus Wade. You're a fan of a much more extreme version that was never intended when Roe was passed. And in fact, if people could have looked 50 years into the future and seen the laws of these 20 states, then Roe versus Wade would have had just about no public support. And I doubt the decision would have gone the way it did. The decision went the way it did and the public sentiment was what it was because that made sense. What we're seeing today does not make sense. So the left got too extreme with abortion. They got too extreme with what, quote, a woman's choice is. They got too callous about killing late-term babies and how that was permissible. And finally, this gave the right the kick in the ass to do what they had wanted to do for decades, but never could quite get up the motivation to do it in large enough numbers of influential people. This was the catalyst. The left provided the catalyst, and then the right did it. So now we've got a big problem. So now, now where we are is, is, is not good. Now we're going to have some states where there's going to be actual murder of viable babies that's totally legal. And you're going to have some states where you can't get an abortion at all. And you're going to have some states where even if it's incest or rape, you can't get an abortion at all. Does that sound good? There's going to be only a few states that will have sensible abortion law. Everything's going to be either way too permissive or way too restrictive. I have one other thing to say. There was a chance to stop this. In May, when this upcoming decision was leaked, but it hadn't officially been done yet, the left quickly put together a bill, Democrats put together a bill to codify Roe versus Wade and basically make it federal law that protects a woman's right to abortion federally. But it failed. They didn't have the vote in the Senate. And the reason they didn't have the votes in the Senate is they could not get any moderate Republicans to vote for it. And you know why? It's not because every Republican is a crazy pro-lifer. It was because they refused to negotiate the terms in that bill. And guess what that bill had? That bill had a guarantee that any woman can get an abortion at any time in the pregnancy as long as 
there is a danger to her life or health. Didn't say physical health, just life or health. There's that health word again. And that was going to be in the law if it were passed. So every moderate Republican that otherwise might have voted yes on codifying Roe versus Wade said, nope, I can't put my name on that one. I can't say I approve of allowing nine-month abortions by law if any, quote, health problem, mental or physical, is claimed. Sorry, I'm not getting behind this one. This is way too extreme. So I'm not voting yes on this. So not a single Republican did. And there were those who were begging Democrats to negotiate here, to take that term out, to basically bring back Roe versus Wade as it was originally intended and as the 92 version updated it, even up at least up to that. And then leave out all the other more recent crap that has become far more permissive. Just codify what it was intended to be in the first place. And Democrats said no. So it was voted on by party lines and it failed. So you have to ask yourself if it was this important to protect a woman's right to an abortion then why weren't they willing to negotiate with that term? Why couldn't they bring back the version which was intended in the first place? Why couldn't they say, okay, we'll, we'll negotiate, we'll, t- we'll take out the health thing. We'll just say late-term abortion only permissible if mom's life is in danger. They wouldn't do it. Look it up. So when you're looking for people to blame about the current state of abortion law in the country, which has become a mess, don't just blame the right for its justices overturning Roe versus Wade and for its politicians making abortion illegal in a lot of red states, but also blame those on the left who were so extreme and so married to their insane extremity, which actually has law that permits murder, why they won't make something more sensible. Why they won't say, look, let's stand up to the extreme element of our party and say, yes, we do have to restrict what a woman can do with her body at some point. We do have to come up with sensible abortion law, which protects in situations where this can be abused. We can't legalize something which can be used actually to murder. That makes no sense. That's bad law. That's very harmful. Even if it's not happening a whole lot of times each year. Even if we permit this and it happens once, that's very bad. So that's very bad law. We cannot have this. Why, 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 why doesn't anyone stand up and say that who's in power and say, look, the, the, the Republicans keep using this against us. And this has been the justification for why they're uh, banning abortion. Let, let's stop this. Let, let's go back to what we had before, which everyone kind of begrudgingly accepted, even those that were generally pro-life. But no, they, they had to get their most extreme version of this through. They, they had to stick to their extremity, and then uh, now look where we are. So they weren't reasonable on the left. And, that, and what happens is, when you are extreme, you will breed extremity on the other side to counter you. So you have to watch out. If you're, if you're going to be stuck on extreme dogma, then prepare for the equivalent extremity to rise against you. And that's why extremism is not good on either side. So if you want to just blame the right because you're a Democrat and you like to do that, go ahead. But I'm just, I'm just telling you that's not what happened. Go look at abortion law in 92. Go look at abortion law today. 
prior to the Roe versus Wade overturning it. And, and tell me if that's not like vastly different. And then ask yourself why. Ask yourself what was so wrong with the 92 version of the way abortion law was. And if you're on the right and you think this is a great thing, then you may ask yourself, okay, uh, what's going to practically happen here? What's the realistic outcome of making abortion illegal? We, we already tried this. This is already something that has been seen in this country prior to 1972, and it wasn't good. So why are we bringing that back? Even if you're pro-life. I, I'm personally pro-life, but I, I think from a legal standpoint, it's a mistake. That's my feelings on this. I'm sure some of you won't agree. Look up the things I talked about if you don't believe me. I have loads of people telling me, oh, you're, you're full of shit. It's not 20 states where, where people can get abortions up to nine months. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Without the mom's life being in physical danger. Look it up. And then when you see that, you'll see how crazy the left has become with abortion, and you'll see what that's what led to the right doing this. <sighs> I don't even know where it's going to go from here. A lot of stupid things happening nowadays. All right, that's it. Thank you for listening. When is the next show, I bet you're wondering? Well, we have a scheduled show, but I'm not sure if that's going to be the date. The scheduled show is... July 6th. In fact, it's not going to be July 6th. I can tell you that already. Or sorry, July 1st. So July 1st is the next scheduled show. And that's not going to be the date. I, I'm going to have to change this. So you'll have to wait for the announcement. I can't make July 1st or July 6th. So right now we have on the schedule July 1st, July 6th, July 15th. And I don't think any of that's going to be what happens. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll get back to you guys on this one. You can check the Poker Fraud Alert forum near the top of the Flying Stupidity Forum, there's a radio schedule which I'll have to modify and also check the Twitter account, twitter.com slash pokerfraudalert. Thank you for listening to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. Another episode live from the World Series of Poker. We've now done three of these during the 2022 World Series and we have more coming up. So I hope you enjoyed the coverage. As you've noticed, I don't really cover who's winning a bracelet and all that stuff. I mean, you can find that on Poker News or Card Player or whatever general poker news site you read. But I kind of cover more of the offbeat and scandal stories that I think make better radio. Because someone's going to win a bracelet every event. So that's not very exciting unless it's me. If it's me, that's very exciting. If it's me, I'm going to talk about it for like eight hours. But everybody else, I don't really care. I mean, I guess it's worth mentioning if something really notable happens with a bracelet win, but for the most part, it's just like, I'll glance at it and whatever. I try to think about what you'd want to hear, what makes good radio for the listener, what fits in with the theme of this show. And if it doesn't, then I don't want to do it. And I actually take my broadcasting equipment now with me on trips where I expect to be broadcasting from a secret location. I used to take these crappy little headphones that had poor sound quality and they were hard to hear if you were walking around in a noisy area. And I got complaints about that and I said, you know what, I'm just going to bring my equipment with me. It's a pain in the ass to lug this stuff, but I'm going to do it for you guys, the listeners, because I want you to be able to hear me. I want the same quality of the show when I'm 
away from home and at secret locations as when I am at home. So that's all. And I will talk to you later on the next show, whenever that might be. Check our Twitter account, twitter.com slash pokerfraudalert for more information. That is all. Shalom. Shalom.